Hello, everyone. And Ash has created a massive Christmas special Atwood Unleashed six hour, six bloody hour live stream on YouTube. This is going to be absolutely mental. So, <laughs> if you're wondering what we've got in store, for this evening and huge thank you to wherever you are watching this in the world we were banned from facebook for six months but now they've put us back so i know people are watching this on facebook linkedin twitter youtube everywhere welcome wherever you are in the world hope you're having a good christmas season i know the guys in prison are not having a good christmas season it's the most depressing time of the year but we are going to go out of the six hour special tonight, going back to our roots, we've got Big Herc, the original three pioneers, shout out to them, of the prison channels, when prison channels began, go back to Big Herc, 23 and one lockdown, Josh, and after prison show. So we've got Big Herc coming on in the final hour. All right, so the whole six, and a quarter hour show is exclusively on YouTube tonight. I've got so many thank yous to hand out, and especially to Stephen Knight and Andrew Gold and Jen Hopkins is coming in in the final hour with Big Herc. So huge shout out to all the co-hosts. We've got six. We've had Tug of War. We've had Matthew Steeples. We've got Dr. Das, and Dr. Das is indeed joining us tonight as well. So Four of the co-hosts are going to be joining us tonight. If you do get a chance to support us on Patreon, we've got a wonderful community over there. Massive thank you to the Patreons for not just the beautiful community, but for enabling us to create content like this. Now, without even looking at all the moderators, we have got 20 people working on the channel. We did a full analysis the other day ranging from ed video editors, sound engineers, camera people, people making clips, thumbnails, people sharing our stuff on social media, answering messages, 20 people. And that does not include the moderators. Huge thank you to all the moderators and all of the team, and especially to Ray J because he's there everything we do. Ray J is right there moderating. Cheers to David Obaza. See you watching on LinkedIn. Thank you for supporting me when I was in Arizona prison. It will never be forgotten. All right, so we're in the intro section of AU85 presently. Once I go over the guests, I'm going to tell you the results of the two polls we put out as to whether it's the same poll, but we put them on Twitter and we put it on YouTube as to whether watching the Netflix drama about Meghan and Harry has changed your view about them in a positive fashion. If we've got time, we could maybe be able to talk about SBF and his 10 plus billion fraud, crypto fraud. He's getting extradited to the US. And also we've been supporters of Julian Assange for years and we are calling and adding to the call for his release, which the major media outlets are now joining in. All right, four o'clock then. UK time, 12 minutes from now, we've got David Denton, head of the JFK Historical Group, 
whose objective is to change the historical reality associated with the political assassinations of the 1960s by bringing to light new information uncovered by researchers, journalists, and historians. Joining David and myself is the acclaimed author Mark Shaw, whose latest book is titled Fighting for Justice, where he aims to uncover a series of high-profile cover-ups, including the JFK assassination. I'm also interested in the other assassinations of the 60s. I think we had Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, Saran Saran and RFK, Robert Kennedy. And we've got a massive podcast series coming out January, February, four parts with Joey Torres, founder of the 18th Street Gang, who served 40 years, 20 plus of it, with Saran Saran, Charles Manson, Michael Thompson, founder of the AB, Aryan Brotherhood. He's a fascinating guy and he flew over from LA. And we're very excited about the four episodes in that series. Second guest of the night from 5 to 5.30. So the first hour from 4 is all Kennedy. Second guest, Wilfred Riley, Associate Professor of Political Science at Kentucky State University and author of the books Taboo, 10 Facts You Can't Talk About, Hate Crime Hoax. Wilfred will be weighing in on Elon Musk's battle for free speech, the release of the Twitter files, and what chess game the billionaire is actually playing. From 5.30 to 6, we've got one of our all-time favorite reoccurring guests. Got nothing but love for David Whitehead, who's joining us from Canada. He's a documentary maker who has just released a multi-part series, The Cult of the Medics on Rothkin. He has a long history of exposing injustices in the world, and his focus tonight is going to be on Klaus Schwab, the World Economic Forum founder, and Klaus Schwab's idea of a one world government. Wow. The guest at 6 to 6.30 is former New York Times digital espionage and sabotage reporter. Good grief, what a title. Nicole Perloff. In the past, she has reported on Russian hacking nuclear plants, North Korean cyber attacks, and Iranian attacks on oil companies. She authored the book, This Is How They Tell Me The World Ends. And tonight, she's going to be speaking about Elon Musk's Twitter takeover and whether he is the bastion of free speech he claims to be. Because hasn't he already cancelled a few people in recent days? But yeah, he's so much better than the algorithmic strangle squad. The censors that previously ran Twitter's department of whatever it was called, something Orwellian. 
All right, so 6.30 to 7. We've had a massive interest in our Scientology series. And we've got former Scientologist Professor Aaron Levin-Smith. Raised in Scientology. Aaron worked for the organization full-time as a staff member and a Sea Org member from the age of 12 to 26. He held various positions in Philadelphia, Clearwater, and LA, all related to training Scientology auditors. Aaron left the Sea Organization in 2006 and officially left Scientology in early 2014. He has a YouTube channel called Growing Up in Scientology. And tonight he's going to be discussing some of the recent developments in Scientology, including the Danny Masterton trial and David Miscavige need to lawyer up. He's got his back to the wall if he's lawyering up. Seven to eight, another one of our all-time most viral guests whose channel has now hit half a million subs, Richard Grannon. Remember when he did the narcissist analysis of certain people? I'm not allowed to talk about anymore on this channel. That's my latest book, just available for Christmas, just in time, including hardback. <laughs> Follow on from this one. <laughs> anyway, so Richard Grannon, he spoke about to us on those subjects um, that I just displayed on the screen previously. Got. I think it was a million views, but we had to take them down. And um, Richard, his channel aims to help people deal with trauma, get out of abuse, relationships, and spot narcissists. He's looking at some of the high-profile cases in the news at the moment, including whether Meghan Markle has narcissistic traits. Then we've got another one of our all-time favorite reoccurring guests. This guy has got billions of views. Literally, no exaggeration, billions of views on YouTube alone. Not to mention all of his television views. And we've got him for an hour, and it's Chris Hansen of the pioneering TV show To Catch a Predator. He has been imitated worldwide by all these other people. But Chris has maintained his momentum. He's got a new season coming out, exposing these diabolical individuals. And do you remember how one of those diabolical individuals showed up at the decoy's house with a kill kit in the trunk of his car? Thank God these scum are getting removed from the streets. And Dr. Das Shaham, our friend of the channel and co-host, is coming in from eight to nine for that one. From nine to ten, one of the big three pioneers of the prison channel genre, Big Herc who served time in Lompoc, California, in the feds. I think it was bank robbery. 
And my best mate, one of them, Mike Hot Wheels, DJ Mike Hot Wheels, he spent time in Lompoc as well. So it'd be interesting to get Big Herc's take on that. And co-host Jen Hopkins is going to be joining us for the final guest. Wow, we've only got a couple of minutes to go over the results of the poll before we bring the first guests in on JFK. So let me pull the polls up real quick, see where we're at. Right, on Twitter first then, we asked, let's see where it is, has Netflix the show about Prince Harry and Meghan Markle has it changed your opinion about Meghan and Harry in a positive way? And 388 people have voted so far on Twitter. They're much kinder on Twitter than they are on YouTube with these polls. 26.3% are now saying yes. They view Meghan and Harry in a more positive light. 60% are saying no. And 13.9% are saying other. This is going to be a lot more harsher on the YouTube channel. Let's have a look. All right. YouTube channel, 883 votes. And we've got 13% have said yes. What's that? Almost half or half of what they said on Twitter. 78% have said no, other are at 9% and the 77 comments. Wow. All right, I'm going to ask you guys then. Wherever you are watching this, put a one in the comments or the chat or the responses below the video. If the Netflix show has improved your opinion of Meghan and Harry, Put a two if it has not. And I'll check those results as they come streaming in shortly. Paul Bobbin says, I like Harry and Meghan. Carmel has put a one. Anexus has put a two. Effortless has put a two. Val has put a two. Terry two. Carol two. Looks like the twos. Oh, Nikki two. Carol two. Joni two. A three from Flash. Moon is a two. Looks like it's almost 90% twos. Seagull. Got a one there from Paul Bobbins. Maria is on a two. Paul Pounder on a two. Shout out, Paul. Hope you're doing well. Vulch. All right. And some people are putting, we have not seen it. All right, so I'm going to do another poll right now before I bring the guest in, and we'll do a poll at the end of the conversation with him. Put a warm in the comments or responses if you think that JFK, the assassination, the official narrative is a lie. The lone gunman didn't do it. It was way more than that. Put a two in the responses, chats, comments, if you think that the lone gunman killed Kennedy. JFK. And we'll do another one at the end. 
Looks like it's all ones coming in. So without any further ado, we're going to bring in, yeah, all ones. Nice one, Vulture. See that coming in. Well, any further ado, we're going to be bringing in our first guests of the day, David Denton and Mark Shaw. Here we go. Hello, Mark and David. Good uh, morning or afternoon. I, I'm lost with time. So anyway, hello. <laughs> Good afternoon, Sean. Good afternoon, everybody. We are here in London where it is 4 p.m. right now. 10 a.m. Central Time in Illinois. 10 a.m.? Yes. 8 o'clock right, on well, the uh, eight o'clock on the West Coast, and I didn't know that David was going to wear a tie and dress up like this, so I feel <laughs> underdressed. <laughs> well, I'm a college professor. I just try to pretend I'm somebody professional, Mark. You know, got to fool some people, right? You betcha. <laughs> yep. So I've, I've given like a brief introduction to you guys already. Could either of you just take a few minutes saying what you do and how you got into the JFK story? Go ahead, David. Go ahead, Mark, you want to start? Go ahead, Mark. No, you go ahead. You go ahead. Okay. Well, uh, as I said, I'm a history professor at Alley Central College, a community college in Illinois. Uh, I just, it's, I'm sure Mark has a similar story. You, you you wake up one day, you know, I, I picked up a book in 1988. It's called Coup d'etat in America. It was by Canfield and Weberman. It wasn't like it was the definitive story on the JFK assassination, but I only had maybe a cursory knowledge of it. I read through this book and it became apparent that, you know, everything that we've been told about what happened in Dallas is just doesn't add up. That the, the, the idea that Oswald was far more than just a lone nut, uh, the impossibility of all these things we've been told. And you, and it just kind of hit me over the head. And I, from that point on, I just tried to consume as, no, as much information as I could uh, over the years, read hundreds of books. Uh, beginning in the late 1990s, I been, began doing speaking engagements. Uh, you know, I, I opened up in the early 2000s. My, my dean of instruction was allowed, allowed me to, the opportunity to uh, teach a class on political assassinations of the 1960s to really uh, bring a lot of information to students. The class has become very popular. Uh, in recent years, I've written articles, many articles about the assassination and have held uh, conferences around the country, including one in Dallas this past November. We'll plan on doing some more here in the coming year. And I've just gradually, over time, became more engaged in this story, you know, in terms of it's a fascinating story. It's a story of pursuing truth and justice in America. And, and it, I don't think it's, uh, it's ever lost its relevancy. How about you, Mark? Well, uh, you know, I, I give my age up because uh, I was a, a freshman at Purdue University when JFK was killed. Uh, they told us it was Oswald alone. I bought that just like everybody else did. But uh, everything changed for me because of this woman, uh, Dorothy Kilgallen, whose uh, photograph is on this best-selling book, The Reporter Who Knew Too Much. I didn't know much about Dorothy, except that she was a, a contestant, or excuse me, a, a panelist on a, a very popular uh, U.S. show called What's My Line? They guessed people's uh, unusual occupations, watched by 10 million people on CBS every night in the 50s and 60s. 
And that's all I knew about her until, you know, I've had a bit of an advantage over anybody looking at the assassination because I actually practiced law with Melvin Belli, uh, the lawyer for Jack Ruby in the 19, uh, in the 1980s. And uh, while working on that book, I found out of his affiliations with the mafia. His main client was a LA gangster named Mickey Cohen. And that led me to writing a book uh, about him and then called The Poison Patriarch about the 60 election being fixed. Uh, Joe Kennedy knew they were going to lose. So they went to some of their friends in the mafia. They helped him. They said, listen, uh, you know, uh, you help us. We'll leave you guys alone. Uh, I had an eyewitness who was right there when Joe Kennedy ordered JFK to appoint Bobby Kennedy attorney general. He went after those guys. He deported Marcello, a New Orleans Don. And I then got back to Dorothy. And, and she's so important here because she was syndicated to 200 newspapers across the country with her Voice of Broadway column on in the uh, New York Journal American. Um, had a radio show listened to by a million people a day. And uh, the New York Post called her the most powerful female voice in America. And what I found out was that she was at the Jack Ruby trial. She and JFK were very, very good friends. Uh, he'd been to her home for parties. And, and I'll get into that when we look at the Warren Commission corruption in the new book, Fighting for Justice. But Dorothy was there in the front row. Uh, David wasn't there. You weren't there, Sean. I wasn't there. Most of the other experts uh, that talk about the assassination weren't there. Dorothy was there. She listened to all the testimony. She heard Ruby that Ruby said, I will be there when Oswald's going to be transferred and so on and so forth. And so then she started writing these columns. First one, Oswald, Oswald file must not close. While JFK was out there shouting Oswald alone, Dorothy was going against the grain. Uh, she was the only reporter if 400 to interview a Ruby at trial. We don't know exactly what she, uh, she found out because her files were stolen later. later. But she ended, going, ended up going to New Orleans, investigating Marcello and all of that. And so that was what really uh, clicked for me. That was my second book, uh, third book about the assassination. I then found the Ruby trial transcripts and wrote Denial of Justice. I then connected Marilyn, Dorothy, and JFK's deaths, 62, 63, and 65, and collateral damage. And then the new one, Fighting for Justice, uh, this particular book, takes the reader right inside the Warren Commission hearings for the first time. So. Uh, it, it's been a, a bit of an obsession for me, like with David, I think, but all of that is, is dependent on my belief that Dorothy Kilgallen uh, is the most credible reporter to have investigated the JFK assassination. And in many ways, she's become my muse. I've followed her lead in terms of wherever that's gone. Fantastic. So I'd like to add some chronology to this then, just to keep the structure sure. um, concise and interesting for the viewers so they can follow it as it happens. So if we divide it into then the factors that came together to lead to the assassination, the execution of the assassination and the aftermath and the cover up, can we just first start then with the factors that came together? Who do you guys suggest that the co-conspirators are and what motives did they have? Uh, would you like me to start, Mark? Sure, sure go ahead. Well, you know, that's a question I kind of get like about five times a week for my students. And it's it's not a question that you can just, I believe, snap off and say, OK, so and so did it. You know, it's it's complicated. But and I think, you know, and we're going to we're going to talk about this. I'm pretty sure I, from the transcripts of the stuff I got from you in advance about, you know, there's a growing uh, movement here. I think in the United States just in the last few weeks and. Questioning the CIA, did the CIA do it? And and I think 
I, I honestly believe that's part of the story, but not, but it may be an oversimplification. Uh, I think a, a, a broader narrative about what and why happened, what and why it happened in Dallas, is it is that Kennedy in many ways challenged the power structure in America, and that power structure consisted of a lot of people inside and outside the United States government who were who were extreme right wing anti-communist coal warriors who saw Kennedy as a traitor, that they had no choice in, in many cases of it was either with the case of the CIA, it was either them or JFK and or at least elements of the CIA. And, and I think these powerful there was a lot of interconnectivity at these at these at these powerful forces uh, that, that were connected with each other, uh, that had the ability and power to do it. But I think you have to ask the basic questions. Who who lured Kennedy to Dallas? Who had the, who controlled the scene in Dallas? Who can control the cover-up and the evidence afterwards? Who could have manipulated the autopsy? And the, that and the CIA does not answer all those questions. I, I, I think it's a, a higher power than that. Not necessarily, you know, I, I, I don't like the term deep state. I think it's been co-opted by some people in more recent times. But I, but I think powerful individuals who had an agenda to stop what Kennedy was trying to do, to try to bring peace in America, to end the Cold War. And folks that, frankly, that controlled the scene in Texas that wanted to see Lyndon Johnson be president, who was going to be the person they wanted to be in the White House. And, of course, Johnson and his people who controlled the, who controlled the Warren Commission cover-up afterwards, who appointed the Warren Commission. Who was, who was closest to J. Edgar Hoover, who had control of the evidence? Again, you have to look. Johnson's there. And then Alan Dulles, who's appointed to the, to, to the uh, Warren Commission at the very top, who certainly controlled the flow of evidence. I've studied the documents that have been released lately, and there's a lot there about Dulles and what, what he did in that respect. But I think it, it's more, it crosses the line. It's, it's a mistake to suggest that the single entity, I think, assassinated the president of the United States. You had all this interconnectivity between powerful people inside and outside the government. They had connections with the mob, the intelligence community, the United States military. I know that sounds like a massive conspiracy, but that doesn't mean it has to be a, a necessarily a large number of people. It's more about those who had the power to do this and their extreme views. And I, I think that's where you need to look. Uh, and as a, as a probability, conspiracy as a 100% uh, ability to say, okay, we know exactly who did this. That, that's very difficult to prove. But I think as a historian, I think there's enough there to create a probability of conspiracy. Uh, if you look back to Roman times, the period of imperial crisis where there were 50 assassinations and coup d'etats over a 26-year period, I think it, you, historians could say, okay, we can look at this. This person was assassinated. This person descended to power. Do we have a good idea who probably was behind that? Yeah, we do. So when history looks back, so whatever, 100 years back to in, in, in America and what happened to JFK and the result of that, can we look and see some probabilities? I think we can. I, I, and that's maybe that wasn't a 
simple answer. But I, th- I think that's where I've arrived at. Mark, what's your opinion? Well, I respect everybody's opinion, David, but I, I think you're uh, unfortunately fallen into that group who's, who's looked down these rabbit holes that don't have anything to do with the assassination. Dorothy Kilgallen, again, I'm telling you right now, she was right there. If you read my books and you read her accounts, you know, she had this right. She looked, you know, I'm a former criminal defense lawyer. I covered the OJ case. I covered the Kobe Bryant case. I covered a lot of cases for the networks. I always look at motive. I look at motive. And one of the things I know is that you can't mess around with the mafia. Uh, You can't double cross the mafia, which is exactly what Joe Kennedy did. I'll just tell you a quick story. When I was with Good Morning America, they sent me to Philadelphia to interview Angelo Bruno, who was a a powerful mafia don there, his attorney. And I talked to the attorney. We were surprised that he talked to me. It was on GMA the next morning. Big, big deal about that. Mark, go back to Philadelphia, see if he'll talk to you again. Well, I did. And I talked to a secretary who came on the line who was crying. And she said, well, Mr. Shaw, I guess you don't know. My boss, when he started his car this morning, it blew up. You can't mess around with those guys. And Joe Doublecross, Marcello, Giancana, all those people. And, and David, I will tell you, I, uh, Dorothy Kilgallen stretched the, their, uh, Marcello's empire, his billion-dollar empire, into Dallas. You only have to go so far as to know that Joe Campisi, who worked for for uh, Marcello in Dallas was the first visitor to Jack Ruby when he was in, in, at jail. He told him, hey, Melvin Belli's coming in to protect you. Then Belli comes in. Oswald's already been silent. Um, and he tells uh, Ruby, uh, hey, uh, Belli's going to come in and defend you. Belli goes to trial. He won't let him testify. He makes him look crazy. And that closes the door. So what's interesting then, and, and I do agree with David about this, the CIA may have very well had something to do with it. In Fighting for Justice, the new book, I found and was contacted by a legislative assistant named Morris Wolf for one of the Warren Commission members, Senator John Sherman Cooper of Kentucky. And Mr. Uh, uh, Mr. Mr. Wolf had contacted me. He saw a presentation of mine at the Allen Library near Dallas, and he said, I knew Dorothy Kilgallen. And so I got on the phone with him, and I was just amazed because uh, he started telling me about Senator Cooper. And Senator going with Senator Cooper uh, to the Warren Commission hearings. And Sean, I was writing as fast as I could because he said, you know, I was in the sob with him and we went to the hearings. And here's what here's what the senator told me, among other things. They, the commission members, already know about Jack Ruby's connections to organized crime, but they don't want to touch it. It's more than Oswald, but Hoover and Chief Justice Earl Warren keep pushing the Oswald alone conclusion. Our new president, Lyndon Baines Johnson, wants to cover up and move on. They want to bury the truth under a pile of stones. And then here was the rationale of these seven men who decided to put out a report, Oswald alone, that has lived to this day and is as ludicrous then as it was before. They, the commission members, say this Oswald alone conclusion is good for God and country, but there is internal corruption. I don't know why. And what solidified that account you know, Dorothy Kilgallen looked for little things. Uh, she didn't believe, she interviewed Ruby. She didn't believe some of the little things that he told her about having just happened to be uh, at the Dallas basement when Oswald was shot. Uh, she said, you know, I used to go to parties at Senator Cooper's home in Georgetown. And you know, Mr. Shaw, I sat right next to Dorothy Kilgallen. And I gulped because what are the chances of something like that? You know, I didn't know what the word crowdsourcing meant. 
Sean, uh, a few weeks ago until on a, during a presentation, somebody mentioned, I throw all this stuff out. There's seven and a half to eight million views of my presentations on the, on the, on the internet, on YouTube and all of that. And people get in touch with me like Morris Wolf. And he said, you know, uh, Mr. Shaw, uh, Dorothy was right there. She was a bright light bulb. And she kept interrogating me during the dinner, asking me what Senator Cooper was doing at the commission and all of that. And, and he, she, he said, yeah, she told me about the corruption. And she's the one who gave me the Warren Commission Ruby testimony. So all of that fit together to me. Now, all of this malarkey lately about the CIA, you know, recruiting Jack Ruby and recruiting Lee Harvey Oswald. I don't know if that's true or not. It's never really been proven about Ruby. But all I know is that Dorothy used common sense as I've tried to do. And, and she had, had gone ahead and used that thread. 60 election, uh, Marcella deported. Marcelo needs to kill uh, JFK, but if he does that, the government will come after him with everything you know, they have. So you kill, J you orchestrate JFK's death so Bobby Kennedy will be powerless. That's exactly what happened. Never went after those guys. Then Bell Eyes brought in and Ruby and all of that together and closed up it all. So, you know, I go down that road, not saying that, that David's wrong about anything he's saying. It, it does make an awful lot of sense. One more thing. In the, I take the reader right in the Warren Commission hearings, and the bad guy, David, is Alan Dulles. There, I put the audio tapes in my in my book. I totally agree with that. Just one more. I, I in my in, in the book I put in the audio tapes that you can you can find the transcriptions of J of uh, J Edgar Hoover, and uh, and uh, and LBJ picking the members of the commission, and they picked only people that they thought would go along with the Oswald alone. Uh, conclusion. And one of them was Alice, Alan Dulles. And the reason he was brought in was so that he would protect uh, the, the, uh, the investigation of the, the CIA. And I have documents in the book that show that Senator Cooper uh, kept saying, well, uh, wait a minute, Earl Warren and, and LBJ know about the CIA, but they're not doing anything about it. And I'm going to resign. I have his letter of resignation that he was going to send and all of that. So uh, while I believe that Dorothy was right, really, Focusing in on Ruby, not Oswald, but also uh, that that uh, Alan Dulles now needs to really be focused in on because he was the one that really kept us some, from knowing in the Warren Commission documents, and I've looked at every single one of them, from, from really uh, knowledge of, of what the CIA's involvement was in the JFK assassination. Can, can I respond to that? Uh, Go for it. All right. And, and I... I agree, Mark, in terms of mafia involvement, but I, but I also, and, and obviously Mark Shello, but I also think, you, again, it's almost like, where's the genesis of this? And I think that's where we might have some disagreement. I mean, uh, the, the, there is interconnectivity there, though. I mean, with Mark Shello was tight with Clint Murkison, the most powerful oil right-wing fanatic in Dallas. He was connected with with uh, Hoover. They met They met in the... Uh, the uh, the Hotel Del Charo, which I believe uh, Murkison owned in California. They, th th these people were interconnected. Now, you mentioned Dulles, uh, and, and I would say this, you know, the mob, I, I can't see the mob as the central driver in terms of, you know, certainly there as a part of this picture, but I, I can't see the mob's ability to control the cover-up Again, the manipulation of the autopsy, the, the ability at the highest levels to control the evidence. I think you need 
I think you need a, a, a power above them. Now, that's where Mark and I might disagree. But I will say this. Here's a, in terms of some of the documents I've looked at, uh, there's a critical relationship between uh, William Harvey of the CIA and Johnny Roselli. Uh, and and they're, they're, that connection is critical. I've, there's a lot of documents about that, what was going on between Roselli as a liaison between the mob and Harvey, who was, I think, one of the central, if you want to call them mechanics or players and all this in, in, operationally. Uh, you have to look at that. You mentioned Alan Dulles. Uh, again, I've, I've spent time on some of the new documents. I know we want to try to look into some of that relevancy, too. Uh, there's a, the, one of the most recently documents that came out uh, is, is, a is a classified memo in 1964 sent to then uh, from Richard Helms to then private citizen Alan Dulles before the Warren Commission came out about a book by, an early, I believe, an early British author named Buchanan pointing out that, hey, these people are writing these books. We must go after them. Why, why does Helms feel necessary to send to a private citizen, then Alan Dulles, about pushing back on some of the early authors who were beginning to question the potential mm -hmm. results of the Warren Commission? It showed that Dulles was in control of the cover-up from the get-go. And, and and I, these are just some things. But again, I look for interconnectivity and, and, you know, we can argue about Genesis, if you want to call it that. But the, the and I and I, I and I've got your book, by the way, Mark, on, and I actually talk about the Kilgallen story a little bit in my classes. She certainly right. was an important part of this story and tragically right. how she died, obviously, under right. suspicious circumstances. It certainly is an important story. She had access to Ruby. And yes, Ruby is at the center of these things. Good Ruby, for you. Thank you. Bless you. And one of the most important documents that came out in the last four or five years is associated with Jack Ruby. Uh, an FBI informant suggested on the day of the assassination that Ruby said, let's go down and, and well, I'm going to go down and watch the fireworks today on the morning of the assassination. Jack Ruby had foreknowledge of the assassination. He is, he is a part of this story. Well, they were scared to death of Dorothy Kilgallen. Uh, in the audio tapes, you'll hear them talk about, oh, my gosh, what's the dirty columnist going to do now and all that. And, you know, you can, you can see, by the way, on the cover of the book, Alan Dulles, or excuse me, Don, John Sherman Cooper, everybody else is standing here and kind of showing, you know, they're no problem with showing their faces. Alan, or, uh, John Sherman Cooper is over here hiding. Uh, he's next to Alan Dulles over here, and he's hiding behind another member. He was so embarrassed with what they were doing. And John Sherman Cooper, the senator, was a very, very close friend of, of JFK. Uh, you know, this whole thing with secrecy, you know, if we can, Sean, just talk a little bit about these documents that have been uh, released uh, last week or so or whatever. I've gone through most of all of them using a search engine and everything. David probably has as well. Uh, it's amazing. There, there's no, there's, there's 12 mentions of Ruby. There's a zillion, a zillions of, of Oswald. There's none of LBJ. There's none of Alan Dulles. There's none of any of these guys, Earl Warren. There's nothing in there. Now, there's 4,000 documents that weren't released. And, and they basically said some would be unheld under, uh, withheld under court seal or grand jury secrecy or whatever. What is still being hidden after 60 years? 
And it doesn't help researchers and historians like, uh, like David and I when we don't get all the facts and the American people don't get all the facts. Because uh, for whatever reason, the, the, the documents that we've been given over the years uh, still don't provide a narrative to knowing exactly what happened uh, back then. And, and I do want to mention one more thing. Uh, you mentioned, the, 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 I think, a guest or something was going to talk about, or no, your book called uh, um, About the Predators. Well, you know, you need to add the, the two Kennedy guys, uh, Joe, uh, uh, JFK and Bobby, to that list. In the new book, I have a, I quote a book called The Kennedy Neurosis, and it talks about J uh, Joe Kennedy having told the, the kids, you know, uh, wait, the, the wives are really uh, necessary for two reasons. One is to have children, and the other two is to campaign when you're running for office. I mean, they were womanizers to the X degree. But also, what did they do when the Warren Commission report, Warren Commission was convened? They used Katzenbach, Nicholas Katzenbach, the assistant attorney general, to write letters to the Warren Commission members. And, and this, is, this is proven in my book, Fighting for Justice. Don't look into anything except the, uh, the Oswald alone, uh, you know, conclusion. Well, why did they do that? Because Joe didn't want them to be looking into the 1960 election fix. And Bobby Kennedy didn't want them to look into anything he was doing, including his complicity, as I have proven in Collateral Damage, my other book in Fighting for Justice, his involvement in the Marilyn Monroe uh, uh, death. So everybody on that commission had something to lose, but LBJ, he did just like David's right. They didn't want him to go back and they didn't want the commission to go back and look into his oil dealings and everything else like that. You know, Earl Warren had some uh, skeletons in his closet, but the main one was J. Edgar Hoover. He didn't want them, you know, in those audio tapes. Well, we can't let other investigations happen, not in Congress, not in Dallas, anything else like that. And so they only pick people that are going to keep them on that road to that Oswald alone conclusion, which I believe is the most alarming example of government corruption in history. They, they just basically deliberately lied to the world about the truth as, as they could have discovered about the JFK assassination. I'm just going to well, ask the viewers a quick question. One, one, one second, David. So wherever you are watching this, YouTube, Facebook, um, you know, obviously there was a number of interests that wanted to get Kennedy out of the way. So wherever you are in the world watching this, put a one if you think the CIA played a more important role. Put a two if you think the mafia played a more important role than the CIA. Put that in the chat so we can see what the viewers think. Well, let me just put this to both of you guys because we interviewed Michael Francis and his dad gave him a perspective on it about the mafia role. And from my own research as well, I found that there's a world where the CIA and the mafia coexist, where they contract mafia guys, and then the chain of causation ends with the mafia instead of it being traced back to the CIA. Do you think something like that could have been at play? Oh, definitely. I, again, that goes right back to the uh, what I just mentioned earlier with the Roselli-Harvey uh, relationship. And of course, uh, the recruitment of, of Roselli uh, by Mayhew initially. I, I've seen in the declassified documents of the CIA actually admitting, uh, you know, they were going to recruit uh, these individuals for gangster type actions. That's a that's a quote. Excuse me, my phone went off. Uh, and that's a quote coming right out of the documents 
uh, about recruiting the mob for gangster type actions. And of course, they were directed at Castro and the Castro plots, it's well known, uh, and solicitation of the mob in that respect. So, uh, you're you right, you're right to turn that off so it doesn't keep going. Take, let me take, just take break, let me just break I'll, I'll in just on. announce the results. Mark, you want to join uh, in here? Uh, uh, yeah. uh, that's actually we've a got, we've, got most, we've, got, we've got mostly ones um, in the votes from the viewers, which means they believe that the CIA played a bigger role in the mafia. Well, they're just dead wrong, okay, Sean? <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, let, let me point out something because I don't want to forget this. I don't want to forget this. Uh, in the documents that I found about Senator John Sherman Cooper, and, and people again can read about him and fighting for justice and what he said and everything. But the most important thing in there, and David, I want your reaction on this. At one point, he and uh, uh, Senator Richard Russell of Georgia, as they got down to when they were going to uh, finalize the report, demanded a dissent exactly. or, or minority report. And it basically was saying that they did not believe in the so-called silver, silver bullet theory that one man was involved and all of that. And they got a guarantee from LBJ and J. Edgar Hoover that that would be in the final report. And obviously, as we know, it wasn't. Think about how history would have changed if that minority report, you know, some deviation from Oswald alone with the silver bullet theory and so on and so forth, if that dissent would have been in there, but the discussion over the years would have been completely different. People wouldn't, you know, would have been able to stop it. My books are stop and think. They would have been able to stop and think about, wait a minute, that dissent makes a lot of difference here. We know to need to go this way or that way. But as I'm sure David will agree, they couldn't put that dissent in there, Hoover and LBJ. They couldn't let people go in any other direction but Oswald alone. Oswald alone. And that's why we have that big lie uh, to today. Well, uh and let's point out, you, not just those two, but Hale Boggs. Boggs was, Boggs was not in agreement, a third commissioner, with, with the conclusions either. I mean, and, and it's easy to understand why. I mean, fundamentally, who can, who can with a, although some people try, who can rationally with their mind, if they actually take any kind of real close look at the single bullet theory, can conclude anything but the impossibility of it. And without the 60 years down the road, without the single bullet theory, it's still the linchpin of any Oswald alone scenario. You can't have a lone nut without the single bullet theory. And as I said, it only takes a few minutes of anybody with a rational mind that looks at that evidence can say, this does this is improbable, somewhere between improbable and impossible that it could have happened. And then, then you have to look elsewhere. But the war but back then, David, back then, you know, back then in the 60s, we believed everything. Exactly. We believed that Marilyn Monroe committed suicide. Well, she didn't. I mean, it didn't even close to it. We believed that Dorothy Kilgallen overdosed on drugs. It didn't happen. JFK and all of that. The relevancy, yeah. in my opinion today, and people ask me all this time, why do we care about the JFK assassination? Because what happened, and I think you'll agree with this, both of you, the right, we didn't question anything back then. People didn't question those things. They believed the, the you know, everything that, that they believed the media, they believed the, 
the Warren Commission. They believed all of that. Nobody asked the question. So I say to people today, don't take anything at, at face value. Now, what I say, David or Sean, or any, do your own research. Don't go to Wikipedia, for God's sakes, because it's been a mess in terms of everybody going in there, putting in what they want. Ask questions about your, your politicians, about the elections, everything else that way, because that didn't happen. And it didn't happen with the other deaths that David mentioned with, uh, you know, with uh, Bobby Kennedy in 68 and Malcolm X and all of that. It, those, those cases just came and went out the window and nobody really asked the, the right questions. And I hope people will learn from what happened back then and ask the right questions today. Guys, where did the, where did the, bullets, where did the bullets come from? David? Well, I, you know, I, the question might be better. Where did the bullets come from? I, I feel like, you know, a lot. I am not the, the premier ballistics expert guy. I'm more of a witness and, and, and narrative guy. But I, I think it's pretty safe to say that there were multiple shooters in Dealey Plaza. There's evidence, obviously, from the grassy knoll. That some can make a case from the storm drain from below. From the, and some have evidence of a shots from the other side of the street and behind. So it'll, it'll and it makes sense as I as I always tell my class, if you're going to kill the president, you better get kill the president. You better not send one one guy or one team out there. I, I think it was a it was a professional military hit with multiple shooters from multiple directions. They were going to make sure that JFK did not walk out of that Dealey Plaza alive. And that's that's the rational conclusion. And I've talked to people who are gun experts, who are snipers, sharpshooters, and you get the same thing. And also you have to know there's a, was a small, finite group of professional shooters in the world that could have pulled those shots off or would have been the people you would have selected. Uh, they, they're, there's not a lot of – there were not a lot of them around in those days. But they're well, – not not to belittle your question, but I, I really believe, you know, your your producer actually knows I can barely handle email. So I'm not a person that gives any opinion about how many bullets or whatever, anything. But I think what has happened is that so much attention has been looked at, you know, has been focused on all that, that people don't see the big picture. You know, I, I don't know exactly what happened in Daily Plaza. All I know is that Dorothy Kilgallen, when she went to uh, Dallas, and I have a photograph in Fighting for Justice of her in the courtroom and in Dealey Plaza. She interviewed um, Jerry, Jesse, uh, Jesse Curry, the uh, Dallas police chief, and he told her that when he heard the shots, where did he send his officers? Not to the book depository, not to the grassy knoll, to the overpass. And that would have been a, a perfect place for what David's talking about, experts who, who knew how to, to handle a rifle and could shoot from there because, uh, you know, Bobby Kennedy is the one that talked JFK into leaving the bubble off the top of the limousine. That's, that's something that people don't know. Well, he was just a sitting duck. If you go to Dealey Plaza, you know there's only one way in and one way out. I mean, he was just a sitting duck. And so if you look closely, I think Jesse Curry's, uh, what he told Dorothy Kilgallen makes a lot of sense, that those shots could have easily come from the overpass. What about the autopsy then? How was that manipulated? Well, I can speak to that just because uh, I, I'm sure David knows. I think the most uh, reliable source there is uh, is uh, Dr. Cyril Wecht. 
who is as acclaimed a forensic scientist as we have had in history. I've interviewed him for all of my books. He gave me a nice endorsement for fighting for justice and all that. He told me the, the autopsy, it, it, it was like, should anything about the autopsy or the Warren Commission should be in the fiction area of any library or bookstore, okay? <laughs> because it doesn't make any sense. But look at, look at what Hoover did. Immediately when they take the body to Parkland, he won't let anybody look at it at all. The autopsy should have been done in Dallas. That's where the president dies, but what does he do? He brushes uh, J poor Jackie aside and they take it to Washington, D.C. And as uh, Cyril Weck uh, told me, uh, these were three, I believe they were Navy, um, you know, forensics uh, people who, who did the autopsy. And nobody knows exactly what they did and what they didn't do. And all at once, you know, uh, we're, we're on to the uh, burial of JFK without ever having uh, an adequate, uh, you know, adequate autopsy. I will mention this, in all of the cases I ever tried as a criminal defense lawyer, and I think it's true in the deaths of Marilyn Monroe and JFK and Dorothy, if you want to if you want to cover up a murder, falsify the autopsy. That's exactly. all you have to do. Yeah. And that's where they started with this. Hoover was smart. He, you know, Hoover had an awful lot to lose because he's shouting Oswald alone, Oswald alone. He can't be he can't be, um, you know, criticized for that, because remember, if it's a lone nut, the FBI can't be held responsible. And I don't use the C word. If there was a plot to kill the president, then the FBI can be held responsible from the get go. Hoover was going to cover this up and he's gotten it away. He, he got away with it uh, from that time on all the way through the Warren Commission and beyond. Well, I've, I think the one place you can turn when we talk about the autopsy is the uh, in the late 1990s, Doug Horn was an, a uh, investigator of the United States government uh, assigned by the Assassinations Review Board who actually d deposed many of the autopsy doctors. And, okay. and he found some explosive things associated with the autopsy that are just impossible to ignore. Primarily, most of the people who saw JFK's wounds uh, at both Parkland and in Bethesda saw that the fact that the back of Kennedy's head was blown out. There was a fist-sized hole in the back of JFK's head. Yet the official autopsy photograph shows that same back of his head intact. When some of the people associated with that were brought in later on in the late 1990s, they they basically said, that's not the, that's not the wounds I saw, that this, this photograph had been tampered with. So it's pretty clear that the autopsy messed with the direction of the shots as, as simply as I can put it. It's, it is obviously more complicated, but yes, I agree that with, uh, with Mark, the, uh, the autopsy was manipulated in some form or fashion. And, that's, and that speaks to the level of power necessary. People don't just go out and manipulate wounds of the president of the United States. That's committing treason. You, how much cover do you have to have? If you're a doctor, whomever did this, how much cover in terms of power did you have to have if you were willing to commit to these things and, and basically commit treason when that happened? Excellent. Excellent. All right. Let's go over to the cover-up then. We've got about 20 minutes left. And if any of the viewers have got any questions for Mark or David, please put them in the chat. Well, as far as cover-ups go... Uh, the the king of that was joe kennedy all right he, he he could cover up anything and you know chappaquiddick he could cover up 
anything with Bobby and Marilyn Monroe. I've got all that in, in my books in terms of Bobby being there on the day that Marilyn was going to uh, go to the media about matters of national security that uh, that Bobby and JFK had told her about. Uh, they're going to they're going to assassinate uh, Castro, all of that. He covered all of that up uh, when when JFK was killed. Uh, he knew what happened, in my opinion. He knew that his uh, appointing Bobby Kennedy attorney general and going after Marcelo and the mafia guys, you couldn't do that. If you if you want to see an interesting photograph, go look at when Ted Kennedy is showing Joe Kennedy uh, a copy of the New York Times with the headline JFK assassination, assassinated. And Joe, Joe Kennedy just goes like that. I mean, he knew. He knew what had happened. Bobby Kennedy Jr. had said that his father uh, knew it was uh, the, the guy from New Orleans. Uh, I thought they would get one of us, but I thought it would be me. But Joe Kennedy was involved with all of that. So if you take uh, people with power like Joe Kennedy and people with extreme power like J. Edgar Hoover, and you add to that perhaps, and I'll, I'll admit this, you add somebody like Alan Dulles, you know, JFK had fired uh, Alan Dulles as, as CIA director, and then they put him on the Warren Commission. David's right. This this power that was involved here, boy, they were just determined to cover up anything that would lead the American people in the world away from that Oswald alone verdict. David, well, you know, I, I don't. I'm not as big an advocate as Joe Kennedy being in the middle of everything as Mark is, but I'll, I'll, you know, we'll we'll have some agree to disagree on some of that stuff, but. I mean, that, that, that's primarily his focus. It's not mine. I, I, but I feel like, again, when we talk about talk about a, a cover-up and its existence, you know, I, I feel like, you know, I, I, let me just point to some of the recent documents that have come out, because that's been my focus, is that, you know, a, 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 there's no doubt within the circles of power, there was a, a, a circulating narrative of, uh, uh, Mark mentioned uh, Katzenball, who was, you know, obviously became Johnson's guy after the death of JFK. Uh, we've long known as a statement that the public must be satisfied that Oswald acted alone. But but that it didn't stop there. J. Edgar Hoover, in one of the new documents, said, is suggesting the same thing within, you know, a, a, within hours or days of the assassination. Uh, Bill Moyers, one of Johnson's AIDS is circulating the same narrative. It's almost like it's group speak right away. But then let's, let's go to a 1993 document, uh, which may be one of the most important documents ever to come out on the JFK assassination, uh, which basically is a conversation between Lyndon Johnson and J. Edgar Hoover. And it's, it's at a point in time after the assassination, but they have, they have Lee Oswald in custody. He's still alive. Hoover calls Johnson and says, look, the guy we have in, in custody now is not the same guy on tapes and conversations in Mexico City in September of 63. So at the very same time, that should have been, if this was a legitimate investigation, that should have exploded everything. Oswald's not just a lone nut. He's in Mexico City. He's being or, or he's being impersonated by somebody in Mexico City in one of the spy capitals of the world. What's going on here? Who's behind this guy? And yet at the same time where they had this information that Oswald was being impersonated in Mexico City, they're releasing this this coverall statement that Oswald must be public must be satisfied that Oswald acted alone. 
the government cover up was engaged almost immediately by Hoover and Johnson. Uh, I, I think that's I think that's important to note. And I'd like to mention one more quick thing too, because this has come out recently about we talked about theories in the past year. The CIA, the ex Cold Warrior named R. James Woolsey, uh, released a book last year suggesting that Russia did it. You know, you still got the Russia did it people running around. Uh, I found a document in, in the declassified documents from an inside source that the United States government had inside the Kremlin. The source was codenamed Shamrock. In the middle of the 1960s, Shamrock was sending information back that the Russians actually mourned the death of Kennedy. Right. That they, it was somebody that they, they, they could work with, that they, they were deeply in grieving the fact that JFK had been shot. They suggested the military industrial complex, the ultra right wing, Johnson. They had a lot of, they had a lot of, speaking speaking of the KGB, they had a lot of uh, individuals they suspected inside the United States. And let's keep in mind that's not Russian propaganda. That was not released to the public. That's what right. Russians on the inside felt that they admired Kennedy. There's no way the Russians would risk assassinating. It doesn't pass the rational test to me would have assassinated Kennedy at the time they were moving towards rapprochement and peace. Uh, you know, you know the, the JFK's uh, uh, speech at, uh, at American University in 1963 reaching out to the Russians. No, that doesn't add up. It's, it's more disinformation from the CIA. Well, I, I have that document too, David. And, and boy, you've led right into something that I think is critical here. You know, no, I'm, I, like you. I'm like you. I like I, 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 I make sure. When I have uh, hearsay evidence, just as I did in the courtroom when I tried criminal cases, mostly all murder cases, um, you, you want to ha you're going to have to say to a judge, I can confirm what was said here so that that can be admitted. So what I did with John Sherman Cooper, the senator that I said took us right inside the Warren Commission hearings is go see his oral histories. One is at the University of Kentucky, one's at the University of Georgia. And I found and I will send this to you, David, a Cooper memo. Uh, 5th of December, 1963, and it fits into right what you were talking about with that conversation between LBJ and Hoover. He writes, this is a United States uh, memorandum. Warren, Chief Justice Warren asked about the CIA. Did they have anything? When I, was, when I told him of Mexico and Nicaragua, he mentioned five people as McCone had told me. He knew all I did and more about the CIA. A strange thing is happening. Warren and Katzenbach know all about FBI and, the, and, and CIA and they are apparently and others planning to show Oswald only one who should even be considered. This to me is an untenable position. I must insist on outside counsel. And that's when he wrote this letter to LBJ offering to resign. He was so disgusted. You know, Morris Wolf told me, and, and David probably knows this, um, when he went to the hearings with the senator, he sat in the back of the hearing room waiting for him. And Morris said, you know what I was amazed at uh, was there weren't any members there listening to the hearings. It was all staff members. And why did they do that? Because they could control the staff members. They couldn't control uh, some, of the, uh, some of the members that they'd appointed to the commission. And yeah, so they, you can just see how they were they were able to manipulate all of this. But this document is so damaging. 
they, they know about the CIA and the FBI, uh, Warren did and all of that, and they just closed it down, Sean. It's despicable conduct, in my opinion. Now, Dulles was the one guy, who, and I think Mark will agree, was the one guy who was there a lot at those meetings, controlling everything. Sure. Other, then many of the others, obviously, were seldom around. Uh, I'd like to, in, in the, in the, in the just the remaining few minutes, I, I, and, and again, Mark and I might have some agreement or disagreement on that, but I think it's important to talk about who Oswald was because I, you know, he's he's at the center of this as well. I mean, and I, to me, over the years, I, I feel like the, from a historical perspective, I think he will go down and was one of the most misinterpreted individuals in history. I, I believe and that the evidence shows that Oswald was a manipulated low-level intelligence operative passed around by different agencies. He was a, clearly an FBI informant. He made, kept making contacts with the FBI. I think, I think it is most likely that, that Lee Harvey Oswald believed he was infiltrating a plot in Dallas, that that was his mission, not knowing that, well, he became the plot in essence. He became the center of it. He became the patsy. Uh, I think it's why I believe he was an informant. One of the reasons I believe he's an informant, uh, uh, a, a, an F, uh, a, the first black Secret Service agent named Abraham Bolden, who JFK brought in to us to, to, as, as part of his team, as, who is still alive, has pointed out that, uh, that, of course, there were other plots against JFK, a, a plot that was foiled in Chicago prior to the, the assassination in Dallas. And Bolden has gone on record that a informant, quote unquote, an informant named Lee warned us about what was going on in Chicago. I believe Lee Harvey Oswald was a man who was actually trying to stop these plots. And he then he becomes the villain. Uh, it's a it's really a, a tragic case in American history. And, and now now Mark may have a different view of that. He may have, of course, Oswald had had the connections with the mob, and, I, and I, he may have a different point of view as, as where Oswald stands on that. Everybody's got a different perspective. Well, of course I do. I can't agree with you on everything, okay? Come on. Okay. <laughs> Listen, I, I think, I think uh, Dorothy Kilgallen had it right. You know, Oswald's such a confusing figure. He and is. so she focused, she focused on Ruby. I, I'm afraid that we give Oswald much more intelligence than that isn't appropriate. But, but interesting, Sean, to me is that David hit on it. You know, one of the most honest, uh, most truthful statements about the JFK assassination may be that photo of Lee Harvey Oswald saying, I am a patsy. I am a patsy. Uh, you know, yeah. and, and it, 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 you know, everybody looked at it like, oh, yeah, well, sure, you know, and you're just saying that and everything. But, you know, it's, it's it, to me, I, uh, Oswald, again, Dorothy felt like it, it was Jack Ruby. For people that don't know, uh, she took her uh, JFK assassination documents back to New York City. I'm going to crack the case wide open. If the wrong people knew what I know about the JFK assassination it would cost me my life. I'm afraid for my wife and family. I'm buying a gun. And about two weeks later, she was found dead of an alleged overdose in a bedroom she never slept in uh, under very mysterious circumstances. No, uh, no uh, uh, investigation at all. No, the autopsy was flawed and all of that. She was writing a book for Random House. And uh, that book was going to be a tell-all book about the assassination. 
and they couldn't let her write that book, that's for sure. She knew about the corruption with the Warren Commission. She talked to Ruby. She had it all. And so, unfortunately, um, this, this true patriot, in my opinion, who was really trying to find the truth, uh, was silenced because they, you know, that was, that was another loose end that, couldn't, uh, that they couldn't handle. So uh, Dorothy Kilgallen, again, in my opinion, is a real hero with regard to this. And, and you know the answer to this question before I, before I ask it. You know, she wrote all these columns about the JFK assassination. You can see them in Fighting for Justice. You can see them in the other book. I'll bet you, uh, if I ask you this question, you'll know the answer before uh, you, you, you answer. And that is, uh, was Dorothy Kilgallen interviewed by the Warren Commission? No. Absolutely not. They wouldn't have let her get within a million miles of the commission. Because again, she's going this way with, uh, you know, a plot to kill the president. And they're going to the Oswald alone situation. So unfortunately, uh, and then, of course, on, on the day she died, on the morning she died, uh, J. Edgar Hoover sent agents or those portraying to be agents to her apartment and, and uh, at, at, in a raid and took all of her JFK assassination documents, which I've tried to find everywhere that I possibly can. They're still missing. I'm hoping that one day uh, we'll find those. But Hoover decided that was something he had to do as well. Those documents could never be seen that, that Kilgallen had, had uh, were a result of her investigation. Hey, uh, can I, Sean, I know we've just got a couple minutes left. And I, and I know one of the, the important things that you brought up was, you know, how, how the media treated this. I, I'd really like to talk about that, that the kind of a quick narrative of how the media in the United States has treated this story for the past 60 years and where we're at right now. And, yeah, and yeah. I think it's extremely important. I'd like to just spend a couple minutes on that if I could. And, and yeah, uh, go for it. I mean, uh, and I, I think you have to look at the very beginning. I think, first of all, the media dropped the ball initially. They bought hook, line, and sinker, the whole Warren Commission version. Except for Dorothy. Been, except for Dorothy. Yeah, except for Dorothy. Okay. And and, and there might have been and then there might have been, then we have to look at the fact that the CIA's actions that helped do that. I mean, what Mark's talking about, how they were aggressively going after Dorothy Kilgallen. Uh, Mark Lane, uh, the, the Buchanan, Lane, yeah. early book on the JFK, Joaquin, I've, I've seen documents on these people who are all viciously attacked or even more so in the case of possibly Kilgallen. Uh, and then, of course, you had uh, Mockingbird, which was the, basically that the, by the 1950s and 60s into the 1970s, the CIA established hundreds of media assets who were writing basically the company line for the for the across the country, they had compromised the United States media and they were writing friendly stories, attacking uh, the, the term conspiracy buff came directly from the, from the uh, CIA and was mm -hmm. and, and advanced as, as a credo in the media. And then I think over time that just became the tradition. Then we've had the issue about, well, we don't want to be considered to be conspiracy theorists. And so I think the media has tended to stay away from that as well. But I think one positive that's come out lately is that uh, just in the last, just this whole last release, I think is important. I've seen a sea change uh, across the media somewhat. Now, of course, they're looking and focusing at the CIA. And, that, and, and of course, Mark, 
I think that's an oversimplification, and Mark kind of thinks that's the wrong direction to look, but at least they're looking somewhere. And mm-hmm. and uh, they're for the first time, and it's, and it's across the spectrum. Of course, Tucker Carlson on a conservative media line actually brought up a story, and he said, said he talked to a CIA guy who says the CIA may have did it and why the document. And, but even, you can go on the left and look at MSNBC. They've been running programs. They've been open to the idea of conspiracy. It's all over Twitter. Uh, you know, for the first time, people are, are not just dismissing the JFK story as, mm-hmm. as a conspiracy fringe anymore. I think from a positive, and the mm-hmm. longer they keep withholding these documents, I think the momentum's going in that direction in a positive way for us to be bringing more attention to this story that needs to be told the correct way. And that, David, one more thing, Sean. Okay. David, let's make sure we praise people like Sean, who, who you know, permit That's us to definitely. come on a program like this and talk about these issues and everything. So bless you, Sean, for, for doing this, because so many people, you know, wouldn't want David and I on their program no matter what. So thank you for letting us speak out about this. Appreciate well, your time. Huge, huge thank you for both of you guys' this time. And just let me ask the viewers, Put a one in the chat if you'd like to see Mark and David back. Put a two in the chat if you don't ever want to see him again. So, Mark and David, could you please just tell the viewers where they can find you, support you, and get your books and stuff? David. Go ahead, Mark. You can start off, man. All right. Well, my uh, my uh, website is markshawbooks.com. All the books up there, including the new one, Fighting for Justice. My email address is mshawin at yahoo.com and i answer every single email i get so many tips for my uh my books and my research come from that and so please get in touch with me and i will get back to you all right uh, mine's very easy uh jfk historical group uh it's a it's a, our website where we promote many of the conferences i have and i would very much uh, we were probably going to have one in april in memphis tennessee we bring some of the top researchers around the country. We also have one every in every November in Dallas. We always do those on Zoom. We would love to have. We've had many people from Europe join in on us on Zoom uh, for our conferences. Uh, many of my, my articles that I have written are also on my website at the JFK Historical Group, and I invite everyone to visit that. And again, I really appreciate the time. Mark, it was it's fun going back and forth with you, man. I enjoyed it. And and I've read some of your book. It's sitting over on my shelf to my right. I may just go back and look at it some more after we're done. Well, yeah, get busy, okay? Get busy. Come on. Because Kilgallen is a fascinating character. She really yeah. is. And just to let you know, the viewers have voted almost 100% that they want you guys to come back on the show. So Yay! Appreciate it. Thank you. Man, really, Thank I you had very fun. much, Mark and David. Thank John, you. appreciate it. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks. Right. So that is the first hour of the six-hour Mega Marathon Christmas live stream. Let's bring in the hurry-backed one himself. Andrew Gold. Hello, mate. How you doing? (laughs) Mate, I'm so ill and I've come here because I love everyone so much. I've turned up anyway. (laughs) What has he done? (laughs) (laughs) He's a work, he's a, a, what what do you call it? A work something, a tyrant. 
He likes to flog us workhorses. <laughs> I've just, I've literally just had my face in Vic's vapor, like a bowl of oh. Vic's vapor, because I want to get through this without coughing. And I, I told Ash last night, and he just didn't reply. He was just, dis you know, he was just disappointed in me for being unwell. So I'll steam through <laughs> How it. How dare you? How dare you? <laughs> right, I'm oh. going to sod off and leave you to Wilfred Riley. Please do. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers. Right, is Wilfred, is Wilfred on the screen there? I think so. Yeah, so I've got Wilfred Riley here, everyone, the author and professor, associate professor of political science at Kentucky State University. Wilfred, how are you doing? Uh, doing pretty well. What about you? I am doing pretty well as well. So I, we're going to be talking about Elon Musk and his battle for free speech. But also, I've seen you've written this book, Taboo, T 10 Facts You Can't Talk About. And I wondered if you wouldn't mind telling me about some of, some of those facts. Uh, well, the ones that if there are any that are appropriate for Sean's channel that don't have any buzzwords that will get, get his video taken down? Well, I don't think any of them uh, really will do that. The, the facts are all sort of almost mundane things about race and class relations, but just sort of stuff you're not supposed to talk about. So the, the theme of the book is that I looked at the 10 most widely covered themes at that time. This is like 2019 in U.S. and U.K. media. And I looked at which ones were based in reality and which ones were frankly bullshit. And it turned out that they were all indeed bullshit. Hopefully that language is usable. But I mean, like the first chapter is, are American police, in fact, massacring young black men? Uh, I mean, obviously, at this point, you'd seen uh, Chernobyl from Black Lives Matter had gone on Fox News in primetime and said that, you know, every day an innocent, unarmed young brother is murdered. These are his words by law enforcement authorities. I mean, uh, Benjamin Crump, a well-known U.S. attorney, had written a book called Open Season, the legalized genocide of colored people, where he argued that the true number was on the order of, I believe it was a couple thousand a year. I don't want to misquote him. But actually, I dug into the databases that became the Washington Post, the Counted Project. This is all online at this point. And I mean, the total number of unarmed black people that were shot by American cops in a typical year broke down to about 20, 25. There were less than 100 unarmed men of all races killed in a typical year. The, again, the 60 to 80% majority of those every year were Caucasian or Hispanic. Those names just really weren't known. When I've spoken to, to men's audiences or athletic teams, sometimes I've said, you know, no one approves of police brutality, but can you name one white guy, for example, Irish or Italian descent that, that's been involved in one of these situations? No one ever can. Uh, Tony Tempa is someone worth looking up. Duncan Lemp, uh, quite a few of these guys. But anyway, that was the first chapter. Is this happening? And it turned out, no, the total number of really unprovoked police homicides in a typical year is maybe 50 across the entire country. The second chapter looked at, uh, again, interracial crime. At this time, we were constantly seeing these stories in the media. Some of these made their way to the UK as well. But, you know, interracial fight in a dog park and this kind of thing. The idea was that there's constant conflict going on, mostly initiated by white people. Um, what we found is that violent crime between blacks and whites is about 3% of total crime. There are almost 20 million crimes in the USA in a typical year. About uh, 600,000 of those will be violent, what we call index crimes involving either a black perp and a white victim or a white perp and a black victim. By the way, to get really taboo, quote unquote, those are about 80, 85 percent black on white. Uh, it, it cuts in the exact opposite direction from what most mainstream media consumers would probably think 
which isn't even surprising. I mean, there are more whites and they have more money. But again, the mainstream presentation of this was just totally false. And I go through a bunch of other things. I mean, the alt-right on the other side of the fence, uh, systemic racism. Does that stand up when you adjust for basic things like social class, yeah, cultural appropriation, modern feminism? I mean, it's an entertaining book. But that, that essentially is, are these, are these top themes, are they supported by any reality whatsoever? And very, very often it was just no, like flat no, nothing at all. Like last sentence, but like every case involving an unarmed man, especially an unarmed black man shot by the police, was publicized. And you understand why that is, of course. But I mean, when you see people looking at this, I think the normal reaction, if you're sort of a middle class taxpayer as well, this must just be the tip of the iceberg. You know, what don't we know about? The reality is that with modern mass media, that's that's the whole iceberg. I mean, they're not missing any. They have stringers in, in these cities looking for these cases. I mean, there's, there's civilian journalists reporting them. You know, any time mm. one of these potential situations develops now, there's a crowd of guys around with cell phones. So the... The reality is that this terror many people feel about so many things isn't based on much. That, that's something I want people to get out of the book. Hmm. Yeah, I, I've, I've spoken with Coleman Hughes, who's uh, he's sort of gone back and forward a little bit. He is black himself, and he's also, I think, gone back. He at first was saying, oh, there, there was police uh, homicides, and I think he said that doesn't stand... I think it was either him or Peter Bogosian that it doesn't stand the test. I'm not sure. I suppose, like, there, the, is it right to say that there are more black people getting, you know, pulled over for checks and things like that, a pro rata? Maybe. I mean, uh, there's a guy named, well, again, so one of the points that I would make, and I make in the systemic racism chapter as well, is that before you can find racism, you have to compare almost identical people. You have to adjust for all of the different things that differ between large groups. So, for example, Asian Americans are far, including very dark skinned, drop-in Indians, Pakistanis, so on, are far less likely to be shot by the police, so on down the line, than are uh, white Americans. And I don't think that that's because there's a lack of bias against East Asians or Arabic looking people or something like that following 9-11 or the country's recent wars. It's because there's a lower crime rate there, and there are a bunch of reasons for that. I mean, a higher level of education, a higher level of age, so on down the line. So to, to even find out something like black Americans are pulled over more and that's unjust, I mean, you'd have to adjust for the fact that, I mean, the most common age for a black American is 27. Uh, for a white American, it's 58. I mean, it'd be totally fair to call that the modal average. So, I mean, when you see groups of young kids getting in brawls and so on in the USA, they're very disproportionately black and Latino. And that has something to do with social class, but it also has to do with the fact that 50% of the young people in the USA are minorities as versus, you know, far less than that of the population overall. So you'd have, you'd have to adjust for all of this crime rate and so on to see whether that even that is a valid claim. Uh, the guy I've seen who did best at this, Roland Fryer, who teaches at Harvard University, and he's a, he's a black guy. But he found that there was a slight discrepancy with everything adjusted for crime rate in the city and, you know, uh, suspect characteristics and so on, between the treatment of black people and white people. Black people were 11% more likely or something like that to be quote-unquote manhandled. They might put the cuffs on you, I mean, that's obviously not good. But what he also found was that white people were about 30% more likely to get shot and killed. So, I mean, if we're going to talk about this fairly, that that's pretty notable, that the group without that massive civil rights presence sort of riding for them 
you might be more likely to behave in a polite fashion and not get shoved against the car. But if there is a serious dispute, you're actually significantly more likely to get killed or get wounded. So uh, what we actually saw was that there wasn't a very high rate of police abuse in the first place. Um, there was more low-level abuse against minorities, but there also was more high-level abuse against whites. And again, it's hard not to think that that's because nobody knows the name of the white Trayvon Martin or Michael Brown. Um, if you are a police officer and you shoot an Italian-American or Hispanic-American guy in one of these situations, I, I'm sure no one starts the day planning to do that except for the occasional sociopath, but it's very likely that your career is not over. You know, no one's going to try to kill you. There aren't going to be marches outside the station. So that appears to be reflected in the data without stretching the numbers too far. Mm. But we didn't, nobody necessarily likes the police if you're a young man in a city and you have a beer, but we didn't find that there was a massive pattern of abuse against anyone, like looking through the articles on my end, Friars and so on. It's yeah, it's it's something that I've tried to come to terms with quite a lot recently, and I I agree with a lot of the you know it's just statistics, and you've got to deal with this in an empirical way. Uh, I've also noticed anecdotally, however, when I've been on shows, I've been on like Tim Paul, for example, or uh, one called Slightly Offensive, and these are sort of centre right shows. I come off and look at the messages after, and it is just message after message of like anti-Semitic stuff, uh, a lot of anti-black stuff, even though I'm obviously not black, but it's just there, and that's the anecdotal thing. And I'm wondering if maybe the issue here is that we're being told so often that it's systemic racism and maybe there isn't systemic racism at least not anywhere near the same levels that people are trying to suggest but there are a lot of racist people particularly in a country with 350 million people in it that you know if one percent of them are psychopaths that's still what's that i don't even know three and a half million people that are psychopaths who've all got access to twitter and i'm not sure there's all that much we can do about those people i don't want to sound defeatist but what can we do Oh, yeah. I mean, at, at that level, I, I tend to totally agree with this. I don't think that there is no racism. And I, I think that very often you get a weird dichotomy where people on the right, I'm kind of center right myself. I mean, I have a business background. I mean, you know, stuff has to work if you live in a city. I mean, I remember growing up in Chicago in the late 90s. And I mean, you know, people, this is just at the start of that sort of Giuliani, Mayor Daly era when people started enforcing the law again. So, I mean, couples would you know, get on the trains and hook up sexually. People would start painting graffiti in public spaces. It just wasn't very functional. And that, that definitely shaped part of my personality. And later, you know, marching with Occupy or even now seeing like Hoovervilles grow up in the downtowns of major American cities. I mean, there, you can't do that. You have to have some control over your borders, so on down the line. So I, I do have center right positions on this stuff, trade, taxes. But yeah, I, I do think that often with the right, you get into kind of a weird position where a number of people on that side of the fence actually are racist. But at the same time, you also get this denial that there's any racism whatsoever. So, I mean, this sort of weird, like, well, that's all in the past, isn't it? And then, yeah, you look over at the comments and it's like, we need to yeah. make America what it used to be again. You know, <laughs> my, but sure. my real take on this, though, is that this is all measurable. That's that's really one of the takeaways I want people to have from my work, whether it's scholarly or public intellectual. 
Like, it's very easy to sit down a bunch of people at desks six feet apart and just totally anonymously ask them on paper, you know, would you be willing to marry someone of a different racial group, loving marriage? Would you be willing to serve in the military under someone of a different ethnic population, work for, vote for? That's actually called the work for, vote for question. We've been using that for about 50 years. And the population of serious racists in the USA, white or black, seems to be between six and eight percent. So it, it's obviously the case that there are bigots, but hmm. the question is, when you talk about systemic racism, are those bigots, those quote unquote white trash guys or hood brothers, are they in positions of power? Are they running systems of policing that have black chiefs? And are there major differences in treatment when you adjust for differences in behavior that it's kind of taboo to talk about, thus the name? And what we generally find is, no. Um, also, I will say, by the way, there are just as many racists on the left side of the fence. I mean, if you look at some of the attitudes in Islamic communities toward Jews or blacks, I mean, if you look at some of the attitudes of blacks in the upper class or upper middle class toward whites, I mean, like everyone has bigoted mm. jackasses on their team. I mean, like there's a debate yeah. going on. I'm not sure. I mean, Islamic is the Islamic views. Are te if we're talking about conservative Islamic views, they they tend to be a bit on on the right, and I, I can see why you'd put them on the left because it's a minority, and they're often adjacent to sort of progressive lefties who want to protect what they see as a minority thing, even though it's a religious conservative thing, and it gets really complicated. So I, I do I get what you're saying. Is it fair to summarize what you're what you're saying though? Is the problem then that on both sides you talked about how the right are often ignoring the racists among them that do exist and there is racism and how the left are ignoring the facts around the systems where, you know, there doesn't seem to actually be a systemic issue there. Whereas if both people were just a little bit more honest and willing to accept a bit of responsibility on their side, we could have a more honest conversation. Well, sure. And as, as a note about the Islamic thing, I mean, a simple way to look at right and left is what part you vote for. So, I mean, there may be some tradition that's causing these attitudes. But I mean, in the USA, I mean, the Muslim vote would be post 9-11, 56%, 60% for the Democrats or even the Greens. Is that so, right? I mean, yeah. And, and that's that's something that's always surprised me, but it is, it is very measurable. And there also just a lot of this is just middle class black kids sparring at their middle class white buddies. There's quite a lot of just minority racism. And then obviously I'll get to your question. But like right now on Facebook and Twitter, there's a whole debate about whether the movie Avatar is racist against minorities, I guess, because the Navi um, are the aliens that are practicing a sort of Native American style way of life or played mostly by white people. And the comments about it from blacks and natives and so on are wildly racist. Like, yeah, you know, whites never spent any time hunting. No white people could look that beautiful and peaceful in nature. You know, the yeah. ugly city building white folk. Like you you can definitely scroll through social yeah. media and see a whole lot of idiots of whatever background. But I mean, in terms of do I think people are led by tribalism away from things that are obviously true? Yeah. Um, I mean, the best example of this to me, the, the Skeptic Research Center, and by the way, they found similar things when it comes to the right ignoring racism. I think it's a good measure from the left. Um, they asked a bunch of people how many unarmed black men they think are killed by the police in a typical year. And people that identified as leftists, I think their term is something like very liberal over to Marxist, like they use more complex language. But the average person who is very liberal thought that the, the typical number of unarmed brothers that are killed by police in a year was between 1,000 and 10,000. 
Um, and then, you, yeah, and then you just swung over to regular liberals, like anyone left of center, like your girlfriend, probably. I mean, like, what did they think? And it was a little less than that, but it was like 26.6% thought it was about 1,000. You know, 6.67% thought it was about 10,000. And then 7 or 8% thought it was more than that. And again, the actual number is 10. So, yeah, I, people definitely get inside of their sort of tribal bubble and just refuse to hear things that are not true. And th this crosses all lines. I mean, if you were to tell someone, you know, on the right, you know, I don't think Jan January 6th was an you know, almost successful insurrection, but, you know, Trump probably committed some crimes. I mean, if you went through his phone log, you'd find that there were exchanges with election officials that are technically prosecutable. You know, same for Hunter Biden or Joe Biden, of course. But I mean, like, it did this. Let's focus on him. You'd hear all kind of wild denials. Like, no, he wouldn't do that. The big guy's not that kind of person. So people are capable of saying almost anything to defend their group, yeah. I think. That tribal thing is so strong in us, that identity thing, that I fear criticizing Trump because I think I'll lose a bunch of viewers. And that's, that's, just, that's just insane because Trump is just he's monstrous as far as i'm concerned and i'm not even i'm not talking about his politics or whether he was bad for the country i just don't, i don't i never like the guy i don't like and i don't like biden either and i just feel like i've just lost two <laughs> sets of people now because yeah. of that tribal thing what was you just oh i don't know hey we should get on to to the musk stuff so elon musk is just flip-flopping back and forward i was quite excited when he first got in what's your assessment of of how he's been in charge of twitter well, I'm I'm actually a bit disappointed in Musk for the same reason that you just gave. Um, I, I think it's obvious by this point, you know, after we saw the hysterical panic under COVID, uh, after we saw Black Lives Matter, again, US, UK, quote unquote, misplaced between the two countries, something like $14 billion. The Economist put it at $11 billion, like last July. I mean, I think it's obvious as this stuff keeps going on that that sort of heterodox smart guy right has some points. But the question is, what happens when that group actually takes over leadership? So, I mean, with, with Trump and the Kushners and so on, we actually saw that in U.S. politics. And the initial idea is like, okay, let's build a border wall. Let's cut down on immigration. We're heterodox, but struck a lot of people as appealing. And then the administration itself very often just seemed corrupt and incompetent. You know, again, no offense, but that, that didn't happen. Like we didn't, in fact, build a wall. Like none of those things were done, whether you support them or not. Similarly, Elon Musk, I mean, one of the best known of like the center right, edgy, funny billionaires. He's going to Mars. He took over Twitter. I mean, my expectation was sort of competent leadership in a direction I would like. And he's gone in a direction I like, but competent leadership is, is really pretty questionable. Like, I mean, the other day he ran a poll on the site asking whether he should step down as CEO and uh, whether this was intentional or not. I mean, Twitter has a left leaning audience. And this came the day after he told all the e-girls and so on. They could no longer post links to their Instagram. You couldn't post your Facebook. So, I mean, the vote was a smashing defeat. It was 58 percent. I believe, yes, you should step down. So now he's in this weird position of does he just ignore the poll or does he step down and pick another CEO after well, three weeks. I mean, so it, the, the whole thing's been kind of circus-like. And I think that that, unfortunately, is a lot of people's impression of what happens when kind of the IDW guys take over. Um, his actual, the one thing I will say about Elon Musk that makes up for a lot of that is that the Twitter files are staggering. Like there's been an attempt to downplay this in mainstream media, but I mean, 
the thing about this that's important to me is that it's not just Twitter. Like, so Twitter had gone on the hill and essentially denied that they were using all these crazy tools to silence conservatives and heterodox voices and sex workers and so on. And almost were treating these Congress people like crazy conspiracy theorists. Like, what, what do you think we know how to do over there? Shadow banning. I mean, no, we're not taking people down to zero likes. And I mean, like what Elon Musk sent to Barry Weiss was literally the control board that they had at Twitter, where you could see the things they could put on a specific account, like Charlie Kirk's. And it was like shadow ban, ghost ban, trend ban. There were like 12 buttons you could click. This wasn't like one director could do this, like any staffer at probably the managerial level could do this. And if you look at some of the sites like Secret Bird that keep track of whether you've been shadow banned, tens of thousands of accounts, probably mostly on the right, other than, again, sect work, have had this happen to them. So you were seeing this massive regulation of the conversation that the site was just totally lying about. And kind of last thing, but the government was involved. Like we now know there was an FBI task force of 81 guys that was going through, that was going through Twitter and that was flagging just posts like quote unquote election denial, people arguing about Biden and Trump for removal. And the removal rate was 97%. So Twitter was just sort of following along with these guys and taking down posts that were flagged by the federales. Like that, that's absolutely nuts. And this went on tens of thousands of times. I mean, just multiply, you know, 81 times, you know, enough to get 97% of times 365 days. This has been going on for five years or whatever it was. So, I mean, I, I do think that's, that's pretty staggering. Why do you think the government, which I guess uh, for the last few years, but just before, is this since Biden took charge then? Because I'm just thinking if it was a right-leaning government like Trump's, then why were they pushing Twitter to delete right-leaning tweets? Well, this gets into the whole idea of the deep state. And the deep state is not some conspiracy theory. Again, like a lot of other things, like cultural Marxism by that name or another exists. Um, I.e. people want to take communist ide communist dissent ideas about patterns of power and apply them to, say, male-female relations. This is utterly non-controversial. Um, what would another example of something like this be? The left-wing political parties in the USA and Europe have cheered for mass immigration for decades because they think it'll change the population in a way that benefits the left parties. That's just a fact. I mean, Time Magazine ran a famous cover showing a beautiful sort of light-skinned black person, dark-skinned white person saying, like, by 2043, we'll all look like this. It might have been Newsweek. But th this is one of those things that's now being presented as kind of an odd, edgy theory that everyone agreed on until pretty recently, and that is that there are large, internal, competent, but partisan bureaucracies in the West. So, I mean, when a new president comes in in the United States, my day job is teaching political science, they replace the top, it's 7,320, I believe, people in the government. So like the ambassador to Finland, this sort of thing. You know, of superior court judges that are about to retire or replace. But everyone below that, I mean, the army is part of the executive branch of government. The State Department is part of the executive branch of government. There must be 8 million people in the executive branch of government. That's an estimate. But the 7,993,000 of them remain after the transition of power. So to say it was Trump's FBI that did something really doesn't mean much. 
I mean, the, the head of the FBI would be someone who served under Democrats and under Republicans and who's probably taking down criticisms of Biden and criticisms of Trump, although they have a preferred candidate. The real issue is just the, the massive regulation of speech. Like, what, what is the FBI's policy on what speech is allowable is a question worth asking um, and a question that Congress would have asked had they known what was happening. Why does the FBI have a policy on what speech is allowable? Like, we constantly yes. hear... No, sorry, sorry. No, no, but I, like that that's it. That's the question. What 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 is the secret police's policy on speech? Like that's a that's a very valid question. And what yeah, and what interest do they have? I I just, you know, people being offended, well why is it the FBI's job? Let, leave that to other people, I feel like. And I I think as you touched on before, it, it is a bit more complicated when you run something like Twitter, I'm sure you know this as well, than some, some free speech absolutists like to think because they have to think about their advertisers. It's not really up to Twitter and YouTube all the time. And I get that because I get told that all the time because I'm always rallying against it because I'm a YouTuber. It drives me mad. But I have to understand as well. I'm trying to be more understanding of the fact they have to appease certain advertisers and things. But I think what was really insidious is what exactly what you touched on is like at least be honest with us. At least tell us because YouTube employs some of the same tactics when you've been you know I, I tried to do one or two things and I was told for months you can't do that and I was like why can't I when everyone else can and they wouldn't tell me why and I'm like am I shadow banned they go we don't shadow ban and I've just it's just like well this Twitter thing's just come out and Twitter was saying the same thing for years I wouldn't mind it just tell us what the thing is because those are, maybe I would still mind it I'm not saying you know because it's still free speech and it's still but why won't they why did Twitter not tell us a friend of mine who works in this kind of text thing he said he said well because people will try and rig it if, if YouTuber for example are very clear about the rules you've broken people will try to rig the game and get around it or something like that but what, why do you think Twitter couldn't have just told people like yeah we, we did some of the shadow banning well, I think a small part of it is what you just said. Then they'd have to deal with smart Twitterzens, you know, Ben Shapiro on the one hand, or you know, somebody on the on the other hand, Meza Hassan ducking around. But I think a more serious reason is that Twitter had a strong partisan bias, and they wanted to ban and minimize certain accounts without being punished. I mean, I, I think that's it. Like, if you, there are. It's fairly easy to track whether someone's shadow banned. I mean, you can log into Twitter from a third-party account and see whether you can see them, right? That, that's a search ban. So their entire apps, I mean, I, it's not my business, but I feel I should have put together a list of them before this or something. But there are a number of apps that you can use to look at whether your account is shadow banned, ghost banned, and so on. And when you talk to one of the executives from one of these companies, this is something we're planning on doing and cut the bull pretty soon in my podcast, they'll tell you, like, I mean, the majority of the people that were targeted with this were on the political right, unless they were hookers. I mean, sex workers is a better way of putting that. But unless they were strippers, unless they were selling sex, like, it was almost entirely edgy, heterodox. They mostly happened to be Caucasian males. And I, I think Twitter likes to have the ability to do that. But one segue, by the way, here, I, I said this early on and kind of clumsily went off on another path, but the important thing about this is that it's not just Twitter. Like, one of the things that people on that kind of quantitative center right have said for years that sounded almost conspiratorial is that information is extraordinarily curated. Like, if you go to the Wikipedia page for cultural Marxism, you notice that for the past couple of years, it's been edited repeatedly every time someone tries to change it back so that it says something like this is a right-wing, anti-Semitic conspiracy theory that only Nazis would believe. This is like the first paragraph. 
And I've changed this myself and I've put in, you know, links to articles from like Tablet Magazine and academic journals saying like, you know, all controversial mm -hmm. commentary. And it's immediately, there must be some kind of warning set. As soon as you do that, it changes back almost automatically. Like very high level editors or whatever their process is must be manipulating this information. And that I'm sure is occurring throughout the entire internet. Like, does Facebook, in terms of what you see in your newsfeed, have policies similar to what Twitter did with trends? A more important one, does Google do this with their searches? Like, is there a list of sites that are quite mainstream, like the Federalist on the right or Third World Press on the left, that are considered unreliable and so are removed from search results? And I would recommend searching something mildly edgy, like black-on-white crime, on Google, and then on any other site, like DuckDuckGo, Yandex from Russia, you know, and stick to the, the political stuff you're searching on Yandex. But I mean, like even Bing, you'll find that the Google search, the mainstream approved 96% of the market search, omits like 75% of the results. So this is almost certainly going on throughout all of the information that you receive. There's an urban, coastal, center-left, upper-class bias. And that's one of the bigger stories of our time. Yeah, which is sad, really, because I, I guess my, my understanding is fairly limited, but of the pioneers of the internet, the sort of beginning, you know, they were all libertarians, weren't they? And they were all about the free speech of the internet. Yeah, well, the, the founder of Wikipedia, I believe it's a Larry Sanger. I've had some conversations with him online, and I've, been, I've looked at some of his research in passing. He won't use the site anymore. And I don't, I don't want to get into this whole, like, and it's, it's us that are being oppressed, because it's a whole bunch of people. I mean, it's the genuine, true left that talks about class instead of all this woke nonsense. I mean, again, as I've said, it's anyone who's involved in sex work or large-scale selling of something from their home. You know, it, it's a bunch of people, certainly conservatives, certainly IDW people, but the basic idea that there are people that are literally regulating the information you can send out there, and this would be true for almost anything. Again, go on Google and search buy COVID vaccination card. Not that you necessarily should, but you're going to get dramatic. Don't break the law, kids. But you're going to get dramatically different results there than you would even on Bing. And you're going to get dramatically different results on Bing than you would on DDG or Yandex. And you understand that there are these teams of people that just got out of Brown or Penn State sitting there in button downs with purple hair, literally editing the results that you can see. So that is that is something that I think Elon Musk did a very good job of pointing out. Now the question is where he's going to go from there. Will he remain as CEO? Will he move on? Who will the CEO be? So I don't, I don't think you've seen the best job of leadership there, but the, just the revelations themselves are pretty important. Well, it's been fascinating talking to you. Do you want to tell people where to go and sort of follow you and get your books and stuff? Sure. Well, I myself am very internet accessible. If you Google uh, Wilfred Riley, W-I-L-F-R-E-D-R-E-I-L-L-Y, you'll find pretty much uh, all the things I just mentioned. My Twitter, which separately is at uh, Will, W-I-L, underscore, duh, D-A, underscore, beast, B-E-A-S-T, 630. Uh, Facebook, website put up on my college you know, my books, both of my books were bestsellers. I mean, they're really quite easy to find without false modesty. They're on Amazon. I mean, so uh, check me out. I'm still very much at a point in life where I'll respond to what you're saying. I look forward to talking to you. Oh, it's been beautiful. Thank you so much, Wilfred. Right, he's off and... <clears throat> God, I'm coughing. Have I... Have I muted? No, I haven't muted. I've been muting myself the whole way through as I cough. I'm going to bring David Whitehead on. And David, how are you doing? Hey, what's up, man? How's it going? 
All good, thank you. Well, I've been, I've got a cold, but I'll stop going on about it. I'll stop, but I'll be, I keep muting my mic to, to cough while, while people talk. So feel free to talk quite a lot. Um, so David, tell me um, a little bit. You've got to be like explaining to an idiot because I don't know anything about anything. Um, and so we're going to be talking about like the Great Reset and Klaus Schwab and uh, the Fourth Industrial Revolution. So can you talk like, like talking to an idiot about what, because the thing is about the Great Reset, I don't know what it is. But it's it sort of sets off flags about conspiracy theory stuff in my head. So so what what and that's because I'm stupid. So tell me what it is, please. Well, you're not stupid if you're thinking on those lines, man. Um, I think it's all pretty obvious at this point. There's no hiding what this agenda really is all about. Um, it's the same old globalization agenda that's been going on with these uh, elites and various groups, think tanks, roundtables, um, NGOs. Uh, there's private people involved. There's people from every sector of society that are pushing for this thing called the Great Reset or the Fourth Industrial Revolution. And all people really need to do is go and look up a book called COVID and the Great Reset by Klaus Schwab. Klaus Schwab, the founder and chairman of the World Economic Forum, uh, which is located in Davos. It's called the Davos Click or the, the Davos Crowd. And of course, when we're talking the Davos crowd, we're talking about uh, the people who are looking for a centrally controlled world order or a new world order, as they used to call it. Um, and it's all the same characters. Like you'd hear about this stuff in the conspiracy theory world, or they call it conspiracy theory. I call it conspiracy research at this point, um, where they used to call it the new world order. You know, think of back to George Bush Sr., uh, George Bush Jr., Bill Clinton, uh, Henry Kissinger, uh, Tony Blair, uh, all of them have been talking about wanting to reshape the world after this new type of model where essentially there won't be governments in the way that we've had them, which were localized governments, independent nation states, right? With their own laws, cultural backgrounds, identity, right? Um, you are, they're setting up a global enterprise to have top-down control over land, resources, and wealth. And um, it's it, there's a whole story. I don't know if you got any questions or anything already, but I'm just, you know, just laying out the fact that this isn't anything that you have to go to conspiracytheory.com to check out. You can go to a website called weforum.org. That is the World Economic Forum's website. And you can just start reading about it. And of course, it's written in a lot of PR language, you know, um, but when you actually look at the policies they're proposing, this includes the whole idea of transhumanism. Uh, this is openly admitted numerous interviews with Klaus Schwab and people like that, Yoel Harari, who we could talk about, and some of these guys, um, where they're talking about how this Great Reset is a product of the pandemic uh, that opened up an opportunity to reshape the world after a new order that they want to introduce. And they're calling it the fourth industrial revolution. And so it has mm -hmm. fundamental implications for human freedom, for national sovereignty, um, and uh, for the ability for the average person <coughs> to have a say in, in where the destiny of their nation is going to go. My understanding of transhumanism um, was just, you know, people trying to live longer. Is that not what it is? I think it's a cult, bro. I think it's uh, something that is based in, you know, when let's look at it like this. There's always been a desire in humans to find ways to live longer. And uh, we've got this technological revolution that's been going on for quite some time. 
and I'm not, a, I'm not a Luddite. I'm not against technology at all, but I'm curious as to who's at the helm of the control pads um, and wh how far down the road of wanting to integrate with technology and artificial intelligence created by who, uh, you know, I, I'm very wary about these kinds of things because I'm an advocate for freedom. And I feel that there's a sales pitch that's being given to the human race about all the benefits to merging with all this technology, but they're forgetting about the track record of human history. And when you give those kind of control knobs to elite sociopaths who have more money and power than you can imagine as an average person, and you just think about your phone and how many times it crashes or how many updates it needs. And, um, you know, just realizing that the more we go down that path of technology, the, la the less human, the less organic human we are going to be. And that's not just me saying it, bro. That's coming right from the architects of this whole concept, right from the transhumanists themselves, right from people like Klaus Schwab and Yoel Harari from the World Economic Forum. Uh, they're talking about a radical transformation not just of your economy, not just of your government, but of what it means to be human. So I'm personally an advocate for using technology to serve humanity. And I don't want to go over that edge where now humanity becomes a slave to this new global technocracy uh, and this new technology. Is this not, as, as depressing as it sounds, is this not inevitable? Is there, is there anything that can stop the wheels in motion? Yeah, we could. But we're human beings. We get to choose. Why do we feel like whatever these people say and roll out on their marketing campaigns has to become reality? We as human beings have the ability to co-create this reality. Um, you know, if we want to have a say, we have to start having a say and having a voice and, and having these discussions. Um, the fact that they're not they're bypassing all the negatives and they're just jumping right to the positives and really pushing this hard about integrating human beings with nanotechnology, bio-surveillance technology. Uh, you know, just, it's unbelievable. All you got to do, if you want to see sort of a snapshot, like a preview of where they want to go with the entire planet, is look at what China has done. What's already going down right now in China with the social credit system that they have, the, uh, the, the, the level of surveillance. I don't know if people are really aware of just how refined this technology is. And... Think about it. You, you say something wrong on the end. We, we've had a crash test in this. You say something against the, the official organizations or the official narrative on social media. What happens to you? They delete your account. They put you in Facebook jail. They censor you. They shadow ban you. What do you think it's going to be when now Facebook isn't just a website you log into? It's actually integrated into your brain. And you're now uh, participating in a society that is highly controlled and surveilled right down to the infinitesimal degree. I don't think that's a world I want to live in, man. I, that's just not where I'm going. I'm not buying their sales pitch. And I know they're going to sell it on, oh, well, uh, we got new ways that we can help people stop having seizures and we can have all these health applications. But honestly, man, I just think that's smoke and mirrors. That's a sales pitch. Obviously, technology could be used to help with these different health concerns. Um, in the hands of these particular people, I've got some questions. That's just me, though. Mm. 
yeah, I think I think we saw some really uh, harrowing things over the last few years. Uh, I think the one that stands out for me that sticks in the mind was in Canada. I think with Trudeau and uh, the, you know, there's people who are protesting on going on strike, and he just like froze their money and was just like, now you can't eat and live and stuff because you know, and that's technology. Because before it would have, you know, I, I guess banks have been around a long time, but you know, you, you, now it's so easy—a flick of a switch and people can't use their money so that is a, a definite sign of it but but also does this not suggest some sort of um i guess of course you talk about the sociopaths at the top i have no doubt there's a you know it's supposed to be one percent of of the of society are sociopathic and almost certainly quite a higher number for people right at the top you know maybe five or ten percent but i suppose everybody would have to collude for, for example for technology that goes into someone's brain you'd have to have all the doctors, the big doctors and stuff to also be thinking, you know, we're going to be selling their secrets and stopping them from living. Do you know what I mean? It's too much. For me, it feels like a lot of collusion. It's just called compartmentalization. Uh, if you, it's, just a, it's a military term. Compartmentalization really easily is just the idea that you're on a need to know basis. You're a little, and I'm not you. I mean, everybody that's involved in any kind of sh massive shift like this, everybody is on a need to know basis. They're a cog in a wheel. They know at what they need to know and no more. And a lot of them are believers in, they drank the Kool-Aid of what they were sold. They believe in it. All right. And we just had this whole, I don't know what I, I don't want to say too much because it's YouTube, but we just had this whole situation over the last three years that has really been quite illuminating, hasn't it? Um, you don't need everybody to be a sociopath that just is seeking power and all that kind of stuff to be involved. What I think is more powerful is cult ideology. The, the idea that, um, you know, a lot of these people are just believers. They believe in a utopian future. And that utopian vision, as much as we all want a vision of beauty and utopian or whatever for humanity, that's, that sounds nice always, right? But I'm a student of history. And anybody that's studied history knows that all of the most totalitarian regimes in history have all been started by utopian ideas. And I find that interesting. It's not that the pursuit of, of making life better for humans is wrong. It's that what happens is those people who know how to manipulate that uh, and use it so that they gain more power and control, uh, th they know how to use the right words and, and sell it the right way to get everybody on board. People believe it because they don't really believe in the person or the people doing it. They believe in an idea. And if you can sell people an idea and then go, I'm the one that's going to bring about this idea. Well, look at all the cults, Jim Jones, process church of the final judgment, heaven's gate, uh, all the world religion of all history going back through time. And uh, you know, and I'm not critiquing everyone. I'm just saying they've all broken away into these little groups where now we're pitted against each other. And in one sense, you kind of think, well, maybe these guys are just trying to unify all that under one umbrella. Yeah, <laughs> the umbrella corporation. Uh, they they, they want to bring everybody under because what's the most ancient desire of all these tyrants and despots and dictators and cult leaders? What is the desire? It's control. And it's control over some very specific things. If people want to know what the great conspiracy is, it's the desire to control land, resources, and wealth. And it's a very simple equation. If you want to control land, resources, and wealth, you have to take control over the people that live on that land, that live near or around or control those resources, and that actually produce that wealth. And what better way than to sell them utopian visions and 
kumbaya, unify the world, uh, new technology, life extension. I just see it's, it's a sales pitch for a deeper agenda, but that's just me. Yeah, it's a, it's a complicated one, isn't it? I, they didn't drink Kool-Aid. They drank um, Flavor-Aid and Joan, it was Jonestown. <laughs> yeah, it was Flavor-Aid well, laced with cyanide. It's one of the, the pudding. Remember, they put the stuff in this chocolate pudding or whatever. And they yeah. all have a way of getting it in there. But, you know, the modern Sweetening. Kool-Aid is, uh, mm. you know, they're putting it right into you. Yeah, it's just funny how it became Kool-Aid. And I don't know what that did in terms of marketing for Kool-Aid. Um, it was probably like... a disaster. I haven't drank Kool-Aid <laughs> since I was like five. I don't know. Since you first heard that. Meanwhile, Flavor-Aid's been doing fantastically. No, I have no idea. And, and you know, cyanide was the other thing inside there, of course. Um, but, but, but you know, I, I get what you're saying. And it's the same thing of selling with the Kumbaya. That's what Jonestown was about, all this kind of utopian vision and everything. Um, it's just a hard one because a lot of these cult leaders are true believers themselves. And they've got that cognitive dissonance. It's like part of them wants the power and part of them's going, no, I believe in this thing. Do you, do you think that might be the case as well with some of these true believers? And, and maybe we can get on to who some of these people are. Yeah, it's a good point. And it, it, I think that that's what happens is a lot of these people get, um, you know, we call it the biggest, the biggest conspiracy is the inner conspiracy, right? It's, it's, it's the fact that if somebody feels that they have no inner control and they have no real inner identity, um, they seek to, cr- to project it outwards. And they, that, so they'll, instead of taking control over their own lives, they seek to control other people's lives. And they go, oh, well, I don't want to work on fixing myself. I want to fix the world. That's, that's way more fun. It sounds better, doesn't it? Like, I don't want personal responsibility. I want to go and fix the world. Well, isn't that the, the story of all of these guys? So some of them are true believers, but some of them are also sponsored by pe- organizations like the CIA uh, and MI6 and some of these other intelligence cults. Uh, that I think, uh, you know, they have allegiances to other more shadowy organizations that go behind the scenes that the average person doesn't even get to see. And the only way to get an understanding of that is to study these different cults and these different political regimes, uh, both the public version of it and also the one that's sort of behind the scenes to see what's the ideology of this. Um, You know, think about like the ideology of communism or fascism or socialism or all these isms, right? Um, People believed in it, but it got to a point where it became genocidal. Uh, poverty was you know, striking and nobody did anything to change it. They kept it going and they still are those diehard believers in that vision, even though it's been disproven time and time again. Whereas you know, the average person just wants to be left alone by government and, and big corporations and all this kind of stuff. But for some reason, we keep seeing the rise of this type of totalitarian thinking going into our local governments and also internationally into these organizations. So if you track the statements of these people, the actions these people have taken, you follow it up the chain. If you wanted to get into a little bit about who these people are, um, a lot of people know about the World Economic Forum now, which is really good because I think it was started in like the 70s. Um, the, the new king coming in, in after Queen Elizabeth there, Prince, what is, what's his name? He, he was part of the founding membership with Klaus Schwab. Yeah, Charles. Uh, mm-hmm. He's now mandating something called the Terra Carta, uh, which I did a whole podcast on digging into that. Um, it's fueled with the it, it's got everything in there with the climate stuff, the globalization, um, the changing of the economy and the transhumanism. And it's all rolled into one. And you're seeing various organizations parrot the talking points of the World Economic Forum. 
But people don't know about another organization that Klaus Schwab himself has spoken very highly of, which is called the Club of Rome. And uh, I don't, I can get into that, but it's a whole podcast in itself. But if you go to look up somebody named Dr. John Coleman, he wrote a book called The Committee of 300. And it's very enlightening, man. And he speaks mm. explicitly from their own documents, from you know people that he interviewed back in this, I think it was in the 80s, 70s or 80s. And um, they saw what was going on because they laid it all out. They wrote it all down. It's all written down. And they talk about what the plan of the of this Club of Rome is and who it's sponsored by. And uh, it's literally the seizure of the global resources and under one central authority. So whether people want to debate the, the merit of their ideas, the fact that you have a small, unelected, unaccountable group of highly wealthy, influential elites controlling the resources of the entire planet. I know this sounds like a G.I. Joe episode or something, but it's what they're proposing. Uh, I, if anybody doesn't have any questions and they just want to go along with it, I, I don't know what to tell them. For me, I would say let's take a few lessons from history. And you don't have to believe everything I'm saying in my perspective, but at least go look up what they're trying to propose. Read the fine print. Don't just read the advertisements that look nice on the surface. Read the fine print. Look at the history. And tell me if you think that the world they're trying to create, Club of Rome, World Economic Forum, this whole thing, um, is going to be a world that you or anybody you know would really want to live in if you actually mm. understood what was, what was behind it, where you won't have the right to private property. You're told openly, one of the advertising slogans of the World Economic Forum is that you will own nothing and be happy. I got a problem with that because the first ownership that we have is over our body, our bodily autonomy. This was established in the Nuremberg trials after World War II. And what happened to bodily autonomy over the last three years? Uh, so we got we already getting a crash course of just the beginning stages of where they want to take this in terms of control. And uh, I got a problem with control freaks. That's just me. I think um, I, I might be a bit pes pessimistic, I suppose. But I think I think maybe, and maybe you won't be surprised by this, but I think maybe most people quite like the idea of being controlled. And that's a bit scary. I mean, I used to live in Berlin um, and you'd be amazed that they do polls every now and then. And most most people from the East uh, remember, it's, it's even called something, it's like Ost, Ostalgia, Ostalgie, Ostalgie, or something like that with East. It's like not it's a it's a portmanteau of nostalgia and and the word east uh, eastalgia, um, and they've got nostalgia for for the east of Germany and they they talk about it as you know it was wonderful and that, you know obviously there were some good parts to it I think like women were uh, had higher rates of employment and there were all sorts of things that were better but they had no freedom there was no freedom of movement for example you couldn't even go on holiday outside of the east uh it was awful really from from my perspective but that offends berliners a lot of berliners today and it's really interesting to think about so i, I just wonder and it's the same thing I'm, i suppose i'm saying about someone like charles i mean he's probably concerned about his legacy he doesn't need more money and stuff like that he probably thinks that this is going to leave a better mark on the world uh and i suppose that's that's what we're battling with is that most people maybe not people watching this but most people i think are quite happy being controlled well, this is a question. I mean, you can look at uh, the Milgram experiments, the Ash experiments, which were all uh, group psychological experiments to talk about how uh, we will go along with the group, even if we disagree, uh, because we want to save face. We don't want to ruffle feathers. We want to just it's a tribal instinct that's been with us for a long time. Um, and so the struggle for freedom 
is first it's age old, but the, even the concept for the ability for humans to have a concept of what freedom is first meant that they had to have a concept of what an individual is because we never even had that concept before. It was just, we were just tribes. We're just groups. We're just, we were, we, we were bred as slaves in a way to think as slaves. And, uh, but when we had, so many of these brilliant thinkers, philosophers and ideas and, you know, the, the, the whole enlightenment period and the concept of the individual was born. Uh, we started building concepts around nationhood and, uh, and, and everything to bring in the principles of freedom and hopefully achieve progress at the same time. Because, uh, you know, I just feel like to say people prefer, prefer being controlled, that's just, in my opinion, arrested development. That's just if anybody that is in their center, anybody that uh, has the knowledge of who they are, why they're here, where they're going. And then there's a system that's fair. There's a fair game being played. Uh, people will choose freedom. They don't want to be controlled, but there's a fear. Uh, there is a fear that, oh, I don't who's little me. I don't know what to do with life. I'll just go to the experts. I'd rather the government tell me what to do. I'd rather the media tell me what to do. Um, and, you know, you can understand it. But what I'm trying to do is wake people up to their true potential, uh, the true nature of who they are, and the, the beauty of freedom and what freedom provides you. And I find it actually shocking that we're sitting here right now, even having that discussion, not, not you and me, but as a culture, that we have to bring this up again to talk about freedom when our grandfathers and fathers before them died horrific deaths fighting to try to establish freedom. And yet... A lot of people are now just like, oh, freedom is too hard because I have to have personal responsibility. It's like, yeah, there is a price for freedom, but what's the price of losing your freedom? Well, it's the price of losing what it is to be human. Um, and so there is a trade-off always, but uh, you know, we have to try to help re-inspire, especially the younger generations, with the principles of freedom so that they understand the benefits of it. And then they understand what they're up against. Uh, which is, in my opinion, it's a big smokescreen to try to uh, use those ideas as sort of a narrative weapon in the culture to get people to move away from the concept of freedom. And the reason they want to do it is because, again, the agenda is the control of land, resources and wealth. And if you have a nation of empowered individuals that seek freedom and want to defend it, you can't seize that those resources and that land. You can't do it. So um, this is why we have to resurrect this concept and then just put it in front of people. You, you have the freedom to make your decision on it, right? But uh, do you want a roundtable group of uh, unelected elites in Davos deciding your future and the future for your children? Because what if they decide, oh, you know what? There's too many humans running around, Andrew. There's too many humans and we're going to make the decision as to who stays and who goes. And, uh, you know, you guys gave us your freedom. You didn't want freedom. You don't want the responsibility. So, you know, with that freedom comes our ability to choose uh, your, the way your life is going to be, that you're going to own nothing and be happy. And we're even going to be able to choose who lives and who dies. Um, it, it goes down a really dark road really, really quickly. And so that's why I think we need to empower ourselves again with the principles of freedom. Mm, I, I think that I, I think the only place I, I slightly disagree is that it's just human nature. I think just history shows us that they, that we don't appreciate freedom. And maybe that's I'm not even disagreeing. I think maybe you agree on that as well. Most people don't appreciate freedom. They don't look at what, what has been fought for. They don't. The problem is they never see 
authoritarianism as authoritarianism. It never comes at you from an, a place of evil. It never comes in and like, it always sort of corresponds with whatever is right in the culture. So this great reset sounds like it's just sort of climbing aboard the, the sort of excitement about tech. Everyone's very excited about technology and we're climbing aboard and it seems like it's good. You know, back in the 1930s, it was about eugenics, this new scientific thing that everyone was very excited about. No one ever thought like we're doing a bad thing. Uh, the Bolsheviks, oh, we're just we're just enforcing um, equity, equity or whatever it is, equality. You know, nobody then was going, oh God, we're going to give up. We have to give up certain freedoms. They were just distracted by what they thought was a greater good or a greater goal. Um, yeah. And that's just going to happen, I think, you know, time it's and right, time right, but again. it's going to happen because of an element that's missing from this equation, which is social engineering, right? The fact that um, where do we get our ideas and our information from about anything? We get it from... Yeah. The Quite media, so. we get it from, and who controls the media? Eight corporations and four major investing firms. Uh, yeah. Like, so you, you start going, okay, well, my opinion on it is generated for me. And this is again about freedom. Well, the first freedom is the freedom to think, the freedom to think, to even make a decision as to whether or not you're going to agree with something or disagree, whether or not you're going to buy something or, or not buy something, right? So, yeah. um, you know, when, when we talk about it, this also brings up the philosophical debate of free will versus determinism, right? The idea that, oh, our human, because this is their argument, which is a very convenient argument, which is that they're going to say humans don't have free will. Therefore, we need to have an unelected elite uh, establishment rule every mic micromanage every fine detail of your life for you. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm frightened by the amount of people that would buy into that. But I also understand that they've been bombarded since their youth, since they were born. Because remember, these agendas we're talking about have been going on since well before you and I got to this planet, right? So, you know, we, what I'm saying is that they want to engender the idea that you don't have free will. Therefore, we're going to come back and basically build neo-feudalism again, but with robots and AI. Like, that's, that's what it is. Like, the uh, that we were we came out of the dark ages and it was called the dark ages for a reason and it's because there wasn't freedom to be seen anywhere it was just you know, kings queens popes lords ruling serfs you know you couldn't even you had to check with the local mag magistrate as to whether or not you could have a window that was bigger than like a coffee mug you know what i mean like this is where we're getting to is um you know it, it everybody likes the the sales pitch of it but they don't realize this has been bombarded into their minds by this media enterprise, by the education system for a long time. And uh, they're trying to indoctrinate children with the idea that they don't have any free will. It's all you're just controlled by antecedent forces outside your control. Therefore, it justifies a global totalitarian technocracy. I, I just this is where we have to have these discussions and say, let's try to get rid of some of that programming and connect to what you really want in life. And most people, they don't have any big grand designs. They just want to be left alone and go work and provide for their family and have a nice Christmas dinner and, or whatever and celebrate what they like to celebrate. Um, but these guys want to change all that because, again, this is the sales pitch because they want to control the markets. They want to control the land and resources. And um, in, in my opinion, if you have any connection to the principle of freedom whatsoever, you're going to be up in arms about it and you're going to be researching it and trying to learn more because uh, in my opinion, the future doesn't look bright in a world that is absent freedom. It only looks like every dystopian science fiction movie you've ever seen. You know what I mean?
Yeah, I do. There's a scary vision of the future, David, or the present, I should say. Where can you? Where do you want to send people to to read about it or catch up on your news and stuff? Sure. Well, first of all, I don't want to leave people on a dark note. It's not all lost. There's brilliant things happening all over the world. There's great people fighting and trying to educate. And so if you've been inspired by anything I said today, uh, you can come and check out the work that I do. Uh, you can get it at dwtruthwarrior.com. I've also been releasing a documentary series that people can watch for free. It's called Cult of the Medics, and you can check that out at cultofthemedics.com. Um, and it, it gets into some of this. It also gets into the occult roots of the medical industrial complex. And uh, again, the question of freedom is always at the root of everything that I do. So uh, you can come and check that out over on those websites. And I really appreciate having this chat, man. This has been fun. It's been great, David. Thank you so much and have a lovely Christmas. He's out of here. He was brilliant. That was fascinating. I've, I've learned so much there. I'm going to bring Stephen in, unfortunately. Stephen, how are you doing, mate? I'm all right. How are you? Got a cold and I don't stop moaning about it. But oh, I'll stop. I'll stop going on about it. But um, still working. So. Do, you think, do you think you're going to make it? We'll see because I'm supposed to be back here in an hour. If I'm not, you're going to have, just have to keep going because I will. you have to announce my untimely demise. Untimely demise. I've got a eulogy ready for you. Don't worry. <laughs> Thank you. You've got, you're just one of those people. You've got a eulogy ready for all of your friends just in just case. In case. Be just in case. Quick. Yeah. yeah. You know, Shall I bring on? Have you got... Prepare to fail. <laughs> have you got um, Nicole now, is it? I believe so, yeah. Looking to get into the whole uh, Twitter, Elon Musk, anarchy oh. that's going on at the moment. Oh. Oh, fantastic. I'm going to add Thanks her to so. the stream and I'm going to quickly get out of here. See you soon. Hi, Nicole. See you. Hi, everyone. How's it going? I think we're all well. How are you? Good. Good. Excellent. So maybe you could just start by telling us all uh, what it is you do. How would you describe your work? Well, it's definitely shifted a bit over the last year. So for 11 years, I was the New York Times digital espionage, digital sabotage reporter. I think I started as their cybersecurity reporter, but it quickly shifted because all I ended up covering was espionage and sabotage, mostly by nation states and then increasingly from cyber criminals with ransomware, et cetera. And then about a year ago, I left the New York Times and part of that was to just actually try and help fix things. So I had written a book called This is How They Tell Me the World Ends. And at the very end, I uh, took on the foolish task of making my own recommendations for how to fix things. And then people in government and enterprise started saying, do you want to actually put your money where your mouth is and help? So for the last year, I've been doing a lot of advisory work with cybersecurity startups, um, with CISO, which is the U.S. federal agency the nation's leading cyber defense agency and we're just trying to figure out how to actually fix shit <laughs> <laughs> that's a great summary so in terms of like uh, digital espionage and cyber attacks and things like that what are the what are the key things that governments agencies anyone with any sort of sensitive information uh, should be not necessarily looking for but what sort of things are people trying to do to circumnavigate that are we talking about data theft are we talking about uh, denial of access uh, to sort of lose companies money or governments things like that what's what are the key things that these people try and do to achieve their goals and the short answer is all of the above you know it but it, but it has shifted significantly so when i started at the new york times there was this phrase you would hear and it's been plagiarized to death but it's this there's only two types of companies left companies that have been hacked and companies that don't know they've been hacked yet. Mm -hmm. And left unsaid is that a lot of the IP and trade secrets that were being stolen 
uh, was from China, Chinese APTs, which is code for a state-sponsored hacking group. So I spent a chunk of my time, probably three years, basically solely dedicated to Chinese cyber espionage, particularly of the industrial trade theft variety. And then things started to shift. There was actually this agreement between uh, Obama and Xi Jinping in 2015 that China would cut it out on trade secret theft. And they did for a short period of time. But during that same period of time, we saw hacks of companies like Anthem, the insurance company, and Marriott, you know, the hotel hospitality organization. And on its face, I would say, well, isn't this a violation of this agreement that we made with China? And spies and intelligence and government officials would say, actually not. This is, uh, we believe, just the traditional espionage, spy versus spy stuff, because what they're after now isn't IP anymore. It's personal data. It's the travel records of Americans, particularly government workers, to try and conduct intelligence. You know, where are Chinese citizens traveling that government workers in the U.S. are traveling to to try and root out spies? And that has really picked up, I would say, over the last five years with um, a lot of just big data uh, AI uh, type surveillance. And we've seen kind of China move from the like sloppy spear phishing attacks in your email inbox to using really sophisticated means of attacking systems like finding software vulnerabilities to use to spy on, on people and data theft. So that's just China, you know, on, on Russia's end, we've really seen them really move towards sabotage, you know, probably most notably with the attacks on the Ukraine power grid. Um, but also some hacks of Ukrainian government agencies that just wiped out their data and spun around the world and, and decimated systems and paralyzed even manufacturing systems at companies like Merck and Mondelez uh, and also move towards information operations on social media. So a lot of what I've been doing is um, tracking these threats and then also watching as uh, you know domestic uh, players sort of started organizing themselves around the spread of information and in some cases misinformation and disinformation on big social media platforms. So I watched really carefully as companies like Twitter and Facebook started building up some of their content moderation capabilities and watched as they made some missteps. And now I'm watching very closely as uh, Elon is trying to unravel some of that at Twitter. And so I have some opinions on on what's happening. Well, that's a great segue into the whole Elon Musk Twitter anarchy that we're we're witnessing at the moment. And I think it might be a good place to start at his most recent act of Twitter democracy, I, I suppose, when he play, he tweeted out a poll asking Twitter whether or not he should he should stay on as CEO of Twitter. Uh, the votes were in, and I think by a fairly narrow margin, the answer was no. Last time I checked in on it, anyway. Do you? I mean, I suppose my first question is: Do you think, in the back of his mind, he sort of suspected this might have been a whole run for him in terms of his popularity with people? You know, I have complicated feelings about Elon Musk. Can I can I tell you a, a good Elon Musk story to start, Certainly. and then? I'll turn to the bad. Um, you know, at the start of the Russian invasion, uh, there's a CEO here in Silicon Valley who went to college with Zelensky. I won't name him, but he got a call from Zelensky in the initial days of the Russian invasion. And he and Zelensky said, listen, we have five internet links, essentially infrastructure links in and out of the country. 
and the intelligence suggests Russia is about to bomb all of them. And we are going to be completely screwed if we lose our access to the internet. Uh, what, what can you do? Can you help? And so the CEO didn't know Elon, but he knew Mark Andreessen. And so now I've heard this third hand, I guess, but he called Mark and he explained the situation and he said, can you help? Do you know Elon? Mark said, I'll give Elon a call. Mark called Elon, he explained the situation. And apparently Elon, as the story was related to me, said something like, so you want my help sticking it to, to a totalitarian dictator? And Mark said, yeah. And Elon said, oh, that's on my bucket list. And like, so that's this amazing operation, which really hasn't been told where, you know, Elon kind of single-handedly helped get all of the Starlink infrastructure and servers into Ukraine via Poland in these camouflage trucks. Um, and that is what has kept Ukraine's internet connection alive and arguably kept uh, Ukraine at the forefront of the information war with Russia and kept their edge. Now, since then, you know, Elon has continually threatened to pull that infrastructure out and, and stop funding it essentially, or, or stop, uh, you know, paying the bills. But I think that is a, that is amazing, you know, that he did that. I think the world needs Elon Musk's, you know, I think my brother is a hardcore libertarian. So he said to me, you know, people thought Christopher Columbus was crazy back in the day for saying the wor world wasn't flat. You know, you need people to challenge that thinking and to be big visionaries um, and go for these things that in the short term sound ridiculous. So I'm glad we have Elon Musk working on electric vehicles. I'm glad we have SpaceX. Um, I think what he tried to do, and it seems like it's failed so far with the boring company, is awesome that he's pursued that. Um, so I think we need him in this on this planet. Do I think we need him running Twitter, which is not a startup anymore, which has become a real public utility, which has become really the global town square? No, I think he is completely out of his depth. And I think it's very interesting watching uh, what's happening in real time. And I really think that, you know, when I've talked to people at Tesla, they've said it's total chaos. For years, they've said it's complete chaos. We basically have an entire management structure designed to, uh, you know, work around Elon's craziness. And to, we've succeeded in many ways because of his vision, but also in spite of his chaos. And that has worked. And you've heard that from people at SpaceX as well. So is that the type of person that is going to go in with, you know, his absolutist free speech ideas and free up Twitter and make Twitter you know, become what, what everyone hoped it would become? No, we're seeing that this is not working for a model like Twitter. And it's very clear to me that he has no real sounding board. You know, he has the David Sachs and the Jason Calacanises of the world who tell him he's a genius, just keep going, we support you. He doesn't have anyone saying to him, let me help explain some of the nuances around content moderation. Yeah, it's not perfect, but let me explain the thinking that went into some of these initial decisions and how we can improve it. He doesn't want to hear it. And so what we're seeing is sort of the reinstatement of neo-Nazi accounts of, you know, real hate. And just as someone who's been on Twitter for a long time, who 
Um, you know, it was a female journalist at an organization like the New York Times who had a target on my back constantly, rightly so, because of my position. Without content moderation, I think what people don't talk about enough is that when you have Nazis, literal Nazis, screaming at you all day long, you know, designing cartoon caricatures of you with a long nose or whatever the latest anti-Semitic trope is, that has a silencing effect of its own. That's not free speech because when people are scared to share their reporting or share their true beliefs for fear of getting trolled and attacked and facing just blatant anti-Semitism, you know, when they're just waking up in the morning, that has its own silencing effect. And I think that Something that Elon really hasn't experienced maybe until now. Um, I suppose, I mean, so- that's a really interesting point there. And I, I kind of, I mean, I, I live in the UK and our speech laws are very, very restrictive in comparison to the First Amendment. I'm insanely jealous of the American First Amendment. And I would err on the side of absolute freedom of ex- uh, speech. And obviously I, I would oppose any form of anti-Semitism and neo-Nazis. But I suppose the question is, do the things that you're talking about, sort of anti-Semitic caricatures, you know, uh, vile abuse and hatred, does that fall afoul of the First Amendment? And I mean, is that even a standard we should be looking to hold to in terms of Twitter? Well, I'm not a First Amendment lawyer, but I think it's fair to say the First Amendment is not absolute, you know, and it's always been a mess to try and sort out what is free speech from hate speech, what's free speech from pornography, you know, Mm. that's where the Supreme Court written decision of, you know, sort of, you know it when you see it. Um, And that's why content moderation has always been a mess. You know, I think if there's anything about the Twitter files, I applaud, it's exposing just what a mess it is to try and make these decisions, you know, that um, they they try and kind of come up with these rules and then suddenly a situation will happen like January 6th and maybe it doesn't meet their exact definition of the rules, but they ban Trump anyway. And now in retrospect, you know, if you look at those, those deliberations in a certain light, it looks like censorship. If you look at it with the full context of what was happening and how violent that insurrection was and the fact that it was aimed at really reversing democracy or attacking democracy, you're going to look at it in a different light. So these are conversations and deliberations that A, are a total mess and B, are easily weaponized. And I think my problem with what's happened with the, the leak of these Twitter files is they know that these, they know what's going to happen. You know, they're essentially leaking it to reporters who have a bias towards absolute free speech and have designed, you know, basically created platforms for themselves that are anti any form of censorship or any form of content moderation in, in Matt's case. And so you're going to get their slant to these deliberations. If you leaked it to another reporter or another outlet, you would have a different slant on these content deliberations, content moderation decisions. It's all a mess. And I think the more transparency, the more discussion around what what should be banned on these platforms, what is acceptable forms of free speech? Um, Is it everything? Maybe, you know, what about the silencing effect I described before? Should we be moderating for hateful content or harassment or targeted harassment or in Elon's case, GPS coordinates? You know, everyone has the thing that makes them feel threatened. And you can't just design a system where the only things that get banned are the things 
that personally make you feel threatened. You have to take these different constituencies into account. And we're just not seeing that right now. I suppose, I mean, I, I kind of agree. Like har- harassment is a line and, and targeting of, of, you know, threats, credible threats, things like that. But I suppose a lot of people, I mean, would say it is an opt-in system to which you can choose to be on that platform but obviously you have to contrast that with the fact that it has on to some extent become the public square it is very difficult for you especially as a journalist to do your job to the extent you'd like without a twitter presence i would imagine yeah and i've tried to sign off you know i did it <laughs> today saying i'm out of here it's because i know what it's like without twitter it's really hard to do your job as a journalist do you read every email you get every day? Probably not, right? But I do read my Twitter DMs because I only get maybe a dozen at the most every day. And so it's a way for me to flag things for other reporters. It's a way for me to connect with the source really quickly or just trade a note. In the same way, Slack is a more efficient form of communication than uh, just trying to go back and forth in your inbox. So you know, and you can reach anyone. And I suppose I, I thought maybe I could do that on LinkedIn. It turns out nobody actually checks their LinkedIn messages every day. So yeah, unfortunately, we're sort of stuck with Twitter. And it's, I think people who've left the platform for Mastodon or uh, Post are finding that it's difficult. And I'm not just on Twitter to follow my sources or connect with them. I'm on there because I follow this meteorologist I like. <laughs> I'm on there because I follow the 49ers. I'm like a crazy 49ers football fan and a Warriors fan. And that's not happening on Mastodon yet. So for as long as there's you know football and basketball season, I'm stuck on this thing. But the problem is, you know, I'm seeing Twitter surface up literal neo-Nazis account and suggest I follow these accounts. That is what the algorithm is serving me. And maybe, you know, because Nazis have targeted me in the past or I've looked to see what content they're putting out there to just do a kind of basic scan of what, uh, you know, what percentage of content on Twitter is hateful. Maybe I've connected with those accounts before. So the algorithm is surfacing them for me specifically, but I really haven't engaged with them for a very, very long time, years. So it's really disturbing to me that this is who Twitter is suddenly suggesting I follow. Um, and to me, that's, that is perverted free speech. Um, and the other thing is, you know, I think one of the things Elon said going into this was he was going to handle bots. And from my perspective, it was sort of like, hallelujah. Yeah. We've never really had a real sense of how many bots are on Twitter. We've just gotten these sort of fake rosy, uh, statistics every once in a while that we all know from our own experience isn't true. They're clearly bots and fake accounts on Twitter. He said he was going to tackle that. And we haven't really seen any evidence that he has, um, but he's kind of surfaced some of the accounts that have amplified bots and disinformation before. So to me, he's sort of doing the exact opposite of what he set out to do. And it's been a real disappointment. In well, in that vein, do you think we'll be getting a new CEO now? Because it, it seems to me, my instinct is he's he's enjoying owning a particular type of progressive at the moment. He seems to be enjoying the attention, uh, but I feel down the line it's soon going to become a poison chalice. And I don't, I would not 
thank I think it's a thankless job trying to trying to regulate a social media platform of that size and attempt to make it profitable. I just can't see a way forward. So do you think he's he's long for the the Twitter top job? So, I mean, first of all, I think it's ridiculous that we're letting CEOs of major corporations, publicly traded corporations, run multiple corporations. I think mm-hmm. the idea that you can be a successful CEO of three companies, maybe more, is, is absurd. And I think Tesla's board, for example, needs to step in. And I think the only accountability we're seeing right now for some of the decisions Elon's been making and some of the things he's been saying on Twitter is just Tesla's stock um, and maybe the poll he put out, but who knows how many how many bots voted in that. Um, so this is a problem. It's not sustainable, but we also know he's a control freak and he has a hard time letting go. So I think question number one is, even if he named another CEO, would he really let go? You know, we've already mm. seen it in the last 24, 36 hours say, uh, I'm looking for a CEO, but I'll still run the servers and software business. But hey, like that sounds just like the technical stuff. But software, then what about algorithms? Uh, you know, that's a that's a big question there. Second thing is who's going to be the CEO? You know, is it going to be David Sachs? You know, someone who sort of has the same um, absolutist take on content moderation? Is it going to be just someone who's sort of like a Medvedev to Putin. Uh, mm-hmm. Medvedev to Putin is it? You know, who is that person going to be? I think is a big question. Um, and you know, one of the things we haven't touched on that I've gathered in my reporting over the years is um, he punishes people who uh, go counter to his vision. Um, or his description of a company. And I think the, the most glaring is one that I've cited since he took over Twitter, which was a case where um, there was a worker at Tesla's factory in Nevada who kept calling out some of the waste issues, some of the copper waste issues at the plant, this plant in Nevada, and uh, basically was ignored by management. So as a, at a certain point, he went and took the story and leaked it to a reporter at Business Insider, Lynette Lopez, one of the journalists that uh, Elon banned over the last few days. And um, what happened in return? Well, Elon had his private investigators hack into this employee's phone, tail him, and SWAT him. They even called it, uh, made a call to the police uh, saying that this guy was about to shoot up the Tesla factory. So, you know, this when, guy. Sorry, when did this happen? This happened, I think, a couple of years ago. I could pull right. the exact date for you. But this is sort of like the extremes um, to which Elon Musk was willing to go to punish an employee who dissented, is essentially the story. So you could find it. The guy's um, last name is Trip. There's a police report about it. Um, And he ended up having to move to Hungary where his wife was from to get out of the situation and still ended up, I think, having to pay something like $400,000 for violating uh, Tesla's NDA. So this is what happens when you speak out or challenge Elon Musk's narrative. And so, the other aspect of it as well, like a, a lot of people will find the way he's behaving to be very entertaining. There will be a subset of people who believe that and live for it and go to Twitter yeah. just for that entertainment and will cheer it along. But to many of us, it just comes along, it comes across as like glaringly unprofessional 
behavior that could really be damaging Twitter's brand uh, and plans, even if Tesla. some of those plans are good. Yeah, and Tesla's. I mean, it's it's weirdly, oddly Trumpian. You yes. know, we're all following what he's saying for entertainment's sake. It's like watching a train wreck. You can't pull your eyes away. And every time he tweets and says, you know, Twitter's more uh, on fire than ever, or we're seeing more daily active, active users, it's like, yeah, because this is rubbernecking. You know, we're all just watching the crash. <laughs> um, so there's always going to be that, you know, that will always be there. And he will always have his stands, you know, the people who think he is the Messiah and are going to follow him wherever we go. Now, interestingly, and I've called this out the last couple of days, some of my friends here in Silicon Valley are big time headhunters. And they told me, you know, when he first took over that they started getting calls from really in-demand operators, you know, COO level type saying, I would kill to get a job at Elon's Twitter right now. And he even connected some of them with Elon. And so they had meetings and down to a person, they all left and said, never mind, this thing's going to be a total disaster. And they basically said that, uh, you know, Elon would cite over and over again that he overpaid that he paid, you know, four times whatever Twitter was actually worth. And he was so pissed about it <laughs> that it was essentially ruling by revenge, you know, at this point. Um, and I think, I don't know if that's 100% fair. Uh, I doubt it is. But I think it's clear that um, this is not like a strategic way to go about things. And maybe it works at a startup, you know, the whole move fast and break things. Let's throw anything at the, let's throw spaghetti at the wall and see if it sticks. But Twitter's not a startup. You know, people, people go to Twitter when there's an earthquake, people go to Twitter for real time news, it's become sort of the global RSS feed of our time. And when you start messing around with that, people are going to have very strong opinions, regulators are going to have to start having really strong opinions, you know, we're already seeing some calls come from the EU around some of these content moderation decisions he's made or lack of decisions. Uh, and we're starting to see that here too. So, Well, with just five minutes left, sorry to just drop this on you, but I wanted to get some uh, thoughts on the Twitter files in general, because to me, I think all they seem to reveal was, yes, there was a sort of partisan leaning towards some of the decisions relating to high profile bans, which I think we already knew in a roundabout ways. Were there any smoking guns in there for you that came as a surprise? Well, I would just challenge one thing in the framing there, which is that actually when there was you know, a widespread strategic look at, is there any political bias in terms of our content decisions, in terms of who we're banning and who we're amplifying that Twitter did? I think it was two years ago. They actually found that they had more of a conservative right-leaning bias, which I thought was really interesting. interesting. Now, you look at what has been exposed, like, you know, here's how I feel about it. I think the Hunter Biden laptop, New York Post ban, October 2020 decision was clearly, with hindsight being 2020, a, a mistake. They shouldn't have you know, kicked the New York Post off Twitter 
they shouldn't have set out trying to ban um, accounts like Kaylee McNamani's who was trying to amplify this, the disclosures coming off Hunter Biden's laptop, okay? In, in retrospect, that was a mistake. That was a glaring mistake. They messed up. At the time, <laughs> you have to understand the context. You know, the context was everyone was really terrified of a repeat of 2016 when Russia conducted this hack and leak of the DNC and weaponized, uh, you know, Hillary Clinton's emails, but also John Podesta's risotto recipes. And it led to a whole long tail end of hate you know, in-person violent attacks on a pizza restaurant based on some totally convoluted uh, conspiracy theory. So I think every social media company and platform, rightly so, was trying to be more proactive in the 2020 election around hack and leaks in particular, amplifying anything that came out of hack and leaks and looking very closely at the source and I think as a reporter who was working on some of these issues, it was not immediately clear who had, where this laptop had come from, who this like technician was that had leaked the laptop. And Twitter was getting bad information, it turns out, from the FBI at the time who were cautioning Twitter that this could be some sort of foreign uh, you know, state-sponsored operation. Those things, unfortunately take time to sort through and i but don't you know, a lot of people just completely viewed that as suppression That's yes how it played out right yeah and it's easy to see it as suppression and frankly the reporters who've been uh leaking out the twitter files have been marketing it as suppression um and i don't think that they are doing a very good job contextualizing uh, the nuance around some of these decisions. For instance, you know, here they are talking about the deliberations over banning Trump's account on January 7th. And they're talking about how technically, according to Twitter's content moderation policies and violations thereof, Trump wasn't technically in violation of, therefore, they were wrong to ban the account. What they don't remind everyone of in that Twitter stream is the day before, <laughs> what mm. Trump was doing the day before and what we all witnessed with our own eyes was happening at the Capitol. So I think a fair reporter, a balanced reporter's job is to add context to these really hard deliberations and, and discussions. And I think you can totally say with 100% certainty, they suppressed free speech. That was the wrong decision. You can look at it a different way and say, this guy was fomenting an insurrection and trying to overturn an election. He should have been banned. And you can say that with 100% certainty. It's just like, what prism are you looking through? And I think when we hand these leaks to people who have stated biases or stated views about these, you're certain to get that, hey, 100% certainty this was suppression of free speech. You're just guaranteed to get it. And I guess I'm on here on Twitter reminding people, hey, there is some very critical context around some of these decisions. And I'm not saying that they were the right decisions. I'm just saying that if you don't see the whole picture here, you should ask yourself why parts of that picture are being withheld from you. And you That's, should um, 
Yeah, that's a great point. I'm really sorry I could listen to you speak about this all evening, Nicole, but I believe we've just run out of time. Uh, but, but yeah, there's, there's definitely lots. Sweet, you know, it's uh, like it's sort of it's like be nuanced and try and like fill in the blanks and ask yourself why certain information is not being presented to you now about these decisions. It's not a soundbite, you know, it's it's a it's yeah. a longer conversation. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much for your time. Maybe just uh, depending on how much you hate yourself, you can tell people where to find you on Twitter before you go. Well, uh, yeah, if you want to just um, target me, I'm at <laughs> Wolf Hillaroth, uh, and, you know, I've written a book where I touch on some of these issues called This is How They Tell Me the World Ends, but it's more about um, cyber attacks versus information warfare. Those some of these themes obviously overlap. Nicole, thank you very much for speaking to me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Happy holidays. You too. Have a good one. Bye. Bye. I think, uh, oh, there we go. Nicole's gone. A lot of varied comments in the chat there. I think there was one asking me about absolute free speech and whether I'd allow pedophiles and deviants a platform. It's not. I'm not inviting him around for lunch or anything but i think so long as they're not breaking the law on these platforms i think they have the same rights to have a twitter account as everyone else but if they're using them tools to break the law obviously they're subject to the same laws as everyone else i don't think you can say that person's evil therefore they can't speak but obviously i'm open to alternative opinions and we're just waiting on our next guest uh and here here they are aaron how are you good how are you steven Wonderful. Good to see you. Um, maybe for those of us who aren't familiar with your work uh, and your background, how could you describe that in a very tidy 60 second soundbite, do you think? Sure. I'm a former Scientologist, former Sea Org member. I was born and raised in Scientology. Um, my story of growing up in Scientology and leaving uh, was told in part on the Leah Remini Scientology in the Aftermath show. Uh, I also have a YouTube channel growing up in Scientology, and I'm the vice president of the Aftermath Foundation. We help people who are escaping from Scientology, and in many cases, having to restart their lives from scratch. So that's the that's the less than 60-second version. That was beautiful, succinct, uh, to the point. So why do you think there is this huge fascination with Scientology and that there perhaps isn't with more um, established forms, forms of religion or monotheisms or, or, or maybe cult, maybe an unkind word to some. But why do you think there's this huge interest in the Church of Scientology? I'm going to guess it's the celebrity connection. Um, I, uh, you know, Scientology has a reputation of being like the Hollywood cult because of Tom Cruise. And I guess um, to a, a lesser extent these days, John Travolta. But um uh, I, I think that's why there's a public fascination, or I should say a media fascination. I think the public tends to be fascinated with whatever the media is putting in front of them. And I think it's very clickable to write articles about Scientology and Tom Cruise and, you know, Priscilla Presley, Lisa Marie Presley, John Travolta. Uh, and, and I think any other cults who have had that benefit, the celebrity halo effect, have gotten somewhat similar media treatment, like... Um, I mean, Kabbalah comes to mind because it was a big Hollywood thing. You don't hear that much about it. But when it was a big th it was Madonna was in it. Yeah, Madonna, yeah. All this kind of stuff, right? But the only reason we even know uh, that word is because of the celebrities who were in it. <laughs> and, you know, Scientology has been having the Tom Cruise halo effect since 1980. 
four or five or six. I can't remember exactly when he got in. I think it was just before Top Gun. Um, whenever he married Mimi Rogers is whenever Tom Cruise got into Scientology. But that's my guess because otherwise there's nothing that fascinating or interesting about Scientology um, more so than any other cult. You know, the more I read about different cults, the more all these cults are really the same. Nexium, Scientology, um, uh, you know, other lesser known things. But I really do think it comes down to the celebrity angle. Yeah, and I always wonder as well, because I suppose a lot of people view the Tom Cruise thing uh, in terms of Scientology. They, they look at him in, in a sense of mockery. They say, look how strange he's behaving. It's very strange that he's a Scientologist. And it almost feels like it's a detrimental thing. But I, you would say really that the Church of Scientology have benefited off having this huge global megastar as the face of Scientology in terms of people accepting it more into their lives or recruitment, things like that. Well, actually, you raise an interesting point, because when I said benefit, I really just meant the media so willing to talk about it to the point where it becomes a household word. But you could make the argument that that's not actually been a benefit to Scientology. And I think that would probably be a correct argument. Scientology is never it's only mentioned as in the. In, in the sense of a joke, as the butt of a joke. Tom Cruise is usually talked about as the butt of a joke, and yet it hasn't hurt his career. So, you know, when I talk about the halo effect, you know, because Tom Cruise has continued to be so successful, commercially speaking, um, despite the fact that his personal PR, it, I don't know that we could describe it as bad, but whatever it is, it probably couldn't, it's probably never been worse. I mean, relatively speaking, after the whole Katie Holmes debacle, after, you know, the world's coming to know the guy's disowned his only biological daughter, you know, he's best friends with the, the, the leader of his cult. Like Tom Cruise's PR as a person has probably never been worse, even though his commercial success seems to have never been better because there's that successful aspect of Tom Cruise's story. That's where I talk about the halo effect. There's probably going to be a certain amount of people who go, geez, if it works for Tom Cruise, how bad can it be? You know, if Tom Cruise has been in this thing for decades and he seems to be sort of um, in full control of his life, maybe it's something worth investigating. For sure, there's going to be some halo effect in that regards. I was mostly just talking about how much damn press it gets. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose uh, any attention is good attention in that sense. But it's interesting because I, I think, obviously, Scientology is a proselytizing faith. It does actively recruit. Uh, but I, I mean, you, I'm hoping I feel like whenever I speak to a Scientologist and I ask them about Tom Cruise, it's like whenever I'm traveling and someone notices I'm English and asks me about the royal family, just, just <laughs> one of those things that happens. But, um, he doesn't seem to be so vocal about it as much as he has been. I, the only thing that I can really think of that comes to mind is that infamous leaked, uh, video that I think was only supposed to be used for internal purposes, but does he tend to talk about it in interviews and and, and i suppose I, I don't know if you'd know this but your gut instinct is has he basically said no questions about scientologist scientology rather or do you think journalists are just too afraid to ask now no my sense is that uh, it's a stipulation for interviewing him that you don't ask him about scientology that that's yeah. my sense and you don't ask him about katie and you don't ask him about surrey keep in mind these are entertainment journalists their their entire career depends upon being able to maintain access they're it's mm. you know they're not it's not like they're not news reporters, they're entertainment reporters and access is the essence of their industry. So, um, you know, there was, uh, 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 an interview that he did with 60 minutes Australia with Peter Overton, where Peter sort of 
leaked something in the beginning of the interview that it, Tom did not seem to expect him to say this, that he was Peter was required to do a four hour uh, sort of crash course in Scientology uh, before doing the interview. And was this your um, put your manners back in interview. Was it yep, that one? That was put your right. manners back in. That's right. That. And so, you know, when Tom was being asked about Scientology in that 2005, 2006 timeframe, that's because he wanted to be asked about Scientology. He had just fired his longtime publicist, Pat Kingsley. Pat Kingsley was the one who had put the brakes on him talking about Scientology for so many years. He hired his sister, Leanne, to take over as his publicist. And that was so that he could go full throttle promoting Scientology in the press. And it just backfired in a huge way. And so I think he was like, okay, revert back to what was working. <laughs> Just be Tom Cruise, the movie star, and let people leave a little something to the imagination <laughs> when it comes to Scientology, which really is the winning strategy. Leave something to the imagination. I mean, even Scientologists don't know what's on the upper levels of Scientology. So um, I very much suspect people are not allowed to ask him about Scientology in the interviews. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think we all find it fascinating for the reasons you've said, the, you know, the association with celebrity. But sometimes I wonder, because I'm not religious at all, I've been a very vocal critic of religion in general in my, in my life. And I often think that it, it does seem to be a sort of double standard where people who are, say, Catholic for whatever, and there'll be many American actors who are Catholic, will never be given a second thought by the media or anyone else and that'll just be accepted as a perfectly normal faith-based good christian life whatever but somebody's a scientologist and all of a sudden their personal faith becomes fair game for a directed attack and criticism is, is there a, a hypocrisy there in that regard i i i i can understand that argument i could even agree with it to an extent um I would say that the criticism of Scientology, though, isn't about their beliefs. And so that's where I'm, I might differentiate and, and might walk back a little bit how hip hypocritical it really is. Like, for sure, the world's mainstream religions having, you know, tens or hundreds of millions of members. Um, it's not interesting whether it's that someone's a Catholic or Jewish or Mormon. Like, that's not it's not particularly interesting. It's sort of normal and expected. There's only 30,000 Scientologists in the entire world. And the fact that Tom Cruise is their poster boy, someone being a Scientologist is just a little more interesting. Now, if someone were to, you know, hold a celebrity's feet to the fire in an interview about Scientology, and it was just about the crazy things Scientologists believe, I would have a problem with that. I think that would be um, a bigoted way of interviewing somebody. But the thing is, Scientology has certain practices that uh, go beyond just what's the stupid things they believe. Um, and, and, you know, the practices that I find most cult-like are forcing, you know, familial disconnection. You know, when, when someone wants to leave Scientology, their, their family members are forced to disconnect from them forever um, or else themselves be expelled. Now, I know Scientology is not the only group that does something like that. Um Seems to be but, indicative of cults in general, isn't it? I think you, at the start of this conversation, you said as you've you've looked more into cult behavior and cult mentality, there are certain themes that permeate, and that is yeah. certainly one, isn't it? This kind of cutting off your family completely. 
That's right. And without being an expert on like the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons, for example, I've spoken to a lot of former members who say some of the practices in those groups are just as abusive as the ones I just described in Scientology. Again, I'm not an expert in it. What I what what I more commonly understand is just take Christianity or Catholicism or Judaism. If someone no longer wants to practice the faith or whatever, you're not forced to never speak to them again or see them again. You don't, you don't have members spying on you and reporting, reporting you to the authorities on who you're talking to and what you're reading and whether you watch Leah Remini's TV show. So um, I do wish people, um, interviewers, celebrity entertainment journalists and whatever, would hold some Scientologists' feet to the fire a little more. But it's almost unfair to expect it because, uh, well... They're sort of paid not to. <laughs> I, I would not hold it against a journalist for asking, um, asking a Scientology celebrity about things like, why has David Miscavige's wife not been seen in public in 15 years? Like, isn't that a fair question? <laughs> That's got nothing to do with beliefs or anything. But why has the wife of the leader not been seen in public? Is something weird going on there? And just have, just have the person answer the question. What's the harm in that? Yeah. I mean, I saw, you said remind me of something interesting a few moments ago when you mentioned how few they are in terms of their membership uh, but i mean that that seems to be in contrast with how well funded they are in terms of you know litigation things like that i'm not sure if you're aware but they tried to release going clear the the book in the uk when that was first published and that was actually blocked from publication for the longest time because the church of scientology has sort of used loopholes in our very annoying libel laws to prevent prevent publication of that in the uk for a while it, it's since obviously been released but these kind of things cost a lot of money generally uh and there, there are many things they do in terms of private security tracking people things like that that would would, would suggest to me they have they're very you know they're very well bankrolled so where, where is the, the, the number one source of their their funding coming from they have a lot of wealthy members who've donated tens and tens of millions of dollars. I mean, their wealthiest member is Bob Duggan. He was a pharmaceutical CEO. I think the company was like Pharmacyclics. He's the only Scientologist billionaire, and he has donated hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, there's another local guy uh, in Clearwater, Florida, where I live. His name's Tom Cummins, Tim Cummins, Tom Cummins. Um, he has donated tens of millions of dollars. Uh, Nancy Cartwright, the voice of Bart Simpson, she has donated tens of millions of dollars. And the thing is, when you have tax exemption, uh, the way Scientology does, the type of tax exemption that they do, just realize this organization has operating costs damn near zero. They have pay no property taxes, they pay no income taxes, and they have next to no payroll. So it's very easy for them to accumulate money and to grow it when their members are donating that much money and then they turn around and they invest that money into either real estate or, or even gold and, and things like that. Um, so, but you know, when you mentioned going clear and how Scientology, particularly in the UK is able to prevent things like that from coming out, I'm willing to bet that what was happening there was not so much actual lawsuits, but threat of lawsuits. Mm. Scientology has not sued a media corporation or a publisher in over 25 years. They haven't even sued an individual in over 20 years, except for a woman named Debbie Cook, who was a former executive, and they sued her for violating an NDA. They, they moved for um, a, a, an injunction. Uh, in the hearing that was held regarding this injunction, Debbie Cook's testimony was so devastating to David Miscavige and Scientology that Scientology said, okay, stop, stop, time out. We give up. <laughs> and they, 
This was just the hearing for the restraining order, right? Or the injunction. And they gave her millions of dollars to please go away. You drop, you stop talking. We'll drop our suit. We'll part ways. So Scientology, and do you know Scientology has never in its entire history won a jury trial? Every single time a Scientology case has gone to trial, Scientology has lost. And yet corporate attorneys, like whoever was distributing Going Clear, corporate attorneys are so scared, uh, so conservative, so cautious just by nature that um, the, the, really, uh, the reputation Scientology got in the 80s and the 90s for being incredibly litigious and just suing their enemies into oblivion, um, that reputation, they still, they still benefit from that reputation. But corporate attorneys and media attorneys, I hope, are becoming more and more aware that Scientology these days, they just threaten. They don't, carry th they don't follow through. I mean, look, Leah Remini, Scientology in the Aftermath, was on the air for three entire seasons. Not a, yeah. single loss, not a single lawsuit against anyone associated with that production. Mike Rinder's written a book. Leah Remini's written a book. Um, uh, no lawsuits. <laughs> uh, have, so, you, have you witnessed anything, any sort of noticeable pushback from any official sources or anything a bit untoward with your vocal opposition to the church? Oh, I mean, just the website they created about me. <laughs> Are you familiar with it? That's fun. I am not. Yeah. So AaronSmithLevin.com is a hate website created by the Church of Scientology all about me. And right. that website, I mean, it's my name. Like I could probably get a lawyer to get that back, but it's almost like, what's the point? Um, so, you know, they have kept that website updated every now and then. Um, and, you know, I'll get phone calls from people who are getting phone calls about me. Um, that are obviously, you know, private investigators fishing for someone who's willing to talk smack about me. Um, that's really all they can do these days. They're, they're, they just don't have the teeth that they used to. Yeah, can't be pleasant though, I'm sure, but I will definitely take a peek at that later. I'll, uh, that'll be my reading list. Oh, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> it's incredible. It's incredible. But um, I suppose um, keeping on this idea of uh, litigious people and court proceedings and things like that, I believe uh, David Miscavige is, is soon to be served, uh, as it's termed. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about what that involves? Yeah, so David Miscavige is being sued by three former um, Scientologists who worked on Scientology's cruise ship called the Free Winds. So these right. three uh, these three people were in the Sea Organization. Those are the guys who signed the billion year contracts to basically dedicate their lives to Scientology. Um, they all live in Australia. They are suing a handful of Scientology organizations, and they are also suing David Miscavige as an individual because um, David Miscavige was responsible for personally ordering one of those people to be sent to the Free Winds so that her own mother could not find her. Um, and so Miscavige for the last eight months has been in hiding, uh, dodging process servers all over the country. Uh, the, the lawyers in this case have tried to serve Miscavige at no less than 11 different Scientology addresses where Miscavige is absolutely known to live and work. All the security guards at all the locations are like, David Miscavige, never heard of him. Go, uh, please leave. <laughs> Please tell me the uh, the rules in terms of serving, because my only frame of reference is like television and movies where someone literally has to hand somebody a document for its account. Is that accurate? Well, that's the thing. And look, I'm not a lawyer, so I, my, you know, my opinion on this is is limited. Um, but I but I have a lawyer who I speak with on my channel about this all the time. The spirit of the law is that the purpose of service is just so that someone is aware of the litigation 
and so that they, so if they don't so that if they don't show up the court knows they didn't show up and they knew they were supposed to got you the implementation of this law is such that yeah for the most part you have to physically hand this person something to either him or someone who's authorized to accept service. Well, Scientology has it set up so that it's not possible to serve David Miscavige. And yet during these eight months, um, Scientology has published um, promotional materials showing that David Miscavige has been at these locations, has put on events at these locations, has taken meetings at these locations. Miscavige is currently in the process of scheduling in-person face-to-face meetings with a number of Clearwater city council members. This has been discussed publicly at city council meetings. And so basically the lawyers um, have recently filed a motion with the court to say, look, we have done everything possible. And it's not that we've not been able to serve him. It's that he's actively evading service. And they've asked the court to rule one, can you rule that he has been served? And two, since he's been intentionally evading the court, can you rule that he's in default, which would mean David Miscavige loses the case on its merits um, without even being tried. The court's unlikely to make that ruling. But because he is on the verge of a court saying, yes, David Miscavige is considered served. This has never happened before. But because it's, that's on the cusp of happening, he's finally uh, hired a lawyer. And he hired a lawyer who was the 2016 president of the Florida bar. You know, the bar, that's like the, the, the club of lawyers, essentially. <laughs> In order to be a lawyer, you have to be licensed with the bar. And so, and this person is going to show up in court to represent Miscavige, but not represent him for this lawsuit, just to represent him on the single issue of whether he's been served. And so we expect this lawyer to literally, yeah, we expect this lawyer to literally show up and make the argument, um, uh, your honor, uh, these guys haven't tried hard enough to serve my client. He's not, he's not evading service. He's just so busy. (laughs) He's just so busy. Being so helpful to Scientology organizations all around the world, it's just so hard to find him. And these guys just haven't tried hard enough yet. It's going to be so entertaining to see what's actually said at this hearing. Surely he's aware that he's been served then in order to hire a lawyer to defend against the possibility of being served. Yeah, this is brilliant. And will it be televised is my next question. It, it will not be. It will not be. I was at the hearing. I was at the last hearing in this case, and they wouldn't even let people bring in a, an Apple Watch into the course, courtroom. They're so restrictive on electronic devices. But I'll be there with my little notebook, and I'll you know do a video about it whenever it happens. So what what is it specifically he's being charged for then? I mean, what are the implications of being found on the wrong side of the law with these things for him? But realize this is a civil lawsuit. So anything he gets found guilty of here, it's not um, criminal. It's not guilty, innocent. It's just liable or not liable. Um, You know, labor trafficking. um, uh, I'm going to lose the legal word here, but confining someone against their will. um, You know, these people that work on the free wins, they have their 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 documents confiscated, uh, their passports, their visas, their IDs and everything like that. You you couldn't leave if you wanted. I think. Uh, you know, the, the, I don't want to say the wrong legal word. And sometimes the word in the criminal law is different than the word in the civil law. Civil, so, yeah. Yeah. But, um, you know, the organization that Miscavige runs uh, called RTC is one of the defendants in the case. Oh, that's the other thing. All of the the corporation defendants accepted service, no problem. But like only David Miscavige as an individual is the one running around pretending that nobody knows where he is. <laughs> it's very childish. Um, and the judge doesn't seem to have much patience for this. In fact, the federal the federal judge overseeing this case says, I have never seen this before. 
I have never seen someone debate whether someone has or has not been served. It's either they have or they haven't. And, and, and he said, look, if I schedule a hearing on this case, is anybody from the other side even going to show up? David Miscavige's personal attorney was sitting in the back row of the courtroom, and she just sat there silently with her mouth shut. <laughs> Monique, oh. Yingling, Monique Yingling is the person who generally represents David Miscavige, and um, she was there. She was there, although apparently her client has no idea that, but that these proceedings are even happening. It's a mystery to him, isn't it? Um, I mean, what's the potential here for him just to settle his way out with his wallet in terms of avoiding any sort of further further litigation or public embarrassment? Well, eventually, that will be the result of this case. It's a civil case. The only possible um, result is a financial result. So um, uh, Scientology will have uh, ways of dragging this suit out for years. And I wouldn't expect Scientology to offer... Uh, any big cash settlement until it looks like they have no other option. That's usually what their playbook is. Um, but that is how I eventually see this playing out. Well, to, to like a majority of the population, Scientology plays out as a bit kooky. People aren't interested or they think it's weird, but it does seem to be spreading. Its tentacles do seem to be reaching out far across the globe from my home country, Australia, America, everywhere you can think of now, it feels like Scientology have got some sort of presence. So to a lot of people, it does look like it's going from strength to strength. And I suppose you, you it's, it's kind of counterproductive or counterintuitive, but you assume that organizations with such bad reputations and practices would decline downwards but unfortunately life isn't a fairy tale and things don't work out that way but i was wondering if you can give me any good news on that score in terms of the public perception or their ability to keep producing funds to the extent they are is there is there any end in sight for this organization in, in your view i think that there is scientology has been steadily declining it's um um if you name any science any city in australia where you think there's some scientology um that is that that's going to be an organization that's been there for many decades. Scientology has not opened a new organization in 30 to 40 years. Um, what you'll hear about is them opening new buildings. And that's yes. part of David Miscavige's strategy to continue to raise money um, and also continue to create the illusion of expansion. When Scientology opens a new building, they will put out a press release calling it a new church. It's not a new church. The church has been there forever. Miscavige has um, implemented this new real estate program in Scientology called, he calls it the ideal organization program, where even a tiny little organization that might have 30 staff members and 50 public is told that they have to raise money to buy a 50,000 square foot building for millions and millions of dollars. And then the renovations are millions more. And um, it's, you know, one of the things so because Scientology has this tax exempt status, it's actually not allowed to just hoard massive piles of cash. One of the authorized uses of these funds is to buy real estate, to buy buildings. And so it accomplishes two things for Miscavige. It allows him to put Scientology's money to work in a legally permissible, but also legally required way. And it allows him to create the illusion of expansion. But Scientology has been contracting membership wise since the late 80s early 90s at its peak there was about 100,000 members now there's less than 30,000 i don't see them ever reversing the downward trend of membership and i think we'll see their accumulation of funds start to slow and then decline once their tax exemption is revoked i do think them having tax exemption revoked is, is somewhat inevitable 
I can't say right. whether it'll take five, five years or 10 years or 20 years, but I do think it is inevitable. Uh, and I think it's going to come down um, to the financial sort of credit card, bank fraud, wire fraud crimes that Scientology has been committing that, um, that the federal authorities have lots of evidence about um, is my understanding. And, you know, when we help people escape from Scientology at the Aftermath Foundation, if they have personal experience and evidence of the crimes that I just mentioned, we definitely put them in touch with the right people who are interested in such things. <laughs> yeah. So I do believe they will inevitably be prosecuted um, for serious felonies, federal felonies, and that that will open the door to getting their tax exemption revoked. And although I can't say how long that will take, I think that when, when that exemption is revoked, that will be the last chapter, the beginning of the last chapter of Scientology. That's how I see it. Well, that is an extremely hopeful note to end on. Is there a, is there a minor risk as, of maybe some sort of big rebranding exercise? I've already seen in some ways a lot of their outreach is based around this idea of self-help and kind of hook people into this kind of new agey guise of mental health and things like that. Um, I think there's a chance. I think there's a chance. I say ne never underestimate um, what a cornered rat will do. <laughs> <laughs> you know, could they reemerge as some kinder, gentler brand of Scientology? It's possible. But, um, you know, in the UK, they have something like the public benefit test for charitable organizations. Like the yeah. UK, Scientology is not tax exempt in the UK. The UK doesn't give a damn that Scientology is tax exempt in America. They, they have some public benefit test and they said Scientology doesn't meet that test. <laughs> so, yeah, charitable status is, is quite difficult to obtain in the UK, a lot of regulation in that regard. But Aaron, this, is, this has flown by. I've really enjoyed speaking to you. Obviously, know far more than we can talk about in half an hour. Andrew. Andrew's here as well, just to ruin what was a great conversation. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't let Aaron leave without me sort of popping my face in. But uh, how you doing, mate? Hey, how are you? Very ill, but you know, as you I was complaining to Stephen about it, it's always talking about being ill. It's, <laughs> no one cares. This is mate, it's Jewish humor or something, isn't it? Like <laughs> you, sound good. you sound pretty good, you don't sound all nasally or anything. Yeah, well, I I am. So that's don't you know? Don't call me a faker. It's, that was a thing at school, wasn't it? You know, you ever said you were ill to like a friend at high school, whatever? They they would always be like faking it, mate. You fucking you faking it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, not wanting to sort of play the gender card here, but have you noticed that it, as a male to be ill now, it's simply just man flu, regardless of what yeah. ailment you're being faced with. Yeah, yeah. I've just I've had to learn to live with that. Well, I play I play up to that because I know it's funny and I sort of, I know that if I sort of accept it, I'll lie in bed and I'll be going, like, I'm not long for this world. Can you bring me some soup or something like that? And it's like me being silly. I'm, I'm playing to the role and therefore, you know, uh, they'll, they'll, she'll treat me nicely. Yeah. Well, Andrew and I are looking to do a chat tomorrow, I believe. Oh, yeah. Tomorrow night. So, yeah, I just tweet, I just tweeted at you about that. So we're going to we'll do that. So everyone come watch us and look at go on go on growing up in scientology and godless spell checker and uh it's, it's not called that on youtube is it or is it uh the night tube on youtube night tube night tube on youtube godless spell checker and you know that everyone knows all this stuff god see i'm oh, ill i'm now. all over the place <laughs> but uh all right i'm gonna i'm gonna kick you both off because we've got a much more interesting person than either of you coming on all right man talk to you soon yeah. <laughs> thank you see good you to speak to you Good to speak to you. Oh, it's all kicking off. Hello, everyone. And it's Richard Grannon, who I think is in the... 
oh, he wasn't a thing. He's gone now. I regret kicking those guys off. Um, <clears throat> it's just going to be, oh, 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 what? oh, okay. Well, I can kick them in back in for a bit because it what? says Richard's <laughs> devices are not connected. Good doing? thing you weren't picking your nose. Isn't that funny? Because for, for everyone else, they don't realize you guys just stay there. Like hours and hours will pass and you're still, those faces are always there. I just down I power and just do this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so what, is, your, is your next interview guy not here yet well he is but i can see he's setting up the uh he's setting up his camera and stuff so i'm, I'm gonna give him a minute so it's until he looks comfortable and oh it's gone off again oh god hopefully we're not gonna have a problem otherwise uh otherwise you're gonna have to stay for another hour That'd be good. <laughs> I, what I did thought... you chat about was it fun just yeah just uh just tom cruise mostly it's always tom yeah, cruise isn't we it? Even, yeah we only um we only even covered two of the three proposed talking points i mean time time flies on these chats you know man it does doesn't it i just yeah. put up um a thing about tom cruise because i read and I, I thought you would appreciate this Aaron. i mentioned you in it uh it's not done well actually i thought it would but it was about tom i just read an article in the daily mail about napoleon complex like short man syndrome and it's like a tr thing they've proven it now. So really? I sort of put that in with Tom Cruise and David Miscavige. I said Aaron likes to talk about this as well. Um, and yeah, people have I haven't clicked as much as I thought they would. I thought that would go bananas, but it hasn't. How tall is he? We got is it like five seven, five six? Apparently Who? five seven. That's what he says. So it could so be a bit short. Definitely less. Yeah, five seven with yeah. lifts in his shoes. And David Miscavige is apparently sort of five three or something. Five three with his lifts. He's five one. See, I, I've got I've got a miniature small man syndrome. So I'm five foot nine, which for my year of birth is average UK height. But now five ten is the average yeah. UK height. So I'm officially a short ass. And Stephen, so was I'm, that was that like your year of birth as in for people who were that age when you were born, which was one? Yeah, so for one year, five, there was a lot in the water in Manchester in 1984. Five foot nine toddlers, it's a scary time. Yeah, uh, yeah. you just never now, grew. For my generation, being a millennial, five nine is, uh, is the average height. Uh, as well, there you go. Erin, how tall are you for everyone? Wait, wait, know. are you saying that people are getting shorter or people getting taller? Taller. Taller. Okay. Def definitely taller. So Aaron, I'm what's six, your height? I'm six one. Yeah, you're both short asses, mate. All right. I'll yeah. take you both in a fight. Are you taller <laughs> than six one? I'm 6'4". Jesus Christ. It's weird, that's isn't it? You don't see on the face. That's practically a disability, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> I hate... You know, when I was like 13, I was like, it's already 6'4". So I hated it. But... Uh, it doesn't help, but all, my, all my best friends are north of 6'1 as well. So I do, yeah. I do look like part of a circus act when we're out together. <laughs> you do anyway. Right, on that note, love <laughs> you both. Merry Christmas. Looks like Rich is ready. Go away. <laughs> Oh, lovely people. Richard, how are you doing? I'm very well, sir. How are you? I am very well, too. Good to have you on. I've, I love your channel. I've been looking around. We're going to be talking about narcissism and stuff. Do you, do you mind going through the basics? I mean, what, what? I know it seems obvious to a lot, of, but maybe it isn't obvious. What is narcissism? Um, well, narcissistic personality disorder is usually typified by somebody who is very, very attached to a false sense of self. Um, and through that false self, that delusional view of themselves as, as grandiose and all-important and all-powerful, they filter reality. So they're not very good at taking on external reality. They filter it through this uh, delusional uh, false sense of self. So it's typified by, by envy, bullying, um, exploitativeness, um, a strong sense of entitlement, a deep sense of attachment to that 
false sense of self so that if you attack it or say you're not as amazing as you think you are, you'll usually experience what we call narcissistic rage. Mm -hmm. And so does that mean that these people don't necessarily realize they're doing bad things when they do bad things? It's, it sounds like from what you've said that they, uh, they feel like they've been badly treated and they've been given dealt a, a rough hand. It's an interesting question. It's at the core of, of psychology. It's like a philosophical question. Um, if somebody is mentally ill, are they alleviated from any sort of moral uh, duty? Um, obviously, there are times within the legal system, if you can prove that you've become clinically insane for a temporary period of time, you can get a different sentence or a shorter sentence. Um, I believe that they know the difference between right and wrong. And I believe that this factors in strongly with psychopathy. They know what is right. They know what is wrong. They simply do not care. So I'm not in the camp of saying uh, that this is all moral relativism, that they're victims and that therefore that they should be absolved. I think everybody suffers mm -hmm. trauma and we all have a choice for how we deal with that. But we definitely have. I mean, I know if just from myself, I've, I've been to uh, therapy over the years, not, not, not a lot. But, you know, I lived in Argentina where they have the most therapy per capita in the world. So it was like you have to it was like getting a cup of tea out there. You go and get a therapy session. And it definitely changed my perspective on times where I thought that maybe someone hadn't been good to me. And I thought, oh, well, actually, maybe that was my fault. And I was able to sort of look in was that sort of changed. So maybe I guess what I'm angling at here is can narcissists change? Can they start to see things like reframe things? Um, narcissistic personality disorder would. So there's the, the, the opinions differ on this. I'm in the camp that says if it's full blown narcissistic personality disorder, then that's in order to identify that as being that, then there has to be no capacity for change. It's extraordinarily rigid. So the uh, ability for them to deflect reality from entering into their space is really, really strong. It's really, really high, and they can keep reality at bay. There is narcissism that exists on a spectrum, though, and at the lower end of the spectrum where you just have a highly narcissistic style or what some people call low-grade narcissism, yes, there could be some change that can be affected over time. There'll be, you can teach people to change the way they act. Uh -huh. And maybe, the, I, I just think the way they frame, I guess if you're always thinking, oh God, they're always doing that to me, everyone's doing bad things to me. And if you, because I'm thinking of particular narcissists I know in my life, that's why I'm asking you, because I'm thinking, what can I, what can I do to maybe help them reframe things? Is there much you can do? Um, I think like you can attempt to feed back to them what's happening and then gauge how, receptive they are to that feedback if they're not receptive to it at all then really what can any of us do within the boundaries of the law i mean you could kidnap them and then stick them in a brainwashing camp and feed them psychedelics and um you know retrain <laughs> them to, to think in a in a different way but outside of doing that through adult to adult consensual conversation no there's there's very very little hope Hmm. Was there was there something that happened perhaps in your life? What sparked your interest in in narcissism and uh, leading to your quite wonderful and popular channel? Um, I think uh, I was raised in a highly narcissistic environment. Um, I would think that my parents would be on the uh, spectrum for narcissism as well as borderline and, and psychopathy. Um, so I was raised in a very unstable environment. So I've always had a a lifelong interest in, in mental health. And then as I got into adulthood, I was examining some of my relationships and I could see 
um, I think out of two of, of 12 relationships, there was a very, very high degree of um, narcissistic style there, to say the least. Do you think that, is, is there, and not in a victim blaming way, but is there something that some of us do to attract or to search for narcissists? I'm not one of those mental health people that jumps up and down in the politically correct way about victim blaming. I, 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 don't, I don't like the way that any, any emphasis of putting responsibility back on the other yeah. person is just written off as, as victim blaming. Victim blaming is like, um, it's like code words. Obviously, victim blaming exists, but you know, to say, "Hey, uh, did you maybe have some semblance of of an impact on this relationship between two adults?" I don't consider that victim blaming. No, I think um, it's a perfectly reasonable question, and any responsible adult should welcome that question um, and not write it off as, as some sort of I don't know microaggression or yeah. offence um, or victim blaming. Um, no, of course, we have a responsibility. Unless you were dragged into the relationship at gunpoint, but that's psychopathic abuse. That's where the law has been transgressed. That's uh, the kind of thing serial killers do. Um, and this is not that, it requires our consent. And then when we stay, even after we've realized the relationship is abusive, we have to ask the question, well, why, why did I stay? What was causing me to stay there? Mm. And what kinds of things, is it sort of people pleasers and that kind of person? Um, I, I think, I think the human mind will look for uh, simple solutions to, to quite complicated questions. And we have two hands, we have two halves of the brain and two eyes. So we like to create dichotomies and binaries. Um, so there, there is like this tendency to go, oh, there's a narcissist and there's a codependent or a people pleaser or, or whatever. I think sometimes it's an individual thing. I think individually, yes, sometimes like people like myself definitely have a pronounced um, people please a tendency because of the environment that I was raised in, that was a survival mechanism for me. And for other people, they're just entrained through the relationship itself. They had no pre-existing problem, but the relationship itself entrained them to behave in a new way and to react and feel in new ways. Narcissistically abusive relationships, uh, especially if they're romantic, or familial, the more intimate they are, are brainwashing camps. It's a cult with two people inside of it. It's a cult of one, essentially. Uh, one leader, one follower. And you are brainwashed. You are brainwashed inside of that camp. So that brainwashing can lead to people-pleasing tendencies, even if there was none there before. Wow. And then I'm just thinking as well, uh, and I'm just thinking out loud here, because I don't know anything about this, but do people sometimes, if they've got a narcissistic parent do they then seek out a partner that mimics that relationship sometimes as if almost if, like this time i can get it right that kind of thing yes um that was something that freud identified as, as repetition oh. compulsion so the pain yes you're just like freud i'm just thinking that <laughs> you'd be glad you'd be glad to know um so yeah. he, he he would have said uh, yeah, repetition compulsion. You're trying to resolve something in childhood that you failed to resolve in adulthood and you're doing it compulsively. You're doing it unconsciously and obsessively, desperately seeking for that release from the, the trauma bind from, from childhood. It can be that. It can be that we were raised in environments that were abusive and tyrannical and dictatorial. And so abusive, tyrannical, dictatorial environments feel 
like home to us. They feel comfortable to us. Something that is egalitarian, adult, um, and and honest, and, and requires consent would feel uncomfortable. Would feel alien and strange, and so we would move away from it if we were raised in those kinds of environments. Interesting. And and where do you stand on Freud? Because again, I don't know much about psychology, but obviously it it was sort of very in vogue not long ago to you know Freud this, Freud that, and now it seems to be always discredited. And but what you just explained, which was my own theory you know parroted back at me i suppose in a sense uh i suppose it makes sense to me and then of course it does because that's what i just said but it makes sense right i don't know yeah i think i think if you look i mean um young freud adler freud was a complicated man um there was probably too much wholehearted acceptance for the things he said originally he really is the grandfather of psychology not just the grandfather of psychoanalysis and then around the 70s, um, I don't think it was her fault, but I think it was a sign of the times, uh, a journalist who was a radical feminist came up with a conspiracy theory um, about Freud that's been widely circulated and widely accepted since that he was essentially victim blaming uh, the experiences of his female patients who'd been abused in childhood. It's not tr true. The radical feminist journalist not a psychologist, a journalist, got it wrong, got it totally wrong, or she willfully got it wrong. But the moment was, you know, screw this old white German guy with a cigar in his beard who never smiles. He's not like Jung, who's always pictured smiling, and Adler was a friendly socialist. Uh, Freud, Freud was much more paternal, and it was an anti-patriarchal moment. So this meme of saying, screw you to Freud, spread like wildfire. So to this day, yes, in university, when I was at university, if you said Freud, people laughed at you. Wow, that's fascinating. Was Freud was cancelled. He was a genius. He was cancelled, yeah, he's been cancelled. Cancel culture got Freud. I can't believe yeah. that. Wow, what a, what, a, what a shame, I suppose. Well, I quite like that sort of concept that we're always trying to sort of rectify things. You, you mentioned the cult of one before, sort of being with a narcissist. What about cults in general? Um, I gather psychopaths, for example, there's like 1% in society, but probably 2 or 3% it's CEOs and maybe cult leaders and stuff. Might that also um, relate to, to narcissists? Might there be sort of cult leaders who are narcissists and things? Narcissistic uh, and psychopaths are frequently comorbid. Um, so I, th I believe narcissistic personality disorder of all the personality disorders is most often comorbid, which means it, it shows up with other personality disorders. Or in other words, it's very rare for somebody to be just narcissistic personality disorder. So one of the things that they're frequently comorbid with, diagnosed with, is psychopathy. So narcissistic psychopaths are going to look for environments that affirm rather than challenge their um, delusional self-image, which is the delusional self-image is I'm amazing, I'm wonderful, and I deserve special treatment. So they will either seek to become leaders uh, legitimately, as you know, CEOs, or put themselves in positions of power, or yes, they will actually seek to run cults. People who are running cults are probably at the more psychopathic end of the spectrum and less pro-social. Uh, the more pro-social they are, you're probably looking at somebody who's on that spectrum of psychopathy to narcissism is more of a narcissist. It's interesting because I always look at those leaders and think that they 
sometimes they seem to be true believers, you know, in whatever they're preaching. Uh, and I guess we like to think of like the good guys and the bad guys, but maybe they think they're good guys. I guess I guess I don't know what my question is because because you can't possibly answer it without speculating. But but I mean to to, to what extent to what extent are cult leaders really thinking that they're doing good, and can that still mean that they are you know a psychopathic narcissist? Um, I think once you've entered the realm and you're looking at the subjective reality of a narcissist psychopath, these questions about good and bad they they don't really make that much sense there you know it's like taking a psychedelic and entering a hellscape inside of that subjective reality there is only exploitation there is only power there is only control the concept of good and bad is like an alien language that they have to learn to speak to dominate colonize and exploit the aliens that they're there to exploit we are alien to them we are things to them so good and bad is not is not something they're going to lie awake at night thinking about power or not power is is something they would lie awake at night thinking about interesting because i i thought that was psychopaths but but just narcissists like not psychopathic narcissists i would have imagined and again i know i'm coming from a place of knowing nothing that they would be like oh god the world's against me and, and everyone else is doing bad to me but but am, am i doing wrong would they, or would they but, but you're saying that's not the case they're not wondering if they're doing wrong not particularly until you start to look at another potential model which would be fragile or vulnerable narcissism where because that's driven by a strong sense of guilt and shame so in view of that this is this is a model that's questioned um by some er areas of psychology fragile or covert narcissism or vulnerable narcissism would be triggered by their own grandiosity so Let's say I imagine that I deserve special treatment, but the world largely doesn't confirm that. They just think I'm an idiot and I'm a loser. I'm not getting the feedback that I'm as wonderful as my false self is telling me that I am. So I'm constantly triggered by my own grandiosity and the feedback from the world into feelings of failure and guilt and shame. They may be more prone through trying to roll through those feelings of guilt and shame to consider, am I doing good? Am I doing bad? But I would still claim that that filter of good, like we'd have to have, again, it's a philosophical question. What does good mean? So good to you might mean really serves people and is, is good for the social environment. Good to them might be it, everybody is praising me for serving people and praising me for being good to the social environment. Do you see the difference? Yeah, yeah. Do we not? I said a lot of words there. Of I'm not. I'm not sure if that made sense. <laughs> no, it made it made total sense. Like good, good to be praised, uh, and good to yes, yes, but not because you think you're doing good, right? But not really good, not actually authentically good. It's only good if I'm seen to be good. Yeah. But do we not all have a, I guess it must be on a spectrum to an extent, because I've had that feeling when I've like given money to a charity or something, and then I'm desperate to tell people that I did it, right? Deep down. I don't, obviously I'm slightly ashamed of that, but I don't mind admitting that to you. I want to tell people I've done it. So I must have some yeah. of that in me. Or am I now, am I a narcissist? No, I think, I think that um, <laughs> I'm pretty sure that there was uh, either stories in, in the Christian Bible, it was certainly stuff that I was taught growing up as a, as a Christian that, you know, the truly Christian thing to do is to help people without seeking recognition. But there are people, I'm, I'm sure it was a parable, but there are people who will only do it if they get recognition. There is latent narcissism in all of us. 
we are um, social creatures, we're tribal creatures. My sense of self is not individual. It's moderated by how the other members of my tribe view me. So the idea of doing good without receiving any social currency for that is not really written into the, the sort of the software of being a human being. So then you'd have the question, like, where's the discrete boundary between the latent normal narcissism, healthy narcissism, the average human, um, and that of a malignant narcissistic psychopath? And it could be a question of degree. It could be a question, like, you can admit it and have a sense of humor about it. And I'd be like, mate, you should do that anyway, you know? And you go, oh, yeah, I should. They're not going to do that. They're not going to do that. There's just no reason on earth why they would. So the rigidity would be the difference that makes the difference. If I said that to somebody who's an narcissistic psychopath, that's where the shutters would come down. They'd be like, no, I'm not doing that. I'm not giving my money away without getting recognized for it. Mm, I think we all know people like that. How common are they? Like, would we all have gone, had one or two mates in our school group who were one of them? Um, they, they change the figures, uh, where, where psychologists get these, I mean, psychology is, you know, <laughs> tries to be scientific. It's a soft science at best. So they were saying it was one in a hundred and now some are saying 5% and some are saying 15%. It depends on how you measure it. I mean, that's science, isn't it? Like, you, you know, you make it, you make it, you make a claim about your data and I'm another scientist. I'll be like, can I see your work, please? I'd like to know how you came yeah. to that conclusion. So if we mean like a pronounced narcissistic and exploitative style, I would, I would agree with the people that say that, yes, it's a very high percentage of the population, 15, 20%. Actual malignant narcissistic, psycho, narcissistic psychopaths, I think would be still quite a small number. I think it's probably like two or three out of 100. But social media, modern media, modern culture encourages a narcissistic style. So, um, yeah, I think, I think we're going to see huge numbers of, of that number of that type of thing exploding so yeah i think that's very commonplace today so that that would suggest that it's not you're not necessarily born a narcissist i mean you spoke of latent narcissism uh but but the idea that our society is shaping narcissism i mean is that something that worries you um very much very very much i mean i'm very concerned about the state of the world and the state of our so-called civilization now um, it could be because I'm a middle-aged man and I'm becoming curmudgeonly and I see the world as being on the road to ruin. Or we could be going through a real phase of, of, of negative downward change. I don't know. But yes, it, it worries me very much. I am not a fan of the idea you were born this way. The reason why I'm not is because it appeals to um, a sort of a superstitious sense. Humans like these stories. They're like, oh, you got that from your dad. You know, you got your green, your grandfather had green eyes and your grandmother was a horrible bitch. And that's why you, you know, steal money at work or whatever you do. So uh, I, we like that and we're superstitious in that way, but that's not good enough. There isn't really hard evidence yet to suggest that there is a genetic component. And anyway, we live in the age of epigenetics, which means that your environment affects the expression of different genes. So it becomes a moot point. Like if you were raised in an abusive environment, did that cause at an epigenetic level the expression of different genes that made you less empathic and more confrontational and more exploitative? Entirely possible. So yeah, I don't. I, I would encourage people to stay away from the the just so version of things. Like yes, he was born a psychopath or she was born a narcissist. 
it's it's probably both it's probably nature and nurture it's the environment and and what you're born with and what is it about society that is encouraging narcissism how long have you got um <laughs> brief briefly we we probably somewhere along the line as a as a society whatever that means or, or as a culture or as a people i mean but this is a global phenomenon now we kind of sold our soul a little bit we lost religion we embraced scientific materialism fine you know that's that seemed like progress i understand that but i think unhindered the um sort of the very western mechanistic materialistic view of reality brought about an acceleration of consumer capitalism which means that the people were encouraged to buy goods not that they needed but that they wanted and we could thank edward uh, bernays freud's nephew um for the propagation of that of that problem he created uh, marketing modern marketing as we understand it in fact is created by sigmund freud's nephew using his uncle's principles of the unconscious and he did a very good job and he made an awful lot of money but with consumer capitalism we're all pushed into a modality that makes narcissism and psychopathy a more logical way of conducting yourself in the world so if you're a materialist a, a, a mechanical materialist you believe that this flesh suit is going to be healthy for like 65 years and dead after 85 years it only makes sense that you should experience as much pleasure and power as you can in the limited period of time you have that's consumerism so drink more eat more snort more coke have sex with more people it creates um, a very vulgar and brutalizing cultural milieu that we have to swim through and as we're swimming through it we all become more vulgar we all become more brutal in order to survive and what is effectively in my eyes becoming a prison planet it's the planet itself is beautiful we have everything we need here but we've swallowed a nightmare pill and we're turning it into a, a real horror show hmm. is that i'm just trying to think of like the sort of tribe dynamics i don't know if maybe i'm reading too much into that stuff uh, evolutionarily you're in a tribe and i suppose you've got to get that balance right between doing what's right for you to survive long enough to pass on your genes so you've got to be selfish in that respect and also what's what's good for the tribe and so so i guess this, this, when we become narcissistic is it just tilting a little bit too far that way well when we when we were living as hunter gatherers the thing that would have held, I mean, there was just no chance for capitalism, never mind consumer capitalism, because capital is stuff. And if you're running in fear of your life or running to find shelter all the time, what can you hold in your hands? Like a spear, your favorite cloak, your father's thigh bone or whatever, whatever the hell like they were carrying around. And, um, you know, you just couldn't, capitalism wasn't, wasn't an option and consumer capitalism was millennia away. Consumer capitalism has been around for the flash of an eye as capitalism has. I'm not a Marxist, but Marx identified something that he called uh, primitive or tribal communism, which is what you're talking about, which is say, if we lived in a, in a hunter gatherer tribe, you and I and 28 other people fighting for survival every day, of course, I'm going to feed you if I can. Of course we share the tools because if we don't, we're all going to die. Like there's no, there's no options there. There's, there isn't like a cornucopia of choice that's going to spoil the human mind. Brett Weinstein uh, talks about this a lot on the Dark Horse podcast. We are not a good evolutionary match for these 
for the environment that we've created. We're a very poor evolutionary match. So you asked about evolution. That, that, that was what made me think. Yeah, about. yeah. I'm I'm really interested in that stuff. I get I get really excited by by all of it. Um, I mean I mean I suppose as well in the tribe it, did it did it make sense? What well, okay I, I guess you're saying that there's, there's not necessarily just a psychopathic gene or something. So I'm wondering if it made sense to have the odd psychopath in a tribe. I suppose in case you're warring against another tribe. Uh, yeah, you would you would have had. I mean, it, <laughs> psychopath and narcissist are. Uh, these are culture-bound definitions that they don't even make sense in modern Western culture. They don't make sense outside of our culture. It doesn't it? Doesn't mean anything, um, other than um, all all psychological diagnoses are. There are plenty of cultures where you could talk to the spirits, talk to the rain gods, you know, believe that you changed into an eagle and had a vision of the future of the tribe. That was no problem. You try that now, they'll lock you up. So it's all it's all context specific. So other people have changed that and called it the warrior gene. They said these are the war makers of the narcissistic psychopaths. And yes, probably, there probably is an evolutionary advantage in having in a tribe of 50, one or two of the guys there being a bit unhinged uh, just in case there's a real problem and you throw them forward first. They probably would have been, uh, uh, had a very high tolerance for risk, very high levels of aggression, being extremely delusional, like they thought they would conquer in every in every battle, which you should be if you're running into battle because you have a better chance of surviving if you do. So yes, it, it could have been incidental in that way, yeah. Interesting. How long would you have to have a conversation with someone before identifying them, or would you be able to identify them as a narcissist? Um, I mean, if, you, you, you're, not, you're not really supposed to do it through a conversation. You need a qualified clinician, uh, to give them questionnaires that they can't trick their way through under clinical conditions. Um, inside of an hour of, of me personally talking to somebody, I can see if they are mentally ill in a way that is going to be problematic inside of about 45 minutes to an hour. You can tell. You can tell if people are open to new concepts, if they're capable of listening. Um, I believe that you can probably tell the rate at which people are processing thoughts to a degree, or you can intuit it. Um, so yeah, about 45 minutes to an hour to know if somebody had a serious mental health issue that was going to make communication difficult. But narcissism, I very rarely in my personal life do I look at people and go, oh, that person's, that person's a narcissist. Because if I let myself do that once, I think I'd, I'd probably go crazy. Yeah, I remember reading in the psychopath test John Ronson's book. Uh, he said that he became a bit sort of addicted as a as a layperson. You really, it's really quite an addictive thing to go around pointing, going, "Well, he's definitely one. He's one." And as soon as I read that, I started doing the same thing. Always aware that I was being ridiculous, but thinking, yeah. "Oh God, oh, I wonder who's a narcissist in my life." It must. I mean, it's tempting, isn't it? That kind of we like to put people in boxes, I suppose. We, we like to put people in boxes, and I think. There's kind of like a parlor game element to it. It's like who's who done it, who's the murderer, um, who's the narcissist in any group. Um, I just I've I've really avoided doing that because um, I just think it would I just think it would do irredeemable damage to my ability to have relationships with people. So I really, when I'm off, when I'm not working, uh, I really switch off. Like I just don't I just don't think about that stuff at all 
perhaps to my detriment, has probably gotten me into trouble with people because I'm just off. <laughs> what about like celebrities that you look at? It must be, you must be tempted. A lot of people talk about uh, someone like Meghan Markle, someone like Tom Cruise. They get talked about a lot as potent, you know, on online and stuff. Have, have you thought about them? Yes, I, I, I do sometimes. You know, um, I watched uh, Tom Cruise thanking people on an Instagram video yesterday for attending uh, the Top Gun movie. And then he parachuted backwards out of a plane um, and continued talking during the parachute jump with the special mic he had on. It was really impressive. Wow. And I, and I was thinking, what, you know, he's been doing that kind of stuff for years. And I was thinking, what makes him tick? And if you see him receive, like, his gold medallion at the uh, Dianetics Club, what's the other word for Dianetics? Uh, Scientology. Thank you, Scientology. Uh, the Scientology. Yeah. Have you seen him receive his gold medallion from the Scientology? I've seen pictures of that when he's got the thing, yeah. Yeah. And you just think, well, what must it be like for any of them who became stars at such a young age? And then they maintain, like, he's maintained, he's had a good career. He's maintained a level of success. Like, he's one of the all time Hollywood greats. Um, and so you would, I would, like, I would be weird. I would be very strange like if, if, if I'd lived. I mean, from the age, I think he was one of his first major roles. He was like 18 or 19. How weird would you be if the world knew your face at 18 or 19 and you had just unlimited access to money, sex, drugs, every vice you can think of? It doesn't matter. People are going to protect you because you're such a high-value asset. That level of fame, I, I, I'm not surprised that people like that become strange. Um, I've never seen anything that makes me think he's particularly uh, predatory. Um, Meghan Markle, on the other hand, <laughs> just seems <laughs> to on. live. Well, I, I would just look on the face of it. I would just look. I would. I, 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 I'm not going to say narcissist, psychopath, borderline, but I would say, um, you know, parasite. Um, and I would say highly manipulative. She's entered... Uh, of foreign territory, literally and figuratively, and gouged something out of that territory, taken it away to another place, and is now feeding on it. So it's, she's, uh, she's absolutely, the actions itself are exploitative and parasitical. And you look at poor, poor Harold there, he doesn't look like a strong, healthy, happy, masculine, assertive man. You know, he's a fluttering little nitwit at this point. It's not not um, very smart. Like the, the, the impression I the impression I get is he's not very smart. Uh, yeah, um, yeah, perhaps you know, perhaps inbreeding isn't a really good way of isn't a really good policy <laughs> for, for creating <laughs> smart royals. Um, no, I I never thought of him as being particularly dimwitted until I watched ten minutes of which was all I could stomach of their Netflix show, and I thought, wow, he's pretty stupid. Actually, he's a pretty stupid man. Um, but yeah, that, that I would say at the very least, I can't say narcissist codependent, but I can say, yes, that bears the hallmarkings of, a, of an abusive relationship for sure. Interesting. So, because Megan, she's, I suppose, what I was talking about at the start, I guess, what in my mind, it's these narcissists who think they're doing good and doing right. I listened uh, again as, as much as I could stomach to, to her audio podcast uh, where she interviewed <laughs> Serena Williams. And I was just blown away by line after line because Serena Williams is one of the most respected, uh, incredible people. You know, I, everyone seems to respect Serena Williams for what she's done, what she's accomplished in tennis and all that stuff. And 
Serena kept putting herself on, sorry, uh, Megan kept putting herself on the same level. She was going, you know, people like us and the things we've done and people, why don't people like um, ambitious people like us? And I was just thinking, like, well, everyone likes Serena Williams' ambition, but what is your ambition, Megan? She didn't state her, she didn't state what her ambition was. <laughs> and, and I think, again, you could, one could say that's quite narcissistic. Serena Williams has endured a militaristic samurai level of practice since she was a child. And now at the end of like year, decades of that, she's really good at doing a thing. What's Meghan Markle good at doing? What, what's, what, where's her practice? What, what does she practice that? Stealing royals. <laughs> it was a, it was a Stealing really royals who have mummy, pre-existing mummy issues. Well, yeah. I was what I was listening, just going. I was waiting for the moment where she just. I, I find it so slippery because I just want her to state what it is her ambition. Because all she talks about that whole episode was ambition and why women aren't allowed to have ambition. Women like her and Serena can't have ambition, and people don't like them having ambition. I just wanted her once to say what her ambition was because, as you say, it just seemed to be becoming a princess, which doesn't seem to be a feminist ideal. And again, people said to me when I've said this before, "Well, you're a man, you shouldn't say what a feminist." ideas well fair enough but plenty of women will also say that becoming a princess is not really an ideal yeah i mean she is ambitious that's for sure who who doesn't want serena williams to do good i've never heard anybody say get you know get rid of serena williams get her out of, of women's tennis I, all i hear is support <laughs> and praise which is as far as i know all she deserves all she's done is work really hard and now she's an amazing athlete and fairly positive it seems no for her to compare herself to serena williams is is, is insane i mean it's, it's completely yeah. ludicrous it's a kind of reverse appropriation she's yeah well so, actually yes she's appropriating serena williams's virtue but she's also colonizing serena williams with her victimhood complex like we're both victims of the same conspiracy no no, you're not. You're not. Nobody's a victim of, of a conspiracy here. People don't like you because you're not likable. The royals didn't like... The royals, I'm sure, are a weird bunch. I'm sure it's not easy to go hang out and have tea at their house. But if they didn't like her, it's because she's not likable. Mm, yeah. Well, I, I hope anyone... If anyone tuned in when Richard was just saying... Uh, people don't like you because you're not likable. He was just talking about Megan, just so anyone knows. If you're just not about me, uh, in case because it, it, in case anyone popped in at that second. My my analysis of you, Andrew, is you are not likable. <laughs> <laughs> in case anyone got in and thought, "Oh, we're, this is juicy," I've just stumbled yeah. in on a fight what, here. What, what's going off here? Settle down, yeah. boys. The thing about you, Andrew, is you're not likable, and that's why the Queen doesn't like you anymore. All right, so that's it. So. No, I, I think <laughs> so Megan, Meg I think Megan would say or do anything to position herself in a in a role where she got attention and and she doesn't have anything like she's not she was she's a nice looking girl uh, she was an actress sort of for a bit I don't know what it is with royals and American actresses isn't she the third or the fourth royal in the, yeah in the last 150 years sorry she's the third or the fourth American actress who's to manage to gouge one of the royals out of the royal family, but um, interesting. Yeah, she's not. You know, she's not gifted in any way, so she has to move to victimhood. She has to lay claim to mm. uh, claims of victimhood, which I've not heard any that sound particularly legitimate. 
to me. I've not heard anything that sounds like a, a legitimate claim to victimhood. Anything outside of what anybody else would receive, trying to move in with a family full of weird toffs. Yeah. They're probably yeah. not that friendly. They're probably not very down to earth. This well, is the annoying why, thing because I, I know people, them then? people will leave comments because they do and they'll say two things. One is they'll say, oh, it's because of uh, because she's black, right? And, and I would just say, and I know I get in trouble when I say this, I swear to God, I didn't realize she was black un until no, I didn't. relatively recently. Did. Right. No, we, we can say this as, as I think it's because we're English. Like, um, it's, it's just different here. In America, they were like, of course she knew she was black. I did not know that she was black. I had no idea. Well, I lived in I lived in Latin America for eight years, and she could easily be Latina. And yeah. I, I grew up in a Jewish family as well in England. Just Jew, and, and a lot yeah. of she could easily pass as Jewish or something as well, yeah. or, 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 yeah. or, or just white. And 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 that's not yeah. you know the fact that we're even sitting here discussing what someone's skin color is is, is not the ideal situation. But she sort of started well, that. Well, and we, I just find we, that we don't. Yeah, we don't do that. Like as, as Brits, we, we don't we don't do that, and so we're being judged by American neurosis and by by the American level of psychosis. It's not. It doesn't matter how many times you say this to Americans, they won't hear it. It is not, and has never been, the issue in this country that it is over there. I'm not saying it's a racism-free utopia. That's a different claim, and what I'm not making. But we don't have the same issues, and no, I have no idea. I think I was, I think I'd heard her name a couple of years. And then somebody said, the uh, black American actress. And I went, who? <laughs> who are you talking yeah. about? I, I, if, if nobody, it never occurred to me to guess. But had you asked me to guess, I would have said maybe, maybe Dominican or maybe she's like, like you said, Latin American. Or no one cares. Who cares? Who cares? Or Spanish? I don't know. Yeah. It didn't matter. So that's the first thing. So anyone who's going to, and I know people will comment that anyway because they won't listen to the full thing and they'll just hear us talking about Megan in the beginning. They will comment that anyway. Oh, it's because of that. And I think those are the people <laughs> with a race issue because they're obsessed. And then the second yeah. thing that they'll always say, which you've already addressed, is like, oh, you, so you think the royal family's perfect, do you? And it's like, no, no, but that's not the point. It's just that I wouldn't marry the royal family. But she chose no. to do that. You know, She's made a concerted effort and she stated her purpose. She stated her ambition before she began with him, that she wanted entrance into the royal family. She pushed and pulled and manipulated her way in there with rigid determination, got inside the castle, as it were, and then whinged that it was a bit cold and a bit windy in there. What did you think it would be like, my love? She never had any intention of being a royal, never had any intention of staying. This was her way of getting into the limelight. And I think the problem that they're both going to find in the next year is no one cares no one cares. There's no reason to care. If you're looking at victimhood, if you're looking at controversy, if you're looking at a fascinating couple with something to say, they're blown out of the water by other people, other issues and other things that are going on. I really think, and I'm going to take great satisfaction in this, karma is going to bite them in the ass and they will mm. slip away as they probably already are into a state of indifference. Nobody's going to care. The, the race issue, yeah. the female issue, the royal issue... Who cares? There's a war on. There's energy prices all over the place. No one cares about you, Megan. Boo-hoo. Well, people do like to sort of join in gossiping about them. They want to hear gossip stuff about them because they're so fed up with them. I think they just don't want to listen to them. Because I'm, yeah, if, I'm on YouTube, if I see on YouTube... <laughs> 
if I see a clip and someone's like, oh, that one of the one of the reasons Megan this or that, or Harry's an idiot because of this or that, I'll click that. But that documentary on Netflix, I've gone past it about fifty times, thinking I can't think of any more boring people than them to actually yeah. listen to. I mean, there is just. I lied before when I said I got through 10 minutes. I think I, I didn't want to sound like I had ADHD. I think I did four. And I think by the 10th, obviously in the beginning, they're going to cut out the most powerful statements. And, and give, what is it? I think it's called a cold open, whatever it is, to lure you in. They're like, oh, I want to know the context for these controversial statements. Just insipid, trite aphorism after insipid, trite aphorism. Had a, a, a comedian written those lines i would have believed it more you know harry whinging about this megan offering some philosophical whimsical insight into grief and i'm, I'm not listening to this i'll be dead one day i don't have time for this yeah what is that is that narcissism then is she is she just a narcissist I can't say that she has narcissistic personality disorder. I can say that she's a fairly standard issue millennial, sorry. But, but <laughs> I told you I'm becoming a middle-aged curmudgeon. There is a type of, there is, so when I say millennial, I'm not condemning all people of a certain generation, but it is known that there was a cultural shift and um, not everyone within that age group went along with it, but many people within that age group developed a kind of narcissism light and a sort of low-grade narcissism um, and became very self-focused and very fame-focused. And I, I taught those kids. I taught those kids when they were in school. So when I was 25, I was teaching 27. I was teaching 15, 16, and 17-year-olds. So I knew what was coming. This was back in um, 2005, 2006, 2007. I was working with the British education system. I knew what was coming. And she's that age. She's Megan, Megan Markle is that age. They, they literally, when you said to them, what do you want to be when you grow up? The majority were saying, I want to be famous. And I was like, for what? Like as, as a serial killer, as, as a committer of genocide, like what, <laughs> for what? And it was just, they, they'd consumed so much reality TV, so much of the Kardashians, so much of Big Brother these music shows uh, where the, you know, Britain's got talent and the talent shows oh, yeah. and you hear the backstory and the sadness and the victimhood. And then that's supposed to affect your listening to how well they can sing or dance. It ruined, it scrambled kids' brains. And I think, does she have narcissistic personality disorder or is she just a standard issue wannabe model actress of a generation who who was determined enough or lucky enough to get herself in a position where she got intimate access to Harry. I mean, she is a good-looking girl. If she said the right words to him, if she was smart enough to say the right words to him and give him the right level of, of, of physical intimacy, yeah, it's, it's easy to see how she could pull him in and make him feel heard and understood. I'm so sorry you're the younger brother. You'll never be king. Everybody sees you as a kid. I don't know my love. You know, it, it's... The game that she must have run on him would have been textbook. Um, but I, I can't sit here and say hey, that's narcissistic personality disorder. I can just say it's highly exploitative and highly narcissistic. Mm, I think so too. Um, <clears throat> I've seen you've done a video on word salad and I want to read you some word salad and I'm going to do the accent <laughs> of the person who it is and because I'm not a great impressionist, but I'll, you might you might see and, and I'll, we'll get what, what you think afterwards. <clears throat> okay. 
Okay, so when I look at religious epistemology cross-culturally, I see a bipartite structure at the bottom of the hypothesizer. There's an idea that there's a material substrate that consists of a kind of latent potential that might be one way of looking at it, and there's the action of forming process on top of that. And it looks to me like it's something like what you would call an intuitive apprehension of the relation between consciousness and the rise of complexity of living forms. Does that words, would that be word salad? Well, well, it depends on what you mean by word salad, bucko. I mean, you know, clean your room. Um, yeah, that's that's bucko. That's gibberish. That's, 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 bucko. that's okay. gibberish. To, to, total gibberish. Total gibberish. Yeah. Um, so you you caught on, and that was Jordan Peterson, and I'm so happy about that because um, I'm not a good impressionist, but I, for some reason I can just about do him. <laughs> no, it was there. It's good. It was good. Yeah. Um, yeah no, that 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 really is. That's dreadful word salad. To to be fair, and I, I'm going to say something that everybody says. I'm I'm not a huge fan of Jordan Peterson. When it comes to issues of psychology, he genuinely is very good. He genuinely is yeah. very insightful. I think, I think so. Relationship psychology, overcoming trauma, the early days. Jordan Peterson, like his first albums, 2015, 2016, <laughs> combining myth, Greek mythology, Christian mythology. Um, great. When he tries to do politics, economics, and it sounded like he was trying to do philosophy there, continental philosophy there. He was talking to Dawkins. And I I think there was a, there was a level of trying to, and he he was misguided because Dawkins is so no nonsense. So he was trying to up his words and things, I think maybe to impress Dawkins. I don't know. Was, so is this, on Jordan Peterson's channel where he's interviewing Dawkins and Dawkins is trying to get away and go to another lecture. Yes. Yes. It, the, the, I do not know why Jordan Peterson released that. I don't know. It's awful. It sounds like he's on drugs. He really sounds high. And Dawkins is saying, Jordan, Jordan, I have to go. I have to go. I have another appointment. <laughs> well, just one more thing. The thing with the substrate of the vertical blah, blah, blah. And you think, Jordan, <laughs> let the man go and do his job. What are you doing? Yeah, no, it was um, Richard Dawkins and Jordan Peterson are not. It's such a shame. I don't because I don't want to. I don't want to be that guy. Jordan Peterson deserves a certain amount of credit, but he gets too much credit, and he is very grandiose, very grandiose, and very prone to fall in love with his own image as reflected back by his fans. You know, the Dawkins interview was a bloody car crash, and then we get these weird videos like. Um, a message to the Muslims, and I'm thinking, mate, oh, God. settle, settle down. Like you know, like the, the Muslims don't need you to give them a little lesson on how Jordan Peterson thinks you should be doing Islam better. Um, so yeah, he's he's. I, I would go so far as to say that in his case, I do think he's significantly mentally ill and very grandiose, very very grandiose. Interesting, because you didn't want to go that far for. Megan or Tom Cruise, but with Jordan Peterson, you'll say you, you will. I've listened to more of Jordan Peterson and I've followed him over the years and the cycles that he goes through, um, the drug use, the specific drugs he was taking and combining, and how he lied afterwards about the drugs he was and wasn't taking. He's to, I'll, I'll, I'll drop this here on, on this channel. He told everybody he was addicted to benzos. And that, that the only problem was that, that it was benzos. Now, the particular benzo, the specific one that he took 
I had insomnia and somebody gave me half of one that I took and it ruined my life for a week. They were very powerful. But what Jordan is not saying is that he was also taking them with Ritalin. So he was taking an upper and a downer at the same time. That's why he got so sick. That's why he got so sick. Wow. This is, I, I can't prove that, but there are podcasts where he intimates that's what he's doing. And I can even reference podcasts where he surges high and you can hear him coming up on the Ritalin and then he goes into a little K-hole on the bento. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So that's yeah, what's yeah. going on. That's why he's so different. Because also, I mean, the other thing I picked up, I guess with Dawkins, he was tr using a higher register. Because usually for a layperson like me, he's very easy to understand, which is one of the marks of his, I, I would call it, well, I don't want to call it genius, but what, what is so good about him or what is so watchable about him. But when he yeah. spoke to Dawkins, the higher register came out. And then the same thing happened when he talked to Stephen Fry. This huge register suddenly came out. And I was like, I'm not, I'm not following this. And Stephen Fry is so good at speaking to people in a way that they can understand. And I yeah. think he was following Peterson, but no one else was. And it was like, I guess it was, he wanted to impress those people, which in a way is endearing, isn't it? It, it is endearing and he's boyish in that way. And that's why when I say these things, I, I, I don't want rid of Jordan Peterson. I, I hope he stays with us. I hope he stays healthy. I hope he goes to therapy. Um, mm. He is a lover of Britain and he's a fanboy of British intellectuals and it, it shines through sometimes. He really loves Brits uh, and British intellectuals are on a pedestal for him. And you can hear... He becomes a student. He's a fawning student in front of a lecturer and he just wants Stephen Fry and, and Richard Dawkins with their posh English accents to pat him on the head because he was a Monty Python lover when he was a kid. It's, it's that. Uh, yeah, Classic. I think so. What's, <laughs> and what, why is word salad a marker of a narcissist? Um, it's a good way of uh, taking a conversation where you want it to go. Um, and, and, and that sounded like Jordan Peterson was using word salad with Richard Dawkins as a narcissist. I, I don't think he was. I think he just was trying to impress him. But as a, as a form of narcissistic abuse, word salad is a way of um, avoiding responsibility when you're being caught. It's a way of reframing a situation that changes the power dynamic. It's a way of denying and deflecting responsibility and putting it back on the person who's accusing you. Word salad is a, is a pretty effective tool of, of keeping people off your back, uh, defensively speaking. Mm, interesting. Yeah, and we, we should, I think we're both saying that we do like the guy. And we have to say that because there is an army of, of JP fans who, are get, like I was saying of Megan, who will be very quick to comment and go, oh, what have you done? Why do you? And it's like, no, we said we do like the guy. You, you're right. We're just sort of having a nice chat about him. So, yeah, it's, go. well, and, and it's, um, there's a rigidity there. There's a, there's a sort of a rigidity and there's a, there's a religious fervor that goes with that, which there shouldn't be. There, there's, nobody should attack. Nobody needs to defend Jordan Peterson. Nobody needs to. He's, he's absolutely fine. Just let it be. Yeah. It's okay. If people say something that's critical of him, there's no need to get triggered. And, and if you are becoming triggered, that's a therapeutic issue that you need to deal with. You don't know the man. He's not going to give you a pat on the back. He's not going to give you a biscuit. Don't worry about it. Don't don't let it ruin your day. And we're not even having a go at him, really. No, exactly. So I I find him like in terms of watching, like I there's no one else who when he suddenly comes on the TV that I I can't help but watch. And especially when because he gets very emotional. He was on Piers Morgan recently and he started crying. Uh, and he cried about Pinocchio and stuff. When he gets that emotional and he stop, he takes those those gaps between words. I just can't. Mm. There's no one I will watch like that. Do you know what I mean? 
I think I think Jordan on his best day um, is one of the greatest public speakers we have alive in the world today. On his best day, on his worst day, it's 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 chaos. It's it's a little bit of a mess. And I think we're looking at somebody who's addicted. We're looking at somebody who's addicted to the limelight. He's addicted to the feedback he's getting from people. He releases too much. Um, some of the stuff is not edited properly. Some of the stuff is not well thought through. He's not always in the right mood for it. He knows he's emotionally labile, um, which is why people who are emotionally labile, emotionally dysregulated, tend to end up using um, drugs or alcohol to moderate those emotions. So it, it's one of those situations where brilliant but, but flawed and, and damaged. And yeah, as we say, like I, I, hope, I really hope he sticks around. And I think he has a good core message. He has a very, very good core message that doesn't absolve him from the fact that he says and does things sometimes that are utterly ridiculous and they detract from the core message because people will then conflate the message with the messenger. What do you think makes a good speaker? Because I'm wondering, I think of Jordan Peterson, I think of like Barack Obama, they, they leave gaps in their words and it's a really confident thing to do because I would worry that someone would think I've finished and would interrupt suddenly or something like that. But they leave these huge gaps. Is that a big part of it? I, possibly. Um, there's, a, there's another philosopher, a speaker that I like, uh, Slavoj Zizek, and, and Peterson and Zizek did this debate, and it was sort of a, a, you know, a sort of conflict-style debate. Jordan Peterson is the better public speaker. Um, Slavoj Zizek doesn't leave gaps, but the content that Zizek was delivering per sentence was much better and, and much higher, but you wouldn't know it. So is it... Mm. So who's better then? Like if, you, if you've got an amazing product, but you can't deliver it to anybody because nobody can know what you're doing, or you have a solid product, but you can deliver it to everybody who knows what you're doing, which is the winning strategy? Yeah, I think pauses are good. I think it's good to sit and think about your answer, which is what he does. Um, people ask him a question and he, he seems to be actually thinking it through in that moment rather than just delivering pat um, you know, pre-formulated uh, sort of answers, which usually are just a form of ideology if they're not thought through. Richard, where do you want to send people? YouTube channel? Um, they can find me on, on YouTube if they put in Richard Granite. You will find me there. I am there. So please, everyone, do go. Uh, he's got Richard's got a hugely amazing channel, hugely popular channel. Uh, so please go, go check it out. Um, just you know, thank our guest for coming on by doing that. And Richard, thank you. That was wonderful. What a great chat that was, wasn't that great, Richard? I loved it. Thank you very much, Andrew. It was a pleasure <laughs> to be on with you. Thank you so much, sir. You are very welcome. Have a lovely evening. Well, that was great. I will bring uh, Stephen on. Did you catch the end of that, Stephen? Good stuff, yeah. Always fascinating to hear about Jordan Peterson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've got oh god, he's just a fascinating person. Oh no, not Shaham. <laughs> Have you got Shaham now? Apparently yeah. so. Good, good to see you again. How are you? He struck gold. Hi, Mister Knight. How you doing? Good to see you, well. sir. I Me like too. the uh, Christmas oh. Christmas apparel. I might just have to mention I'm the only one who made an effort for the Christmas special. Uh, oh, says it right oh, there. Xmas special, and uh, I was going to do it, and then I thought. Um, I thought that this it wouldn't. Oh, oh God. thank God he's gone. <laughs> I, th I think whatever his excuse was going to be, I don't think it was going to be that yeah. good. Christmas miracle. Right. So uh, I believe they you've cut got me um, off. lots. Oh, he's back. It's Ash cutting me off. Should I bring Chris in? Why not? Why not? <laughs> he's gone again. <laughs> oh, that's what's Chris. Hey, guys. How are you? I'm well, Chris. How are you? 
Excellent. Thank you. Hi, really Chris. Looking- Hi, Dave. Good to hear from you. Good stuff. Uh, really looking forward to having this conversation. You, you're possibly the most um, interesting person I would have spoke to for a long time in terms of what you do. So I've got loads of questions for you. I know sure. Shahom has as well, but for, for those of those in the, the chat and the viewers who are probably not, who may not be aware of your work, rather, maybe just uh, you can summarize what it is you can do the best way you can, actually. Sure. Well, I've been an investigative reporter, television reporter in the U.S. Uh, for 40 years and been around the world doing various stories for Dateline, for Killer Instinct. Uh, probably the most iconic or best known is a, the, To Catch a Predator and take down with Chris Hansen predator investigations, which are now going into their 18th year, believe it or not, where we work undercover <clears throat> now with law enforcement across the country. And, and we catch men who approach children online for a sexual liaison. And there's a chat online. The predator always makes the first move and they show up to meet the child. And instead of meeting a child, they meet me and they, they have to be interviewed by me, and then they're arrested by police, and we follow the prosecutions uh, throughout the criminal justice system here in the United States. And, and to be honest with you, I only thought that this would go on for you know a few episodes in the very beginning, that people would wise up and not show up. But the demand, the nature of the predatory mind, and the fact that there has been an explosion in the number of social media platforms upon which an adult can reach out to a minor in inappropriate way um, has made this a continuing series, but also something that's very important to continue the dialogue and to continue creating the awareness so that parents can have a discussion with their children and better protect them online. I have to say, Chris, I'm a big fan of uh, To Catch a Predator and I've seen loads of the episodes on YouTube and my favorite bit, and I imagine probably the favorite bit for a lot of your viewers, Mm. is the second you walk in and you see them squirm. So you see them live trying to make an excuse. And it's just such a terrible excuse. It's usually, you know, I, well, I didn't what, know. What, that you, they were what you're watching is the commission of a felony in real time. And then the collision between that alleged predator and, and justice. I mean, we did another, you know, we, we've got this new uh, crime streaming network called True Blue. And uh, as part of that, we're doing new predator investigations. I was out less than a week ago, less than a week ago. And the first two guys to come in the door both knew exactly who I was, suspected that it was an investigation involving me, but showed up anyway. I mean, the first guy walks in and the first two words out of his mouth are my name. The second guy, we go at it for about 30 minutes and he's got his excuses, as you've heard so many times on the investigations. And uh, it comes to that point where I say, there's something you need to know. And he steals my line. He says, you're Chris Hansen. I said, well, how did you know that? He said, well, I'm 49 years old. I watch television. Everybody knows that. I said, well, help me to understand what was going on in your mind that that made you show up and risk everything to potentially have sex with a teenage girl. And and they never have a great answer. You know, Uh, sometimes they'll break down and sometimes they'll get into the 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 weeds on these issues and and talk about, you know, what caused them to be this way, whether they're being 100% truthful or not, I don't know. But I think sometimes they try. And I think, you know, anybody can jump out of uh, the bushes or out from behind a curtain and create, you know, 10 seconds of dramatic video. What I try to do is engage them in a conversation so that we can better understand the mind of a 
predator. And, and I think, you know, whether we understand how they lie or how they obfuscate or how they, you know, sort of justify their actions, how they spin their excuses, they've had time to do this all the way through the chat and up until the meeting, it's, it's important and it's, it's very good information for parents and, and for all of us to have. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I suppose the great thing is that you're preventing a lot of this before it does progress into, uh, you know, some more serious legal activity, but also on the, you know, the negative side of things is uh, you're not actually short of work in this area either. So, I mean, it, I, how prevalent is this in terms of predators seeking out underage people and, and attempting these kind of meetups? Do you think is there any data we can look at, uh, or you know, have you got any it's really hard to quantify because of the mm. the vast ubiquitous nature of the internet? There's no way to monitor it uh, and to say, okay, there are X number of predators online at any given time. And you know, it used to be in the early uh, investigations, we merely had decoys in chat rooms on AOL and Yahoo. So you could more closely modify it and monitor it. And now there are so many platforms, it's hard to even keep up with what they are, much less what's mm. going on on the platform. Uh, I can tell you that during the peak of the pandemic, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children uh, reported, and they have mandatory reporting mandated by the U.S. government from social media platforms who have to tell a NCMEC when they get a report of an inappropriate contact between an adult and a child or inappropriate material is transmitted between an adult and a child. They have to report that. And at the peak of the pandemic, those reports soared some 900%. More kids online, more potential predators aware of that. Um, again, I think that the, the activity is more prevalent than ever because there is more opportunity than ever. Uh, it's more diffuse. It's harder to find. For every one predator we catch, we don't know how many others are out there operating. But the number has got to be exponential based upon our experience and based upon the fact that, you know, demand reduction uh, doesn't work like it does in the um, drug world uh, for this crime. And so the best defense is the preparation that you give your children, that you the information wall that you can surround them with from a very early age, from the very time they go on the internet to make them aware. And I think by exposing these guys, I think there's a deterrent effect. But again, as I mentioned, you know, 18 years ago, I thought we'd do it once or twice and that'd be it. But here we are still doing it and guys are still showing up. So I've got a question for you, Chris. Apologies, it's a bit of an un, uh, an uncomfortable question. No, so no. the the context of this is: so I'm I'm a forensic psychiatrist, and I rehabilitate people who have offended sure. with mental illness. And only a very small proportion of them are sex offenders, and it's usually because they've got a mental illness that's that's caused that. So, for example, they're really disinhibited if they suffer from bipolar. But my uh, I often get asked, can sex offenders be rehabilitated. And I suppose it's relatively easy for my clientele because as I say, they've got a treatable mental illness. But for the people that you see, the vast majority, aside from the actual paedophilia, um, they, they don't have you know, a treatable mental illness that you can reverse with medication. So my question for you is, do you think most of these men can be rehabilitated? And if so, what does that look like? I think that some can. And again, you're the psychiatrist. I just you know, have a little bit of experience talking to these guys in, in these investigations. But in my experience, and again, this is not clinical or scientific, but in my experience, 
these guys break down into three different categories, the guys who show up in our investigations. <clears throat> there are the hardcore heavy hitters uh, who'd be doing this with or without the internet. They'd be the bad little league coach or um, the bad scout master, the guy hanging out at the food court at the mall or the movie theater looking to prey upon children. They're hardwired this way. There's a, another group of younger guys who are socially inept, who say things online they wouldn't say face to face. They find a willing partner who's in their mind uh, allowing them to have a sexual conversation. It leads to what is hope for a, a meeting. And they look at this as a Romeo Juliet situation. The guy's 21, the girl's 14. One day it'll be legal. She said yes, and they justify it in their mind. Those guys, if caught early, they can be put into intensive counseling, I think. They can be monitored, and they probably will not reoffend, in my experience. Then there's this interesting category in the middle. The everyday guy, a professional, a doctor, a lawyer, even a law enforcement officer we've seen. And they have this fantasy, this, this predisposition about having sex with an underage boy or girl, and they wouldn't normally do anything about it without the internet. And then they get going in these chats, and oftentimes they consume you know, pornography uh, that involves uh, kids who are underage. And they, they get going and they get caught up in the addictive nature of the internet, the access 24 seven and the anonymity again, where they say things they wouldn't say face to face. And suddenly you see them cross this line between fantasy and reality, and they're knocking on our door. And that's the more complex individual to treat. Some of these guys get scared straight, but I've seen cases. We caught a clergyman, a rabbi, for instance. We caught a, a medical doctor. And these guys sometimes stray back into this activity, communicating online with, with underage boys or girls. And it's it's hard to understand, but they think they're better than everybody else, I suppose. They think they can get away with it. And, and so they continue this activity. And that's the more difficult uh, segment of the population to treat because you don't know necessarily, or I don't know how to fix them. The incorrigibles lock them up forever. The young guys treat them, put them in intensive counseling. The guys in between, they're more difficult. And, and the reality is in our society, we want easy answers. We want the treatment that works. We want the medicine that works. We want the incarceration that works. And each one of these guys is complex and different and shows up in these sting operations for a multitude of different reasons. And, you know, we don't have the ability to treat everyone, but we do have the ability to incarcerate them. So that's often what happens. Do you ever fear for your own safety i mean i've watched a number of these encounters now and what strikes me from the ones i've seen is when you approach these people and confront them they are willing to engage in dialogue with you afterwards and i, I would have thought the instinct would be to bolt out of the location at the the earliest possibility you know the interesting thing is and that still happens by the way guys will walk in get spooked and <clears throat> and they'll run and because we collaborate with law enforcement law enforcement will then step in and, and apprehend them and I'll get a second chance to talk to them should they be willing to talk. But more often than not, what we're seeing now, and we've done a number of investigations in the last few months for True Blue, what I see is 
a guy saying in the chat, is this a Chris Hansen deal? And the decoy will say, who's that? And he'll explain it. And then I don't know who that is. And the guy shows up. In the early days of the investigations, if a guy would recognize me, most times they would bolt. Now, it's almost like they stay and talk because in their mind, they've seen the investigations. And this is the part where I'm supposed to talk to Chris Hansen. It's very odd. And, 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 but it happens with, with great frequency. And it's happening in the new investigations. And is there a bit of a fanboy thing going on? I think there was in, in, in Polk County, Florida, in a recent case we did. Um, do they feel trapped in that this is their best chance at explaining their way out of something where they're going to be on TV whether they want to or not? Maybe. Um, it's, 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 it's really, you know, covering a lot of different stories over four decades. It really is the one that really still perplexes me you know, as to why these guys do this and why they stay and talk. And, and again, I suppose it's a little bit of my attitude about not jumping out of the bushes to scare them. I, I want to talk to them. And again, some don't, some try to run, but the vast majority do stay and at least talk to some extent. And of all the cases you've seen, who do you think has had the most to lose? I mean, you mentioned a doctor before and I've seen that episode. That's, that's definitely cringy listening to him phone his wife. Would it be him or anybody else you can think of who's just, well, just, I think just lost everything? You know, you're, you're talking about Dr. Maurice Wolin, who sadly passed away in the last couple of years. But, uh, you know, there's a lot to lose there. Here's a guy who is with a company on the West Coast on the cutting edge of cancer, cutting edge of cancer treatment, a medical doctor, highly educated, married to a woman who's a medical doctor, highly educated and successful has daughters and he's screwing around on a Saturday chatting with not one, but two different teenage girls, one of whom he comes to meet. It's a decoy, but he thinks it's a real girl and he's going to hang out and tall dreamy doc. His screen name is without a doubt going to try to have sex with this girl. And it all comes crashing down in the backyard of a home in Petaluma, California, when he sees me, tries to bolt, and he's detained by the Sonoma County Sheriff's Department. And, and there's a guy with a ton to lose. And, and you know, you, you feel bad for these guys. And people say, well, it really wasn't a girl there. It was a sting operation. But what if we weren't there? And what if the girl was available? What do you think would have happened? Well, there would have been the rape of a child. And you probably know this, being a psychiatrist and, and dealing with some of these people, they all say that it's their first time. And psychiatrists who spend time in federal prisons talking to sex offenders will tell you two things. If they've been caught once, they've done it two or three or four other times. And two, that there's a definite link between the viewing of child pornography and offending. And those things are just known quantities based upon medical doctors who go into prison and do this very difficult, uh, very depressing, I would think, uh, practice of medicine. I want to just focus on the internet for a second, because you mentioned it earlier about safeguarding children in terms of what they can access on the internet, or rather who can access them, I suppose, is the issue. Uh, but also as well, the internet's provided a lot of people who would normally just be opportunist or oddballs or village outcast to actually 
come together and create little communities and quiet sure. pockets where they can exchange information and actually be informed is the best way to be a predator in, in certain situations. So what's the impact of the internet had on the safeguarding of children in that respect? Well, I, I think it, it's all about the internet. If you talk to the FBI about the North American Man-Boy Love Association, um, that group had pretty much been put out of business because they had to advertise in different newspapers and, and, and places, and they had to send mailers out, and they had to have secret meetings. Well, they, the FBI put them out of business. Then the internet came, and now they have the unlimited ability to communicate. They can use all kinds of nefarious ways to covertly communicate, share information. And, and so it's, it's very difficult to monitor. And so these guys are able to flourish on the internet. And we're not talking about the dark web for this sort of activity. Yes, there's human trafficking that goes on there, but we're talking about regular mainstream platforms, which kids can access. Um, and, and so there was, it's very frustrating for law enforcement to crack down on this. And one of the few ways you can do it is with a sting operation like the ones we do. Chris, do you ever think that some of the perpetrators themselves are potentially quite vulnerable? So, for example, do you see people mm -hmm. who you think might have like a learning disability? And even though they know what they're doing is wrong, they might not quite understand sort of social uh, norm normalities and the social structure. So because of that, they might have been in a situation uh, more which makes them more vulnerable than the typical average person. We've seen that. We, in one of the early investigations, a fellow showed up and, and uh, he clearly wasn't um, intellectually 100%. And I could see as he came in, he had a scar on the side of his head indicating some sort of trauma or injury or surgery. And he wasn't very articulate and he was more consumed with using the bathroom. And, and he was arrested and he was shown in that, that early investigation, but not to a great extent. But then... Just a matter of weeks later, that very investigation was in Riverside County, California. Several weeks later, we were in Long Beach, California. Um, and lo and behold, the same guy surfaces. And he says in the chat that he can't show up on a Friday because he's got a court date. Well, the court date was from the earlier arrest in Riverside. We do some further digging and find out that he had spent a year in county jail for a violent assault. And then he walks into our house in Long Beach to meet a child, to meet a girl. So, yeah, does this guy have a disability? He sure does. Uh, but that doesn't make him any less dangerous to a child. What he was capable of doing to a child in that case um, was devastating yeah. and potentially violent above the violence of a, of a sexual assault, which is horrifying in and of itself. So what do you do? Does that guy deserve special treatment? Does he deserve uh, a different care in the criminal justice system? Yes, probably. But he's no less worthy of being exposed as somebody who could have harmed a child. I mean, we have the same discussion all the time. You know, should a 19, 20 or 21 year old be treated differently than a 30, 31 or 39 year old? And in a way, yes. Um, you know, but we're not talking about a Romeo Juliet situation here with a 21 year old and a 14 year old decoy. We're talking about an adult 
wishing to harm a child. And what's the difference between a 21-year-old committing this crime and a 39-year-old? The danger to the child is the same. Now, the criminal justice system should probably treat him differently if he's a first-time offender, if he's young, if he's got a chance to you know, have some counseling, sort himself out and not reoffend. Yes, absolutely, he should be treated differently than somebody who's offended in the past, who's older, who's had more contacts with the criminal justice system. Yes, absolutely, there should be a difference in treatment there. And generally, that's what happens. Just to uh, follow up on this idea of decoys, because for those of who are watching, you might not be aware, uh, this, uh, you know, quote unquote predator will turn up under the assumption he's meeting a minor for um, a sexual encounter. When he arrives, who he'll actually be met with is usually a, a, an adult actor posing as the decoy, the, the minor, the 13 year old, etc. Now, it can be a bit uncomfortable because that person who's turned up is obviously turning up. Uh, with the intention of committing a crime, we don't know what else they're capable of or have done before, and they're suddenly put in a room uh, with this young actress. Now, I, I, going through my mind, I'm, I'm kind of thinking what sort of protections are in place in case something goes south very quickly, because it can go south very quickly in these situations. Sure. Well, as you mentioned in some of the earlier investigations, we actually had a, a actress or actor, a theater student who was of age but looked much younger. In the current investigations, to further safeguard everybody involved, we um, have that decoy work done by somebody who works for law enforcement. So a sheriff's department or police department typically has people who look younger but are of age, and they're trained in, in law enforcement work. So that's who does it in the current investigation. So there's another layer of, of protection there. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, part of the reason that this is such an appealing franchise is that it is a little edgy. There is a certain inherent risk involved in it. And we try to safeguard that as much as possible. And I believe um, that, that, you know, for what we do, it's about as safe as an environment as it could possibly be. But yeah, it's, it's not, you know, you're not reading the nightly news. You're going out and and, and uh, infiltrating a felony and covering it from the inside out. But that is what has made it so compelling. I suppose there's always a, a slight risk when you're working with, uh, you know, potentially very serious sex offenders. But, you know, here, here's something interesting. You know, all the years I've been doing this, I've been in Cambodia where we went undercover to uh, expose uh, a brothel with six, seven, eight-year-old kids servicing Americans wow. and Western Europeans. I've been Jeez. in India uncovering um, child slave labor, West Africa, exposing scammers and, and uh, people dealing in blood diamonds to raise money for Al-Qaeda. And all that, the times that I almost got my ass kicked were chasing a, a bike thief who was dealing in stolen bicycles in, in the village, Greenwich Village of New York City, and at a mall in Connecticut doing a story on counterfeit cell phone products. So go figure. <laughs>
I was just wondering how the general public react to you, Chris. So firstly, do you get recognized uh, fairly often? Do people come up to you and uh, speak to you? Because I imagine it's a slightly uncomfortable and it's not exactly a topic that they might want to discuss out in the open. And also connected to that, do you ever get any sort of trolls or haters for any of your work? Oh, we had we had haters. I mean, I'll get an email every once in a while. And, you know, we do a podcast called Predators I've Caught. And, and we go back over the cases. Um that we've investigated and we dig into it a little further. And, you know, as you can imagine, when we're doing the investigation, we're a little bit on the fly. Now we have information on the suspect, on the predator. We have some background. We have the chats generally, but not always with enough time to immerse myself in it. So the, the podcast allows me to go back and live in the chats, live in the video and find out what that person has done since their arrest. And, and it's, 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 it's fascinating and somewhat cathartic for me. And I think the audience enjoys it as well. But we get a lot of correspondence from, not a lot, but we get some correspondence from people who don't like the franchise. And typically I think that kind of correspondence comes from somebody who's been caught or a relative or family member of, of somebody who has been caught who doesn't believe they were capable of doing it. And it can, they can be relatively vitriolic. Um, but that comes with that comes with the business. And some people, you know, will, will say horrible things. But all of that is far overshadowed by the incidents when somebody comes up to me at a pub or a restaurant or walking down the street or at a subway who says, hey, can I talk to you for a minute? I say, yeah, of course. And they tell the story of how they were abused as a child, how they never felt they got justice and how they watched the show today and have watched the show historically and feel that they are getting some justice by seeing these guys held accountable. And to me, that's really what matters most. You know, I, I look, I know we've been parodied on South Park and, and I've made cameo appearances on different shows. And, and there is a certain comedic element to this dark comedy, albeit, but still, I understand that. And I don't mind any of that. And I don't mind being on South Park or The Simpsons or Family Guy, because all it does at the end of the day is create more attention to a very important subject. So if people get a laugh out of it or because it's become ingrained in pop culture, I mean, we're into the third generation of followers now. And so you've got to harness that and use it for something positive, which is education, awareness, dialogue. And it also, quite honestly, opens a lot of doors to do a lot of different crime stories, whether they involve sextortion, which is such a critical topic and one that we're very deeply involved in as we speak, um, scam artists, elderly people being victimized, you know, any sort of crime, it opens the door for me to be able to cover it more extensively and have more access for True Blue. And that's the advantage that we have on this new crime streaming network is, is that. Shahom, I'm aware that you're not with us for the entire hour and knowing what an inquisitive individual you are, have you got any further questions you want to get in as well? <laughs> um, I, I suppose, what's the weirdest excuse that you've ever had, Chris? I, I know they all seem to follow a certain pattern. They all say that they don't believe that the, that the decoy was actually that age. Is there anyone that really sticks out that just doesn't make any sense? Oh, God, this is probably a hundred-way tie for first. But, um, you know, there's always the excuse that I was just here to have a good long talk with her to make sure she doesn't do this anymore. I was going to sit with her on the couch until her parents got home. 
I was going to try to explain the the error of her ways by communicating with grown men online. And we've had some real whoppers. We've had a guy who came in to say he was looking to buy the house. So where'd you see it advertised? Well, I, I didn't. A friend told me, well, who's your friend? Um, he's so-and-so. Well, what's his number? Let's call him and ask him about it. You know, and we just kind of <laughs> peel away the onion on it. And, and the issues has never, never seemed to hold up. I've never had a case, and we're close to 500 guys now. I've never had a case where somebody was just at the wrong place at the wrong time. It just doesn't happen. We know the computer. We know the background. We've run the number. We know the phone. It's virtually impossible to have somebody just stumble into this environment unknowingly. We've had, try, we've had people try to suggest that, but there are too many safeguards around it. There's too much information that we know before the guy walks in. We had a guy one time in Florida and I started reading transcripts to him from his chat. He said, I would never say that. I was at home at that time of day. I was in my office upstairs. My wife and daughter were downstairs. And I read further into the transcript. I shouldn't be talking to you this way. I'm up in my office at my house and my wife and daughter are downstairs. You know, it's like, you know, it's, I, mean, it's, I just... I've just covered my face there because there is a massive cringe aspect to this. So what's going on here for me psychologically, psychologically, maybe one of you both could tell me, given you, you're both experts on this. But for me, you mean you're catching a bad guy, you're preventing a horrendous crime, but I'm still like, oh God, I can't, I can't watch this. There's something about people being caught in the wrong, in the full light of day, which I just find really uncomfortable. It's an uncomfortable, it's an uncomfortable moment. And so a lot of what happens during the interview, and I think a lot of why they talk is I try to remove the discomfort. I mean, obviously you want to apply pressure at the right time, but if I lean back and say, look, help me to understand what got you into this situation. We had a guy, he's up now, uh, his nickname is the fanboy. He, one of the guys who surfaced in the Polk County, Florida investigation. And he showed up to meet a 12 year old girl and her mom. And the story is, is lengthy and somewhat sorted, but he sits down for 30 minutes after his arrest and, and, and lays out what led him to have this fetish, this fantasy, and uh, conduct himself in this predatory criminal fashion. And, you know, uh, as a psychiatrist, you know, you'd be, you'd be fascinated to hear this. Now, you may call bullshit at the end of the day, but... He tells what appears to be an honest story of, you know, why he ended up in this situation. And it's, it's just, it's fascinating, but it is cringy because the guy, the guy's caught, right? Yeah. And as he's trying to come up with his story, his explanation for me, he's also watching himself get into trouble. And in the early stages of the interview, they don't, think necessarily that they're on camera because the cameras are hidden for the initial part of it. And then when I introduce myself, the, the big cameras come out. And that's often when the, the look of shock washes across their face. And um, you see, you know, the realization that somebody's just, you know, potentially blowing up their lives, yeah. blowing up their relationships. I mean, how do you explain that to your kids? 
I, I suppose for, for me, one thing that I think is unique about watching that, that those 30 seconds or that minute is that we don't really get to see that in any other kind of platform. Right? If, you're, if you watch true crime, whether it's documentaries, uh, whether you, know, you read about certain offences in the newspapers, you know what happens, but you never get to see the criminal's reaction when they get caught. Well, and if exactly. they have any kind of excuse in court, then obviously that's practised, it's, it's pre-planned, they probably had some help from their legal team. Whereas what you do is you, you catch them in that moment. And as you say, you can, in some of the cases, you can actually see their minds ticking, especially if they know you because they're trying to calculate in their head how their lives have just crashed around them whilst trying to come up with an excuse that's obviously complete bullshit. Uh, at right. the time. I mean, the mind can, you know, the mind can only do so many things at the same time. And not everybody who comes in is a, you know, is a member of Mensa, you know, the varying degrees of, of, of intelligence. And, and, and again, as you mentioned earlier, we have seen uh, very intelligent men walk into these sting operations. Um, and we've seen some who are, you know, uh, a confluence of dunces that makes them no less dangerous, you know. So it, it, it's it, we 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 had a we did one earlier this year where a, a cop, an active law enforcement officer, showed up to meet a teenage boy, and not only was he a cop in a small size police department in Mid Michigan, he had been. Um, an educator, an administrator at several schools, and had been a juvenile probation officer. And here he is in our kitchen, all snotty with me after being caught trying to, to meet a boy. And after the back and forth with him, and he was just arrogant and snotty, I said to the crew, I guarantee you that this guy is in a position of authority. He's either a cop, he's a local politician, he's an executive with a company nearby, but I guarantee you he's somebody. And sure enough, the Genesee County Michigan Sheriff's Department searches his pickup truck. They find three guns, his police credentials, and a pair of handcuffs. And then, because even though we hadn't run the story yet, it, the arrest makes the news, obviously, and the sheriff holds a news conference, as, as he should, and, and, uh, you know, the, the potentially more victims out there, all these people start coming forward, including a town supervisor who was his boss at one point who had to fire him and talked about the him waging a campaign of harassment against her uh, because she had to fire him for cause. And so who knows what else is out there on this guy? But we know on that day he showed up at a house with a tube of lubricant in his pocket Jeez. after a sexually charged conversation with somebody he thought was a 15-year-old boy with every intent of having sex with the kid. And then you go back over the phone and you see that there's child pornography on the phone. Well, then that becomes a federal investigation. But these cases often have long tentacles and uh, people come forward for you know, months to come. Um, my time is up. It was a pleasure speaking to you, Chris. Love your love your Doctor, uh, show, Predator, and uh, best of luck in your next platform. Cheers. Thanks. Nice Thank to see you. you. Thanks, Stephen. Cheers for co-hosting. Good All to see you, Sean. Bye, guys. See you soon. Bye.
Very bright chap, Shahan. Yeah, sure. I've got so many questions to ask sure, you on Steve. this topic. So <laughs> I suppose um, just for a, as a curiosity, I mean, we're both well aware that uh, crimes of this nature, the sexual nature, exploitation, things like that are overwhelmingly, almost exclusively a male problem. But just curiously, have you ever caught a woman, a, a predatory female who's also trying to groom in this way? Never in our investigations. I, I wrote a book years ago about the whole predator experience, and there was a case where a woman had used the internet to, to prey upon a, a, a young, a teenage boy. But in our investigations, never has a woman surfaced. And, and the experts tell us that it's basically because female predators are more likely to engage in the teacher-student scenario. They don't like the anonymity of the internet when it comes to preying upon somebody who's younger than them. So you'll see the teacher-student scenario, but you don't see as often the um, the meeting somebody online for the first time and, and then hooking up in person, where the male predator gets off on the anonymity. They, they enjoy that, and that's part of the thrill for them. Yeah. So one thing I, I've noticed in, in the number of... Um, episodes where you've actually confronted the um you know the potential uh sex offender and what strikes me is you're you're about to enter this room with somebody who's arrived there with all the intentions of committing a crime some might say one of the most serious crimes you can commit really that that kind of inspires a lot of emotion within people this topic for for good reason but you must somehow manage to stay calm in the face of that i mean firstly i suppose my question is have you always stayed calm have i missed uh, episodes where you've completely lost your top. Uh, and also, how do you prepare yourself to remain calm in, in that way? Well, you, you know, you, you take a deep breath and, you know, you really you only have one shot at it. So you have to stay composed. But, you know, in the, in, I remember, you know, clear as day, uh, the very first time we did this and, you know, we didn't partner with law enforcement in the first two investigations. It was just us the online watchdog group, Perverted Justice, um, the decoys were right in the house with us. And I had security, you know, from the network. And at first, I, you know, we didn't know if anybody was going to show up. We didn't know whether we had just wasted tens of thousands of dollars of the network's money. We just were going to do it. And, you know, in two and a half days, 17 guys showed up. But the very first guy to walk in, yeah, my heart was in my throat. And I wasn't quite sure how this was going to go. I felt that you know, I, my security was protected through Ron Knight, my security guy. But, you know, I had the transcripts and, and I just had to figure it out. I had done a lot of, you know, confrontational or spontaneous interviews in the past, but nothing like this. And so the very first one, I was just trying to get through it and stay focused. And, and I think what happens is there's so much going on, right? And as, as much security is around you, as much law enforcement presence, you're still the first guy sometimes when these investigations go down. So you're watching their hands, you're watching their body movements, you're watching their eyes, you're trying to judge the behavior and you're trying to figure out what's the best way to initiate this interview and also protect yourself. God forbid if something goes sideways. So it's almost like you're too busy to overthink it and get too anxious so you just you get through it and and you try to as always and with any interview um you try to be a good listener and if you're too busy thinking about the next question then you're you're not going to be a good interviewer you have to live in the moment 
and just not be in a rush. And sometimes we do have to hustle things along because we'll be 20 minutes into an interview with one predator and there'll be another guy on the way. And this happened just last week. You know, we're talking to this guy and, and uh, you know, I'm getting a signal from the crew saying there's another guy in the way. And so you don't want to cut him short because you want to get every moment you can and you want to get as much out of the interview as possible, but you also don't want him being led away by uh, sheriff's deputies when the other guy shows up, you know? So it's, it's, it's a bit of a, it's it, a tricky tightrope act, but you know, for the most part, I, I think I get through it every once in a while. I, and, and I, I think about this when I do the podcast because you've got time to let it all sink in and immerse yourself, as I mentioned earlier. And every once in a while, I'll think to myself, oh, I should have asked that. I should have known that. I wish I'd read, had time to read another page of the transcripts. But generally speaking, we don't leave anything in the locker room. I mean, we, we, we get just about everything we can. Talking of spending time thinking about things and dwelling on it, it it's a very dark topic. And I, I mean, for every prevention you are able to make, there must be so many that you can't. You can't be everywhere at once. You can't catch everyone at once. You know better than anyone this this goes on far more than people are aware. How does that weigh on you, just just mentally being, in, being involved and engaged in the topic of child exploitation and se sexual offence uh, and being put in a position where it's almost a responsibility of yours to try and prevent that? It seems like a very difficult position to be in mentally. Well, I, I think if you let it get to you, it, it can get to you. Yeah. If you, if you go down a dark hole, you know, and, and dwell upon the, the, just how vast the opportunity is to, to have adults prey on children. Yeah. You could go down that dark path, but what, what really is rewarding to me is been the, the, the public reaction around the world, really. I mean, and, and when I get an email from somebody, and I read one on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, uh, who says, this happened to me. And it wasn't until many years later that I had the courage to tell a therapist, and now I'm telling you, you're the second person I've told that this has happened. And that I get some sort of um, comfort out of seeing these guys face justice. That, that makes it all worthwhile to me. I mean, whether that happens once a year or once a week, it um, it happens in, with surprising frequency, but it really does make it all worthwhile to me. And and I think again, it's 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 like we say in the states, if you're from the Midwest, there's a five mile bridge called the Mackinac Bridge, and it's like painting the Mackinac Bridge. By the time you are finished, it's time to start again on the other side. And so that's kind of what it is with this this process. And I think with all crime reporting, it's it's not going away. So it's really about creating awareness. Um, and that's the best defense you can you can provide to people. And I think that's what we do. And yes, there's entertainment value. Yes, there's a dark humorous element of it. Yes, there's a collision. There's the um, watching a felonious act being committed. I think that's all part of it. But at the end of the day, it is about education, awareness, and dialogue. Yeah. And I mean, your bridge analogy just made me think of something else. It is, is a case of like whack-a-mole really with these. Yeah, no, it, it absolutely is because it's so vast. Hmm. Every week I find out about a new social media platform that I wasn't aware of. And that's another place <clears throat> where adults can approach children. So whether it's interactive gaming, whether it's um, 
a platform that's meant only for adults to chat. Children will get on that. They will lie and say they're 18 or 19, but they're not. And they routinely get on that. And the predators know that. And when I was growing up, the rule was don't talk to strangers. Good advice then, good advice today. The problem, of course, is that this stranger on a Wednesday is so adept at grooming your child that they don't appear to be a stranger by Friday when they're setting up an appointment to meet the child. And I see this when I go back over the transcripts. And it's almost like these guys go to some website or school or class to learn how to groom the kids because it follows a distinct template, you know, where they break down the traditional barriers in society between adults and children. You're pretty. How old are you? 13. Wow. You probably have no interest in a 32-year-old man like me. Well, I'm not a baby. Oh, you mean you'd like to go out? And then it starts there. And then they, you know, they start to, to try to create this, this bond, this connection. And uh, it, it, it follows a surprisingly similar template. And it works in real life, especially if you're talking about a child who's in a vulnerable setting, you know, a, a single parent home where the parent is working or there's a, a lot of time alone for the child. It's, it's, they'll, they'll sniff that out, these predators, and they'll, they'll work that to their advantage. Yeah, I was just speaking to my partner before this discussion, and she was she was kind of saying she can't understand why men would prey on underage uh, girls or you know children as they are. Now, I kind of thought, well, I suppose it's because of the impressionable impressionable nature, the suggestibility. There is a there is a, a power dynamic there that doesn't always exist between adults. So do you think that explains some of it? Well, I think it does, and I think a normal adult wouldn't do it. A normal adult would, you know see fit to protect a child under any circumstances. Most of us don't even think that way. And this is not, you know, a 30-year-old dating a 20-year-old. This is very clearly uh, an adult preying upon a child who has not reached the age of consent. And, and so there's, there's no real gray area here in the vast yeah. majority of these cases. I suppose my next question would be, how are we quantifying this as a phenomenon? Because I, I, to get a sense of it, is this a case of these kind of predators that you describe have always been around in some guise or some form, and now they just have this amazing tool for which to to sort of seek, you know, seek these people out, which is the internet? Or is there something more deeper happening culturally and societal-wise that is creating more people of, of this nature? Well, I think it's both. I think there's a certain population who's always been this way, who now can exploit the internet to fulfill their criminal fantasies. But I also think that the internet and the accessibility of child pornography and other material has taken men who are in this middle area um, to over-fantasize and cross this line between fantasy and reality and act out. And that's equally as dangerous uh, as a, 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 a true pedophile predator, you know, somebody who's wired this way. Um, so I think it's a combination, you know, and again, I go back to what I said earlier, we want in our society easy answers and easy explanations and one shot solutions. And that's just not how this works. Um, and, and there is definitely a lack of treatment options. There's some, some psychiatrists and, and therapists who are doing some very important work in this field. And I've had um, the opportunity to 
meet and chat with uh, a lot of them and they're very dedicated and they make a difference. But if you look at spending $200,000 for a medical degree and you have the opportunity to go down the street on Park Avenue and be a plastic surgeon or go into federal prisons and spend your time with incorrigible sex predators, what choice are you going to make? You know, fewer people. I mean, I'm just saying, you know, I mean, thank God there are people, men and women who make the decision to deal with the incorrigibles and to deal with people who are in borderline positions um, to 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 help them and to help understand, to help us understand as a society what the balance is between treatment and incarceration and monitoring um, to protect our kids. There's no easy answer here. I mean, it's it's, it's you know, I can expose these guys uh all day long and until we come up with a solution for preventing it i mean clearly deterrence isn't working across the board i, th I think the show and the investigations have deterred a lot of people from going down that path there's no question but yet we continue to see guys in virtually every investigation yeah I mean, you made a great point earlier about the, the these new social networks popping up all the time, and it's difficult to keep uh, abreast of what's new. And I, I'm the same. I've I've reached my limit with social networks, and I refuse to learn anymore. Uh, my 14-year-old uh, niece had to show me how to use Instagram a couple of weeks ago, and what fascinated me about it is she knew it inside out to a level I have no comprehension of. So I suppose a lot of parents listening to this and watching this will be wondering what kind of safeguarding practices can they put in place to make sure the internet time that their minors, their kids, their loved ones are having it is used in a responsible way and they're not prone to being lured in by these people who are obviously out to, to seek minors. Well, I, I think it's a matter of, of, of keeping an eye on what your kids are doing. And I, and I also think that it's starting at a very early age with an age appropriate discussion about, you know, being online, being ex exposed to strangers. Um, there are adults out there who want to trick kids. Kids don't like to be tricked. And then I think it's really a matter of driving this point home that if you don't know somebody in real life, you don't know them on the Internet. The young man who shows you a cute picture of a 15 year old surfer dude in San Diego could be a fat 54 year old sitting in his mother's basement in his underwear, surrounded by empty pizza boxes and a laptop. And those are the sort of things that get kids attention. I mean, you talk about Instagram, which we think is a relatively harmless way of communicating and sharing pictures and sharing you know, your experiences from, you know, happy Hanukkah, Merry Christmas to, uh, you know, a grandchild is born or, you know, I got a new car or whatever it is. We have a case that we're going to premiere on True Blue in the next couple of days where a 12 year old girl was on Instagram and was targeted by a predator in Florida. The girl was in Michigan and he convinced her to crawl out of her bedroom window and meet him in a church parking lot. He flew up from Florida, rented a car, took her to her hotel, sexually assaulted her. A day or two later, she shows up at the hospital emergency room. The nurses, thankfully, were trained to report this. And she was savagely injured by this guy. The investigators with the Genesee County Sheriff's Office were able to trace this back, get the surveillance, the security video at the hotel, go back and trace the rental car, and trace this guy back to Florida. They go down there and they arrest him. And we've got all the video, the whole thing. We've got the interrogation with the detectives, everything. And they charge him with this crime, this heinous crime. And 
during the course of the investigation, they find out that he's uh, been involved in two other similar cases in other states. And this is Instagram, mm-hmm. right? Which we think is, you know, a playground. It's very safe. This isn't some, you know, daddy daughter chat room or something. It's, it's, it's Instagram, but it could happen there. It can happen on Facebook. It can happen on any of these social media platforms. It can happen on any gaming platform when there's live interaction. You know, there have been cases, you know, uh, across the pond in different countries. And, and the other thing that really disturbs me now, and we're way deep into this, as I mentioned earlier, is these, uh, this sextortion. You've got West Africa crime networks cajoling kids, boys and girls, into showing racy pictures and videos of themselves and then taking that video, threatening them to expose them in front of their friends and family if they don't pay them $100, $200, And you've got really good kids who are so embarrassed and so ashamed that they're committing suicide before they'll actually have this discussion with their parents because they're good students, they're good athletes, and they're just shamed to death on this thing. And it's outrageous. And it's all about you know, some guy in Quotava or, you know, Benin or, or, or Lagos, Nigeria, who's extorting money from somebody he doesn't even know. And so oh. it, it, it's really, it's really shocking. And there are domestic cases of this too. And there are, there are culprits who are known to the victims as well. But it's, 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 it's just, there's so much out there to be aware of now. It's sometimes it, it can be overwhelming, you know, especially as we try to put all these stories out on True Blue. But it's important for people to have this information and we're going to keep putting it out there uh, so people can be aware. We, we talk about people having access because of the internet now, you know, sex offenders, but is there something to be said about maybe the young teenage girl experience now has been made far more difficult by the internet? You know, they've always, they've always been like in and out groups at school and societal, societal pressure. That seems somewhat, like, somewhat exacerbated when you throw the uh, social media into the mix and all your friends are on there and then you've got this idealized uh, you know standard of beauty and expectations how you should behave how you should look and girls are meant to feel less than worthy or ugly or things like that then you have some opportunist who's kind of swipes in and like you say one of the opening things to break down barriers is to tell them how beautiful they are how pretty they are is, is this all connected in some way i think it's totally connected I think it's connected in the cases that we've been talking about. I think there's, there's a huge problem with bullying, you know, and, and bullying isn't just, you know, who hears it on the schoolyard. Bullying now is on a global level. You know, if you embarrass somebody online, they're embarrassed in front of the entire world, their friends, and, and, and you can't put it back in the bottle. You can't call them into the principal's office and say, apologize and move forward. This is out there and it's out there forever. And that's one of the devastating things about this sextortion is the realization on the part of the victim that this material has been given away and it's out there forever and could surface at any time. So how do we hold the social media platforms accountable to detect this sort of thing? And I think there's a culpability you know, from that standpoint. And how do we educate kids and how, what do parents say to say, look, you know, if you screw up and if you do something, you know, come to me first. I mean, we interviewed the, the parents of this 17 year old in Ohio 
who had taken his own life, track star, good student, their only child. And their message, and you'll see it on True Blue very soon, is that you know kids have to just be kids. And when they do mess up and it leads to something that they think is a life-ending experience, it's really not, number one. It's a mild embarrassment, but we'll get through it. But don't don't feel that you have to be so perfect and, and that there's no road back and that you can't, you know, fix it. Nothing is worth taking your own life over, you know? Yeah. A lot of things feel like the end of the world when you're in that very delicate sure. area Absolutely. of teenagers, and, don't and they? They always do. They, they, teenagers especially. I mean, everything's, everything's, you know, dramatic and times by a thousand because of the internet and everybody knows and, you know, you see it with college kids, too. You see it in, with young adults. You see it with grown adults. I mean, one all it takes is one troll and, and you can be, you know, the, the, the target of all kinds of attacks on Twitter or any other social media platform. It's, it's, it's insane. And then you get this mob mentality. It's, it can be harmful if it's not kept in perspective. Yeah, I think there's also something psychological about doesn't matter how many nice comments you receive or how how many compliments you receive, you'll always fixate and focus on that that one negative, nasty troll that's got something horrible to say. And God forbid you answer it because all you're doing is giving that troll uh, some credibility, and that emboldens them, and that gives them you know a meaning in their own mind that oh, I was recognized. I, I pushed the button. Let's push the next button. I mean, it's just like, you know, parents said, smart parents said when I was a kid, it's the best way to deal with a bully is to ignore them. Yeah, that is that is the kryptonite for bullies for sure. So it's something you said earlier, which made me, um, this is very tangential, but I suppose this this idea that people are recognizing you now and there's almost a celebrity aura around what you do. And that's that's on some level almost annoying, isn't it? Because really what you want to be doing is to be acting as a deterrent and not necessarily wanting people to be kind of excited to be in your grasp. And I suppose there's, there's always that strange, strange philosophy within Batman. I always like to bring it back to Batman where I can, Chris, where there's this idea that the presence of Batman is actually, you know, behaving as some sort of magnet towards villains. Do you ever, do you ever feel that a little bit that maybe people are looking for notoriety and might? might I don't know about that. I know where you're going with it. And, and I think there's, there's some validity to it. And, and I wonder the same thing sometimes, but I don't, I don't think anybody would want to put themselves through that just to be, you know, notorious for being on one of my investigations. I, I maybe, um, and again, I've wondered it on a couple of occasions, especially in this recent investigation in Florida where this guy walked in and, you know, he didn't want to talk to the cops, to the sheriff's department detectives, but he sure gave it up to me. And um, I mean, maybe, I mean, I've had guys walk in you know, even years ago, uh, saying that they've seen the shows. I had a guy recently right at the Michigan Ohio border talked about him watching me on other podcasts. Um, I suppose it's possible, but I, I just, I don't think the vast majority of people would want to put themselves through it. That's not the way to be famous, to be on no. my shows. Would definitely be an outlier if that was the case. But Chris, I've yeah. really enjoyed speaking to you, and I, I really well, thanks appreciate for having it. me. I appreciate it, Stephen. Have a wonderful holiday, and, and thanks again for having me on. I appreciate it. You too, Chris. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for your time. Take care. You too. Wow, that's uh, absolutely fascinating.
Sean. What a guy. Chris Hansen, man. The mission he's on. Wow. Wiping Impressive, these scumbags, Getting these scumbags locked up who are preying on kids. We salute him, and that's why he's got billions of views online. He is absolutely amazing. Proper job, that, isn't it? It's a, it's a real job. And you performed the real job tonight, Stephen, as is Andrew Goal. Huge thank you. Hope you have a great Christmas, my friend. Love the jumper. Thank you, sir. That's I, I put it on waiting for a single compliment and I can go to bed happy now. <laughs> Cheers, Sean. All right. Going to get on to the next guest. Cheers. Cheers. Bye. All right. So we got Jen co-hosting tonight. And how are you doing, Jen? Fabulous. I did really admire his Christmas jumper, actually. That's why I've worn the red dress tonight for Christmas. Where's yours? <laughs> no, come on. Holiday spirit. All right. We're going to bring in Big Herc. And for those of you who have watched the prison channel genre over the years, Big Herc is one of the pioneers. He was one of the first to do a prison channel. And uh, he's had such amazing guests. He's got a story about Lompoc Prison where he ended up on a botched armed robbery in California. So we're going to get the full details now. Let's bring him in. Hey, Herc, how's it going, man? Good. How you doing, man? Thank you for having me on the show. Yeah, we're so appreciative of you spending time with us today. This is Jen, my co-host here in London. Lovely to meet you, Herc. And um, I'm just sorry, I'm reading your top there. Never settle for average. I like him. So, Herc, how did it, you know, I, I'm quite familiar with the story, but just for the sake of the viewers then, how did it all begin for you? Where did you grow up? What was it like for you as a kid? Um, well, I grew up with my mother and my grandparents. My mom, she had me at 14, so she was pretty young when she got pregnant. And back in the 70s, that was pretty taboo. And in the neighborhood I grew up, it was a lot of uh, retired military families. So a lot of people, um, you know, didn't really talk about this kind of stuff. And I, to this day, have never heard my mom out of her mouth mention who my dad is. But I've heard through the grapevine through other people who this other family is. But um, it was just a very taboo thing. But I had a lot of love in the house. My grandmother instilled a lot of family values. My grandfather was retired Air Force. So I had a lot of that just structure in the house. Um, was a straight A student, played, uh, you know, did all the typical stuff, um, played a little soccer, BMX, skateboarding, um, did really well in school. And um, I didn't really get into any trouble until, until my teens, my mid-teens, I mean, I had a stepdad growing up. My mom got married at 18. I didn't really have a, a really good relationship with him. I mean, he was there, but he wasn't really fatherly. So I was always kind of like trying to find my identity. So I did a lot of things to try to create my um, myself and find out who I was as a person. And that's why I did a lot of the, the outdoor stuff, sports and break dancing and just all the outdoor activities I participated in my little peer groups. But um, I lived on a military base for quite a while. And uh, like I said, I didn't get in any trouble until my mom got a divorce. I moved off the military base and then um, moved into my old neighborhood where I originally grew up at, but on the other side of town, which was pretty, pretty grimy. It was a lot of street stuff going on, 
crack era had just kind of took place in the eighties, like mid to late eighties. Um, I was still going to school, doing my thing. And then I kind of got involved in, in, in the drug game. Cause I wanted to, uh, you know, I seen the attention, the guys at school had that were drug dealers, the guys on my street, I wanted to emulate them. I was looking for like, a, once again, my identity and that, 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 um, that fit in where I fit in and, and, and as far as in my culture. And so by becoming a hustler, a drug dealer, a crack dealer at 15, I started making money. I was kind of finding my way into that little peer group and I ended up getting caught up. So I caught a case for selling crack at 15, did time in juvenile hall in the boys ranch, um, did like eight, eight, eight months there, got out, ended up moving to Orange County, which was totally different than Sacramento. And um, kind of got exposed to the suburb, suburban life, rich kids with um, boats in their backyard. Everybody's family was two-parent households, just very night and day. So that was kind of a culture shock. Um, graduated after that, two years later, went back to Sacramento, got into a bunch of shit again, and ended up catching a home invasion case um, with some guys. Did two years, eight months for that. Got out. Um, went back to LA, got involved in adult entertainment industry for a little while and, um, just kind of was still wandering. I mean, from 18 to 21, I was locked up. So I never really got a chance to grow up. So, um, I was just trying stuff and I, you know, got into the adult entertainment industry, got into selling a lot of drugs, um, got into a lot of gangster stuff still, because I hadn't really reformed myself when I was in the, um, when I was in CYA for that time. And for those who don't know, CYA is California Youth Authority. It's like gladiator school. So from 18 to 21, I was around a lot of guys who pretty much were uh, just career criminals, guys who had already been pretty much institutionalized. I mean, it's a lot of young people. And in CYA, you basically could be there from the time you're 14 to 25. So it was like a mini, it was like mini prison. And uh, anyways, I, um, while I was in there, I didn't really have the tools to, to mature because I didn't have a mentor. I didn't have anybody really older than me tell me what to do. So when I did get out, I got right back into, you know, different things that weren't really on the up and up. Ended up catching the bank robbery um, roughly six, seven years later involved with some people in the adult entertainment industry and um huh, you know. can i just pause you one second um i just got a message from ash the producer he's asked if you could just sit a little closer to the screen there we go that's better thank that you be yeah please please get into the details of the bank robbery then what went down yeah so um i'm working in the adult entertainment industry and one of the guys suggests that um you know, we can do a bank robbery. He kind of knew I was already kind of a street guy to begin with. So he's like, hey, man, you know, um, this might be something you might be interested in. And I knew I shouldn't have entertained it, but I was already making so many choices that were bad choices that it was easy to entertain another one. So I always tell people, it wasn't the bank robbery that got me locked up. It was the multitude of choices leading up to the bank robbery. I was already kind of preconditioned to entertain something like that because somebody told me today a bank robbery i tell them to get the hell out of my face but at the time when i'm you know i was young i already had that kind of like gangster mentality like i could still get out there and make it happen 
So I got involved with these guys. Plan, you know, they planned out a bank robbery. And there were a couple signs leading up to the bank robbery that told me that this wasn't a good idea. The first one was my co-defendants during the planning stages of the bank robbery. I remember one time we were actually looking at the bank and they, they got to arguing over chocolate. One of the guys wanted to pull over to a gas station to get a chocolate bar. The other guy's like, man, we're not going to get any chocolate because we're in the area. We don't want to be seen on camera. And these guys were arguing almost like reservoir dogs. I'm sitting in the back seat and I can't believe these dudes, man. I'm like, these guys are arguing over a damn chocolate bar. So that kind of had me thinking like, man, maybe this is not a good idea. But instead of pulling out, I, I just kind of, I don't know. I, I just let it kind of play over and, um, you know, just let the plans just take place. And then the morning of the bank robbery, um, I was waiting for these guys to pull up to my house. And my mom calls me like early, like seven in the morning. And she never calls me that early. She's like, what are you doing? And um, I'm sitting there and I have this outfit on, you know, ready to go rob the bank, like a military outfit on, you know, uh, with a jumpsuit on, with my clothes underneath. And I'm telling her that I'm watching the news. And she's asking me, did I watch The Bachelor last night? This was the first season of The Bachelor. And I'm like, yeah, I've seen it, blah, blah, blah. And then when she hung up the phone, I'm sitting there like, man, something doesn't seem right. And so that was a sign from the universe to not do this bank robbery. It wasn't like I was on drugs or I needed the money. I was broke. I wasn't going to be homeless. None of that. You know, I, I wasn't like one of those destitute people. But like I said, my mind wasn't in the right place mentally to really recognize the signs. And so... They pulled up. We went to the, you know, got on the, got in the car, rode to the bank. It's probably 45 minute, maybe an hour drive there in traffic. And it was raining. It was just, it was cold. It was an ugly morning. And um, I remember pulling up to the bank. And it was one of those banks that have, it, it, these banks have a, you could enter on one side and drive around and leave on the other side. So they pull up to the side of the bank. And um, we're sitting there for a couple seconds. And I'm thinking, like, you know, somebody going to get out the car, you know, because one driver and, and me and another guy in the front. And so I just pulled my mask down, jump out the back of the, the Ford Escort, there's a four-door, and I, I went inside the bank, and the guy followed me in the bank and, um, you know, told everybody to get down. And um, basically, it was a hostile takeover. And I'm looking at the clock, and, you know, my heart's beating through my chest. Um, the other co-defendant jumped over the counter um he's you know screaming to get the money where the money at he hit somebody upside the head with a gun um it's just it's just it's just mayhem in there man it's like everything's in slow motion and i'm looking around i'm like man this is crazy you know it's, it's the, the adrenaline is, is going like you're you're it feel like you're like you're jumping i guess i probably the same feeling as jumping out of an airplane and i look out the corner of my eye and i see a sheriff in a rain suit with a shotgun in the distance so they're already in the area. And so I'm like, man, you know, we got to hurry up. And I'm telling him to hurry up, hurry up. And so at this point, I'm like, dude, come on, let's go. And I run outside, jump in the car, wait for him. He comes out a couple seconds later. We pull out the bank. And as we pull out, a cop gets behind us. And I don't know if it was timing or he just happened to be behind us. And he bumps us. And we have a high-speed chase. And so... You know, high-speed chase, we, we we take off down the street. He has the sirens on. We pull into a almost like a parking lot, 
he gets out of his car, draws down on us. And I'm like, this is crazy, man. It hasn't even been a minute. And we're already, you know, about to get arrested. And so the driver looks at him and he, he's like, he punches it. He punches it. The cop points a gun and he, we drive past him. We pull into another parking area where we have the, the another secondary in car, a linking navigator. So we jump in a navigator, strip out, and lead the clothes in the, in the getaway car. And then we're in a navigator, but there's cops everywhere at this point. And so... It's an area where, you know, early in the morning, there's no reason for anybody to be there. So as we pull out, there's SWAT, there's detectives. They see three black guys pulling out in the traffic in a navigator. And boom, they're on us. And so high-speed chase. Um, we're on the freeway. It's raining. There's probably, I don't know, 20, 30 cops, helicopters. It's, it's, we're just driving, you know. There's really no escape. It's just a matter of time. It's like one of those bad movies you see late night on TV, you know, you can't get away. And they eventually threw a spike strip on the freeway. The spike strip, we, we roll over that, pops all the tires. We keep going for some time until we're on rims, sliding around in this navigator. He stops the car, and as soon as he stops the car, I jump out. I jump out the car, jump over center divider on the freeway, run across a bunch of traffic. I'm looking for a place to hide. Apparently, they had, they had released a canine. The canine was in the car, and um, I didn't see that, but I'm running up the embankment and I'm looking for somewhere to hide. There's nowhere to hide. And I end up getting arrested on the beach boardwalk. And as they're putting the cuffs on me, I'm looking out at the ocean and I'm seeing the waves and I'm looking like, damn, man, this is the last time I'm going to see the ocean for a long time. And, you know, I, I, there's eight cops there. I'm on the ground. They arrest me. And that's it. And that's when I had an epiphany, man, that, you know what, this is it, man. My, my life's got to change. Literally, the, when they put the cuffs on me, I um, my mind snapped. You know, I wish it could have snapped before, but it snapped, and that was like game over. And so um, that started my journey on finding out how who I was as a person and how I could recreate myself. Mm. Go for it, Jen. <laughs> I was just trying to get through that bank scene without visualizing a very, very bad movie. I mean, at what point were you fearless in all of this? Like, it, it sounds absolutely horrific. Um, it, it was, I mean, you know, the, the <laughs> I tell people, man, there's nothing, there's nothing glamorous about robbing a bank. And, you know, I don't brag about it. I always try to make it on my channel that it was a bad life lesson. I wish I could have learned it beforehand. But I tried to figure out, like, what was the mindset for me to even entertain that? I mean, there was a lot of things I did leading up to that that weren't the best as far as actions, therefore, my mind was kind of geared towards that. And so I try to reverse and re reconstruct all that whenever I try to share my experience to let people know that we have other options. There's signs, there's different things that tell you you're doing something wrong because there's nothing that's telling you to do something right when you're robbing a bank, when you're telling people to get on the ground and you're doing something that's a hostile takeover like that. And, um, yeah, it was just, you know, I, I, you know, I tell people all the time, you know, when people it's like, you know, the way I talk and to carry myself, they're like, oh, man, you know, you're a square or this and that. I'm like, dude, I've done everything gangster in the book. And it's not like it's a badge of honor. I'm not acting like I'm a tough guy because I've done these different things, but um, I lived it. So when I talk to people, I talk from experience as far as being involved in something at the highest level. I'm lucky to be alive. I mean, they could have shot us. 
I could have, you know, somebody could have got shot. I mean, both my co-defendants are dead. One of them got out of prison. The driver, he, he, he did the least amount of time. He did roughly six years. He got out. He got lupus. He died within a year and a half, two years after getting out. The, my other co-defendant that jumped over the counter and um, was involved with me in the bank, he went crazy in prison. He actually, he stopped showering. He felt so guilty for having told when we first got arrested that he tried to go to trial. They used it against him. He got 15 years. He got out of prison. He um, was living on Skid Row in Los Angeles. And apparently when they were doing a sweep, the LAPD, they said he reached for a gun and um, they shot him. He got shot and killed. He got shot five times. Wow. So he's dead. Herc, what got your adrenaline spike higher? Was it going into the bank or was it the police chase, the high-speed police chase? Uh, probably going into the bank because when you decide to pull out a gun in front of a, a group of people who have no idea, I mean, dude, that's 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 like um, that's somebody who's like outside their mind. You know, it's almost like an out-of-body experience. And I've had one of those meditating and it's probably the same thing because you actually leave your body when you go into a place and you try to look around to see everything going on to hostily make people do what you want to do. And you have a, we have a, you know, you have a bank security guard with a gun. You have people over here. You got people over there. I mean, that's a crazy situation, man. I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing crazier to experience that. And, um, you know, like I said, I'm lucky that I was able to go through that and to come out the other side, not, you know, in worse condition than um, a lot of people. Yeah. And um, how would you say it was arriving at that time at the police station? Sorry, I've got a cough. <coughs> um, well, you know, the police actually were laughing about it because they said, oh, we gave them some excitement for the day because usually there's nothing going on up in this Ventura County where we got arrested. So for them, it's a game. And that's when I realized, you know, it's a cat and mouse game. I mean, for them, it gave them something to do. They got the call. It was a big rush for them. And, um, you know, it made the news and, oh, you guys are the bank robbers, blah, blah, blah. But, I mean, it's short-lived. I mean, we're, we're doing time. I mean, you're not getting out. Um, and it, it, it's, it's um, I guess it's a, a false sense of heroic uh, action. You know, you think you're doing something that's going to make you something. And for the amount of money you're getting, it, it's not even worth it. And once I got to the feds and I seen what kind of money people were making, it was almost embarrassing. But at the same time, I was fortunate because I didn't go in there with some of the time some of these other people had. I mean, some people, you know, they, they said 10 years was short timing. You have guys in there doing 30 years plea deals, you know, 20 years on a RICO, you know, guys who are fighting life sentences plus 100 years. I mean, it's insane. When you really start seeing what kind of time people are doing in the feds, it's a major wake-up call. Before the feds hurt, what were the county jail conditions like when you first went in? Oh, county 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 jail. I mean, San Bernardino is horrible, bro. It's 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 gangs, it's um politics. You're dealing with the lowest of the low. A lot of these people, where I was living a pretty good life. I lived in a nice area in L.A. close to um, Beverly Hills. You know, very nice condo. Um, when you get to jail, you see the conditions and you see. For a lot of people, they got their homeboys there. You know, these are guys they, you know, kicked the wood on the street. It's like 
to them, this is normal. Jail in the county was never normal for me. I never could relate to these people. And I didn't go to prison or jail having any friends inside. I never knew one person from the street that I knew in prison. So for me, it was all foreign. And once I really started looking at my surroundings, I knew that I was different. And I, I you know, I wasn't trying to be bougie or act like I was better, but I knew that this was not me. And these people, you know, this was normal to them. You know, blacks over here use this shower. Mexicans use this shower. Whites use this sink. You sit at this table. You don't talk to this guy. It's just, and it's very ignorant. I mean, in California, the politics and the racism, it'll get you killed, man, talking to a white guy. White guy giving you a, a top ramen. He might get stabbed, you know, a guy, you know, passing food to you. Somebody sees it. There's so many little things from people who are just very, very mind small. They don't see because they've never, they've never really interacted outside of this. So it wasn't normal for me because I grew up in a very diverse environment, military kids. I've had all kinds of friends from different nationalities and I was pretty cultured. But a lot of these people, they, they didn't know how to communicate outside of their, their small circles. So were they quite intimidated by you? being that you're quite big, well, not knowing anyone either. My size played a factor in, in me not getting tested as if I was a littler guy because the way I articulated myself, the way I carried myself, I was pretty athletic. I could dunk a basketball. I mean, I could bench probably at the time 315. You know, I was in great shape and two, about 235. So it wasn't like, you know, anybody would try to test me one-on-one, -on -one, but I had guys you know, ask me, what are you in here for? Credit card? You know, I said, nah, oh, what you, you know, I'm bank robbing. Oh, use the note, huh? I'm like, nah, man, I used a gun. And that changed their perception because had I said I was in there for a white collar, credit card, they might've been pressing me. Dudes might've tried to test me to think I'm soft. You know, I've seen smaller guys get pressed, get tested. Um, and um, a lot of times people based on your crime will determine how they interact with you. You know, and, and if you are more of a guy who was like, okay, this guy was a bank robber or assault and bat, I mean, they're like, oh, this guy's not a weakling. But if you're if you're considered a weak person in prison, you will be taken advantage of. Mm -hmm. Great. Uh, what was the worst violence you saw? Um, I, I seen a guy get stabbed in uh, with a chicken bone, man. I seen a guy basically bleeding out, and um, this was when I was in Lompoc, USP. And um, it was during um, cell count and four o'clock count. And this guy, I walked by him. I, you know, I didn't see the incident took place. I see a guy, I just seen the guy laying there. And basically, you got to walk past him. You can't stop and help. You know, you can't call the COs. I mean, you're at that point, you're either considered a snitch, you're accessory, and now you're somehow indirectly under investigation for helping a person. So it's sad because in prison, there's situations where you don't know what that situation involved, but you can't get involved. I mean, I've seen a guy get stomped out in the kitchen by three, two dudes and everybody just kept eating. This guy, I mean, stomped, he just kicked him under the table. He couldn't move. You know, I don't know what he did, but this guy, he, he must've did something pretty bad because they said he had five lives plus a hundred years. So whatever he did <laughs> with that amount of time still, allowed somebody to stomp him out and you know you don't ever you don't look you don't make a movement because now you're alerting the police 
if you make it seem like you've seen something, you're dry snitching. That can get you stabbed. So there's a lot of things. USP Law Park um, it, it was one of the oldest prisons, but it ain't no joke. You don't, you know, I've seen guys, um, you know, knife fight over the TV. Somebody changes the TV. Another guy told, told him to turn it back. And then I, I see a guy say he just go get his knife, you know, over a TV channel. So it's very serious, man. And the least, the less you know, the better. You know, I never bragged about, oh, I was about the business, you know, volunteering. Man, if you volunteer in prison, you're going to most likely get killed or be somewhere where you're never going to see the light of day. You're not these tough guys who talk all this shit. You're not on mainline. You're not in the dorm. You're not, you're not socializing. You're in a lockdown. Cause I know guys who were in lockdowns and that's how you get out. And so you're not, you're not doing recreation with everybody else. The best thing to do when you're in these places is to act like you hear the least amount as possible. You don't try to, when you see something, you go the opposite direction and you try to mind your business. So when I've seen things, people bleeding out. I've seen a guy, um, you know, lay, lay, he, a guy was trying to avoid a debt, and he kept going back and forth to work, not going to, to the chow hall thinking he could avoid these guys. They caught him coming from work. They just waited for him. And, man, this guy, I don't know if he lived or not, but um, I, I know that when I seen him on the ground, I'll hurry up and went and took a shower so because I, I knew it was a lockdown. But um, I've seen a couple people just laid out. I don't know if they survived or not, but um, – you know, you just act like you don't see it and keep walking. And how long were you in county for? Um, well, county, I was in county probably eight months. And then I got transferred to USP Lompoc. And Lompoc is where I've seen, you know, the, the main violence. Because, you know, you got people in there doing a lot of time. And the county is very barbaric. Low frequency, just a lot of guys in there. Because there's state guys in there, too. A lot of guys are drug addicts. A lot of guys are just gang members. They're not really, you know, crim there's different level of criminals. There's guys who just commit crimes. And I'm not trying to say one is better than the other. And you got guys who are money guys, guys who are maybe embezzling, laundering money, real estate fraud, um, big time cartel, drug dealers. So it's a different caliber. Once, you, once I got to the pen and you see people are more or less acclimating to a place being their home, is treated differently and, and the value system is different. Mm. So how are the gangs structured out there? Just to explain for the people here in England, because in England, you know, we don't have these racial prison gangs like the, the neo-Nazi Aryan Brotherhood, the Mau Mau, whatever for the blacks. How is it structured in California in state and feds? Uh, California, the state is, is, there's a lot of gangs. I mean, in the state you have, the biggest is the, the, the Hispanics have the biggest gangs, Mexicans. You have North Daniels, Serrano's, which is North Daniels up north. You have Serrano's, Southsiders down down south. And then you have um, the Paisas, which are um, Mexicans who have come across the border, but they're not really tied into any of the, 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 the gangs in California State. They got their own clique. That's the biggest. Those are the, probably the biggest demographics. Then you have Crips and Bloods. And then you have the, the different Crips and Blood sets. You have L.A. Crips. Then you have L.A. different sets inside L.A. Then you have San Diego. Then you have Northern California. Then you have, like, in state, you have BGF. You have um, different other black gangs within there. And so there's so many different gangs in the state. Then you have um, um, you, you, you have what you call um, skinheads. Then you have, which are white. Then you have guys who are just uh, Peckerwoods, you know, white guys in prison. So then you have those different separations. 
And then you get to the feds and you have a mixture of all these different gangs, um, the Texas syndicate, um, the Pisces, all these different gangs. And then it's divided by, then you have states, Florida boys, DC boys. Um, you have guys from like the Texas. I mean, so there's all different sects. So everybody clicks up. Then you have New York, you know, guys from New York, you have Latin Kings and everybody has their clicks. Um, you you got to know where to sit. You know, it's, it's hard to, you know, you're not really supposed to cross over and mingle with different people. I mean, um, I was fortunate because I did law work for people. I helped people type up briefs and, and different things. And I could, you know, I was, I was educated so I could help people read and look up stuff. So I was able to talk to guys from like Chicago, maybe a, a guy who's a, a gangster disciple or a guy from Brooklyn, you know, would help me with the law. And I was able to talk to different people. Um, I talked, you know, a white guy over here who's, um, who's maybe 60 something years old, but he's a retired military and he would tell me stuff. So I mingled in different circles and I was able to, and I never really, you know, I was at a neutral table. I never took on any gang affiliation. So that was one of the benefits, but it's totally divided. I mean, there could be some, a riot going on between the blacks, but it might only be blacks from like a particular area and the other black groups won't get involved. So it'd be, it could be blacks, um, Southsiders and, say guys from dc or it could be um you could have you you might have a, a situation where you got compton crips and 60s not getting along or you might have guys from the bay you know um not getting along with a certain group of guys from another area so it's, it's totally divided i mean the you know mexicans from up north they don't get the, you know they might have a treaty with guys from down south but then you know the beasts are really separate so there's all type of different situations politically, you got to know how to navigate because if you don't pay attention, you could get caught in the middle of something and not even know it. Exactly. And you're talking about the gangs, but what about the drugs in either prison from the county to the Fed? How did they do that? Uh, county, county is pretty low ball. But once you get to the feds, I mean, you got guys, you know, there was guys in Lompoc. Um, I was talking with a friend of mine. I mean, he was doing a lot of time. He, he ended up, he had a 30 year sentence, but um, I want to say he ended up getting out early. So he did damn near 20, but um, I stayed out of the mix, but I know there was a lot of heroin. There was guys in there making, you know, there's guys in there doing heroin deals, making, you know, anywhere from, you know, 20,000 to maybe 40, 50,000 a month, you know, working different deals through other connections on the street, through the guards. I mean, they're, 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 in Lompoc at that time, they called the guards, the cowboys. And the warden was the leader. So they literally, they were a gang. I mean, they would come in there. The warden walked through the, the, the halls with his guard. I mean, these guys were goons. I mean, they walked through there like Suge Knight, like they were ready to smash you. So if you got out of pocket, you know, um, you know, did something, you know, that wasn't um, above board. I mean, these guys literally were shaking down people. So there was a lot going on there as far as drugs and you know, I, I heard there was a lot of heroin being moved around. And that's a big that's a big drug in prison, state and feds. I mean, people are looking for something to kind of cope with the time. So a lot of these guys that are shot callers, big wigs, they're on they're on they're on drugs, they're on heroin. And that helps them cope with that time. I mean, and heroin debts is some of the worst because guys getting a whole, you know, four or five thousand men, you owe somebody three or four thousand dollars, five thousand, that's your life. So you got guys, you know, having money, try to, you know, try to have their parents send money from home or they're checking in to try to avoid a debt. 
and you can never really avoid a debt or get rid of it unless you pay it. I mean, you go to another institution, somebody has sent a word and you land, you get to that other institution and somebody else picks up that same debt. So the drugs, heroin is one of the biggest in prison. And I try to stay as far away from that as possible. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I just I just kept my nose clean. Got a question from one of the viewers, Seagull Guitarist. Thank you. Did people get treated differently for having more or less time in terms of respect? And if so, how? Um, if you were doing 10 years, like I had, I had um, 120 months. Guys used to tell me, he said, man, watch out talking to those guys with life. He said, hey, man, that guy got life because you never know what these guys' are intentions are. It's a lot of crafty psychological shit going on in prison. You don't know if that guy's preying on you that maybe he's a sexual predator. He's trying to test you. You don't know if he's, you know, a weirdo because he's got all this time. So generally speaking, if you were doing 10 years or less, you didn't hang out with a lifer. Lifers kind of have their own thing because they had nothing to lose. I mean, if you're doing life, if you stab somebody, who cares? I'm already doing life. So his value of his time is different than a guy who has an outdate. So, yeah, you are treated differently. Um, I've seen guys there, um, you know, most of the guys who were doing a lot of time, they were always trying to work on something legally to get out, whether it's a pardon, whether it was trying to do an appeal. So they were a lot, especially guys from the East Coast, they were in a law library a lot. Because a lot of guys from the East Coast who were there for drugs and other high-powered crimes, they were college-educated more so than the West Coast. So I've seen a lot of those guys in a law library. But, um, it, you know, once you got out of a USP to a medium, you, you know, it was a different mentality because you see more people going home. At a USP, it's very rare that you see anybody parole from USP. You never seen anybody go home, you know. Um, and if a person was going home, he never told anybody because he didn't want nobody to know that he was getting out. You don't want to tell a guy who's doing, you know, um, you know, uh, 50 years that you're going home because it, it kills his dream of hope. So typically people, um, you know, when they got out, they just one day they left. You never knew they got out. But at a medium, you've seen people getting out more often. So you had a drug program. You had guys who were there on violation. And so it was a different vibe. It wasn't as serious. And um, you had a different mentality. But, yeah, you didn't have a lot of mixing of guys doing, the, the uh, you know, serious time with guys who were short-timing. And guys who were short-timing were there kind of hanging out, a lot of them. They were playing cards, gambling, um, watching TV. And so it was rare to really see them studying. Like I was one of the few guys who stayed in a law library with the amount of time I had because I was trying to educate myself. I, I was on a journey to try to find my way out. So it was, it was definitely a, a, a different mentality between guys doing a lot of time and guys doing 10 years or less. I can actually see a question myself here from Perry Pet too. Did you ever have to defend yourself or stand your ground? Um, yeah, I mean, I had a situation with some guys who were trying to create um, like, a you know, start up a rumor because the guys were jealous of the way I carry myself because I had, I had a group of guys, white, Mexican, um, biracial, Korean. We all studied together, ate together, did a lot of things together. And I, I, I made money doing legal work, helping people. So a lot of guys were jealous of that. And I had a situation where a couple of guys were trying to 
um, lure me into a TV room so they could jump me. But I always told a guy, if you want, if you want to handle a situation, let's come in and sell one-on-one. So I had no problem, you know, one-on-one getting into a small and confined environment and handling my business. And I had a situation like that once. And on another situation, I had to slap a guy one time. But other than that, I never really allowed myself to get put in a situation where I could get jumped or be outnumbered. And I had enough good people around me because I helped so many people that if I, if, if my life would have ever been in danger, I had people that would have my back in that sense. Herc, were you able to maintain a fitness and nutrition regime? I imagine the food is probably pretty scarce. Oh, the food was horrible, man. It was horrible. I mean, because I didn't know the value of food, I mean, I ate very healthy on the street. Um, I, I worked out, kind of bodybuilded when I was on the street. When I got to prison, the, the biggest thing was nutrition. So I used to pay guys to steal oatmeal out the kitchen, powdered milk, um, chicken, um, steak when they had it. And I would try to eat as far as in the, in the, in the unit as much as possible paying guys stamps to steal me food because I tried to avoid a lot of the, the top ramen and a lot of the, the, the horrible food in the kitchen. So that was the hardest part was the nutrition, but I tried to stay on top of it as much as possible. And I worked out every day, every day I worked out for two hours a day. I would get up. The first thing I did is eat my little oatmeal, peanut butter and uh, powdered milk. And then I would go to the yard and I would um, run a mile, do like a jog for a mile and I would work out for another hour. So I made sure I was in tip-top shape because I knew there were a lot of wolves. And I know if you are presumed of being weak and, and, and you, you're volatile, people will test you. So I always like worked out and sometimes I'd work out with my shirt off and let people know that, you know, this wasn't, it wasn't going to be an easy fight. And a lot of guys recognize that. So I was able to keep a lot of people off me. We call that peacocking over here. Do you call that there? <laughs> <laughs> peacocking. Yeah. <laughs> So no, I mean, you said you kept your nose clean and there you kept your fitness routine. How else did you get through it till the end? Um, I just read a lot of books. I mean, I knew that if I didn't change my life and I didn't, I didn't try to get out of there in the earliest amount of time as possible, that it could compromise my future because I didn't want to have to get into a situation where I did get in a fight with somebody or a serious uh, altercation and I had to stab somebody in defending my life. And then I caught more time. So I relied on networking while I was in prison to position myself so when I got out, I could be in a better position because I didn't want to go out and have to have my family take care of me, ask people to help me out. So I developed a family in prison. And a lot of the guys I made friends with, I still aren't, I'm still in contact with. I had my, my white friend who got out. He, he um, you know, we network still. And then I had a friend, my Korean friend, he helped me get a car. My Mexican friend sold me a car. And these are all people I met in prison. And even a, another friend of mine, my uh, black friend of mine, uh, introduced me to somebody where I stayed at their house when I got out of the halfway house. So all my contacts, because I was a good person, and as far as in persona, these guys entrusted me and introduced me to people that helped me when I got out. So I relied a lot of, a lot of my contacts and the friendships I made. So I didn't really... I didn't hang out with a lot of people and it made a lot of people mad. A lot of black guys didn't like me because I wasn't hanging out, but I wasn't going to, I didn't want to rehash old stories about other crimes I committed. I wasn't like into just wasting my time with frivolous conversation. 
So I did a lot of reading. And when I did engage in conversation, it was to elevate my conscious. And um, I, I just, I really reprogrammed myself. You know, I meditated and um, that allowed me to almost be invisible in prison. I created like this, this almost uh, force field around myself. So I didn't subject myself to more time or anything that would get me caught up because I had to convince my family when I got out, I wasn't crazy. My family, nobody had been locked up before. You know, my family wasn't the type of people who had a bunch of relatives in and out of prison. So I was an embarrassment coming from a straight A student, somebody with so much potential to do a bank robbery. They're like, what's wrong with me? So um, I had to, I had a lot to prove and nobody came to see me when I was in prison. So I knew that in order for me to redeem myself, I couldn't, I couldn't get into prison and, and fall deeper into the rabbit hole. I was going to ask how your mom thought about it because you were really quite close to her growing up, obviously. Yeah, they were embarrassed. My grandmother, she, she didn't, she, she prayed. You know, she's old, um, southern woman, very, a lot of hospitality. You know, really strong values. So, you know, she said when I got out, she like prayed for me because she didn't know if I would ever, you know be back to being that grandkid that I was that she raised, which was very well-behaved, uh, well-mannered, um, you know, disciplined. And, you know, I never, I never cussed them from my grandparents. I never brought any of my criminal activities around the house. You know, I was like living a dual life, you know, I never exposed them to that side of me. So it was like, almost like a embarrassment. And, and for them, they didn't understand who that other person was. So, you know, I had a lot to prove when I got out. So, Herc, did prisoners have sexual relations with staff members? You know, um, <laughs> there were a couple of incidents. Um, there was, uh, I, in one of the prisons I was at, um, one of the guys was uh, messing around with one of the female staff members, and her actual, I think, husband worked at the institution. So, eventually, uh, that guy went to the hole and, you know, all shit came down. So they started investigating everybody. But, yeah, there was a couple of guys that were messing around with females at, you know, a couple of institutions I was at. At another institution, a couple of guys were messing with some of the um, staff members in the education department. And, um, you know, they would have little windows. And one of them actually ended up hooking up with the teacher when he got out. And I think he lived with her for a while before, you know, until he got on the feet. So there were a lot of those situations because... They call it, um, you know, prison hot. You know, you got a female who on the street, you know, wouldn't get this type of attention. But when you have, you know, 200 guys, a thousand guys, they'll do anything, you know, take your dirty underwear, you know. <laughs> I mean, you feel pretty attractive and you're very vulnerable and that's the most attention. And it's natural. You're a female. These guys are men. These are these guys are a lot of them were big drug dealers, making a lot of you know money. And if a guy was more successful, you're like, wow, you know, it's 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 a lot of intrigue to be involved with a criminal element and on top of it feel wanted sexually and knowing that this guy will ravage you. So um, I did see a lot of that um, going on in different pl places, but it was very low key. You know, I remember coming down one time at USP Lompoc and I caught a CO kissing another guy. I act like I didn't see it. I'm like, oh, shit. You know, I just kept walking. Never said anything to the dude, never said anything to her, just minding my business. But, you know, he was he was handling his business. You know, he was um he was actually, you know, tonguing her down in the, in the stairwell. 
I mean, who's taking advice out of who in that situation? It's, it's a, I think it's a, you know, quid pro quo. I think they're both winning. You know, you got a female who's getting an attention. Maybe the guy, he's getting her to bring in maybe cell phones, maybe some other stuff, handling some business from the street. I mean, and you got these guys are high level intelligence. I mean, even though these guys are criminal, they're very, they read a lot of psychological books, a lot of books on communication, body language. You know, there's, you, you see little behavior things. I mean, there's ways that you peacock that make a woman look at you differently than other inmates. And so there's a lot of that going on. And for these women, I mean, you know, you go home, you're living in these these towns that are middle of nowhere because these prisons are in the most horrible places you could think of because there's nothing around there. And it's the same townspeople. And you got a guy who's from, say, this a city somewhere, and he's got all these different things about him that's interesting. And for him to be attracted to you, it blows you away. You know, it's, it's, it's like something that makes a woman feel like she's special. And these guys are great at making a woman feel special, especially in that type of situation. Exactly. So before you came on her, we had Chris Hansen to catch a predator. How are predators treated in the California system? Oh, dude, if you're a predator, you're, you're done. If you're, if you're, they don't, if you had anything to do with kids, you are getting punished, especially like, like I tell you right now, the white guys in prison do not play. Bring your paperwork. If you're a predator and you're white and they find out, dude, I tell you, they handle their business more than the blacks. I just got to be on. They do not play. They will check your paperwork. And if you did something out of pocket, they will, they will remove you quickly. Um, Hispanics, you know, similar instance. If you, if they find out you had anything on your jacket, blacks to some degree handle business too, but not as serious as the white guys in prison. I mean, they have super strict rules and um, they don't play, but that type of, uh, that type of criminal history is not tolerated. And um, if they find out about it um, instantly, that guy's gone. I remember there was a guy, white guy, and um, I didn't know. I had talked to him a couple of times. I didn't know what he was in the feds for, but apparently he had something to do with, uh, you know, child porn site or something underage. And I'm telling you, um, when the white guys found out, they were there. That was automatic removal. You're done, you know. And um, that's not something taken lightly. And not to say that blacks don't discipline. I've seen guys that were, you know. Um, on the yard and they were acting like they were tough guys and some paperwork came up and dude, they, they, um, they, they're like wolves, man. They put the beating down. So that's not tolerated at all. As far as if you did anything, they have actual institutions where those guys are all on the yard together. Yeah. I can imagine it ends that way. Ways above. So yeah, maybe moving on to St. Lighter, how <laughs> coming out of prison uh, and starting up your massive YouTube channel. I mean, how did you go from obviously being released, redemption with your family, to going onto YouTube? Well, while while I was in prison, um, on my journey to try to find myself, my spiritual quest, I kind of um, I, I came up with an idea to come up with a uh, with a channel fresh out, and so I wanted to do something to show how people can redeem themselves when they get out of prison, how people can be better. You know, I've seen guys get out and come back and they're like, oh man, 
they violated me because I smoked a little weed. I mean, and these guys were literally scared of being free. And so there was a lot of that mentality where a person becomes institutionalized. They become comfortable with prison to the point where they'll sabotage their freedom to go back and then try to justify it. So I'm like, you know what? I got to do a show that opens up people's minds to something different and showing post-release success. So rather than showing the people who are going back, I try to focus on people who are cha- who have changed their lives. And then I want to also be a mentor to young kids or people in general to show that you have other choices in life. And so when I got out, um, I initially did a, um, while I was in, I saved my money up. I bought video camera before I got out. I started a corporation before I got out. I had all this stuff set up, but it took me a little longer to get it going. And then I found my workout partner, Anthony, while I was at the gym and I told him I had an idea for a show and we just started, you know, we decided to shoot, you know, um, you know, shoot an episode. And I found that a neighbor of mine was a camera guy and, um, my, you know, my, my partner put together a website. We, we, we shot our first episode. I believe our first episode was Cali muscle and that was 10 years ago. And it just took off from there. And, um, we kind of like just were some of the first people to really start talking about prison. But one of the things I kind of stuck with was not glamorizing it. You know, I, I didn't want to, I mean, I don't want to glamorize like somebody getting raped or people stabbing each other. Cause I just think that those things are horrible and there's enough of that in society already. And my whole thing was trying to counter this glorification of prison, especially for a lot of young black men. It's like no big deal. It's like, Hey man, you know, going to do a little time, blah, blah, blah. And it's sad when prison for young people is a rite of passage. You know, I don't think prison should ever be considered normal. It's the most, unhumane experience a person can go through. I mean, somebody, you know, bunch of men, people looking at your butthole, you know, no privacy, you know, telling you when you can go to the bathroom, when to get up. When you, it's, it's just psychologically, it's just, it's horrible. So I, I want to show that. And that's what I, you know, that was my goal when I set out to do uh, Fresh Out was to be more of a positive deterrent and also, you know, um, showcase people's experiences. Nah. When you when your videos first started to go viral, how did that feel? Getting that the feedback from the public and the subscribers are jumping up and all the comments coming in. Um, it was a great feeling, man. I mean, you know, I I, I never looked at YouTube as like a profession. I kind of did it to, you know, create this platform, hoping to take it to another level, almost like cops, where it was like a mainstream thing, and I could interview people and you know, have these conversations with individuals that can relate to where I've been, but show a different side. Because a lot of times, you know, when you, when you, when you hear people interview, you know, these guys in prison, these professional newscasters, they don't really know because they've never been in prison. Oh, I've read these books. I've, it's not the same. When you go home every day, it's not the same as living with a bunch of barbarians, you know, day in, day out. And having these conversations, you know, talking to people, you know, that have killed somebody, but haven't, you know, they haven't outwardly admitted it. So it's a different experience. So I want to bring that out. But yeah, it was, you know, great. And, um, you know, I always say if I would have, if I would have, if I would glorify it more, my channel would be even bigger. But there's a couple of things that we stuck to on our channel that, is not really in alignment with the narrative, which is promotion of this type of behavior. 
And I, I, you know, I've been to every facet of the system. So I think that, you know, I'm trying to show more change than endorse a lifestyle that's become trendy. I mean, look at the rappers now. They think it's, they think it's cool, like going to prison, you know, oh man, hanging out, stabbing people's cell phones. When it's, you know, there's so many other things you could do with your life. And what message would you give to the youths of today who think going to prison is still an impressive, cool thing to do? Um, I would tell them that there's, you know, hanging out and going to school, you know, picking up a trade, going to college, being around people who are career oriented, people who have family values, people who, um, who have dreams and goals. I mean, prison, man, when you think about it and the type of people, you know, a lot of these guys you think that are your friends, aren't your friends. You know, you get in trouble. The first thing they do is looking out for their best interests. Um, you know, think about your family. Think about your kids you're leaving who are now fatherless, who are following now your same steps. It's a repetitive cycle. You know, I, I've never seen guys in there, father, son, brothers, um, you know, father, son, cousins. I mean, it's like, damn, man, this whole family's in prison. I mean, do you, you know, who grows up saying you want to be, you, you want to be in prison, sleeping in a bunk with somebody else being told what to do? So, you know, I tell these kids, man, find yourself a passion, find something you can do that gives you purpose in life, you know, something that gives you value. And whether that's working on cars, whether that's building things, whether that's being, you know, being involved in architecture, engineering, there's so many other things because all of them hustling you do in, on the street that you, you glorify these guys. Oh, he sold a hundred kilos. That guy's doing 30 years. You think he wouldn't trade those hundred kilos or millions of dollars for freedom? I've seen guys in there crying, kill, crying. Big hurt, man, man, man. I wish I could go home, man. Fuck, oh, man, this is, man, I hate this place. I mean, these dudes are cold killers crying. And I leave the cell like, damn, you know, it's not, it's not no tough guy shit up in there. I seen them, big tough guys shooting heroin, guys in there just, you know, catching hep C because of sharing needles, all this dirty, filthy stuff, man. I mean, predatorial stuff, guys taking advantage of people, getting involved in shit. It's a horrible place, man. And for you to think, yeah, you could come out of there, think you're normal. But I mean, I've had sleep. I had nights, you know, before where there was a time where I, you know, I'd wake up having nightmares that I'm back in prison. I don't know how I got there. I'm trying to talk to the warden and get me out. I don't have a release date. I mean, I had these nightmares for years until I went and spoke at a prison and was able to walk into prison on my own and leave on my own and get closure. But you got PTSD. It's, it's, it, it messes with your, your head, man. I mean, it, it's traumatic. I mean, hearing those doors, the keys clacking, that shit is terrifying. Going sure, into a prison for, for the first time to do a talk then, was that triggering? Yeah, you know what? It, 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 it was so different, man. I mean, to be on the other side with the guards while they're eating donuts, <laughs> bullshitting, you know, and you're not looked at as a criminal. You're looked at as a human being. You know what I mean? You're actually somebody of value. And to walk in there and to talk to these guys. I mean, dude, I had a conversation with a guy who's doing life. He shotgunned a woman, blew her, blew her away killed this lady, this innocent lady, man. And he's never done an interview. And I talked to this guy 
And I'm looking like, damn, man. And they're, this is in Idaho. It's freezing cold. They're out there. And I leave. And I see the guys in there waiting for their lunchtime. And, and I leave. And I look at that place. I'm like, damn, man. I've never experienced going to that place on my own. Every time I was brought there, it was in handcuffs. So it was a sense of, like, relief to know that I had control over that aspect to be able to walk into a prison and leave on my own and be treated differently and actually be uh, – you know, rewarded for doing something positive to share an experience with guys doing 30 years, doing life, you know, it, it was just, it was, a, it was a really, it was mind blowing, man. And it, it, it made, it actually, after that experience, my nightmares went away. Oh, and uh, I was going to ask one of the questions, but before we get to questions of the evening, I want to ask what you have next planned. Um, and next, I wrote a script, um, me and a, me and a couple writing partners. So we're working on selling that kind of like a, a series that's like, kind of like, um, snowfall. So we're working on trying to sell that. I wrote my autobiography. So I'm looking at, um, publishing that soon. Um, you know, trying to get a book deal for that. I'm doing, you know, working, I'm doing a lot more speaking engagements. Um, I got a clothing brand, um, I, I've, I've been working on a project with a car for a while, so I'm looking at coming out with my own um, kind of like um, specialty car design with Porsches. You know, I'm a big car guy, so um, I've been working on that. So I'm going to be coming out with my own special body kits for these cars. So I'm just getting into more entrepreneurial stuff and still, you know, talking to young people, talking to other um, businesses and stuff about just overcoming adversity, you know, choices and stuff like that. So more in the public speaking sector and still pushing fresh out, but trying to get it onto more um, uh, universal platform. So I'm not subject to the algorithms. <laughs> That's what I was going to ask next. What have been your biggest challenges on YouTube? So I imagine the algorithm is one of them. Yeah. You know, um, it's sad, but we did an interview with a guy who was called the pedophile hunter. And when we did that interview, I didn't realize how much, this was before Epstein and all this stuff. I had no idea this stuff was as big as it was in Hollywood. And literally, our subscribers went from probably 20, 30,000 a month down to like 300. And it, it really hit our channel upside the head when we put this guy on who was talking about going after these pedophiles in different places and bringing them back to justice. And um, it really impacted our channel. And then also the whole... Um, Black Lives Matter thing, when that came out, we weren't really behind that. And we were using more logic. And, you know, there's a lot of politics involved. And literally, um, you know, there's all kind of people in Hollywood who were catching a lot of slack for not really getting behind something which has now been exposed. But um, that's been the hardest part, man, because, you know, as a black person, my partner's Mexican and us not playing victims, not really blaming you know, the system and defund the police and stuff like that. I don't want to defund the police. I want to be able to have a safe environment where if I need to, you know, my mom needs to call the cops or somebody, I don't want her to have to call, you know, some vigilante to come to the house to try to take down a predator. You know, I want there to be law and order. And so, you know, by us not getting behind a lot of the narratives, it's impacted us. But, um, you know, I see things changing. So, um, we, you know, we just keep putting out a good message, which is, you know, positivity, which is helping other people, you know, um, getting past the racial divide. There's a big thing in America with this black, white. I mean, they always show white cop, black guy. You know, it's, it's like that's the big narrative here. And 
you know, my, my stepdad's white. My, I have half white brothers and sisters and nieces. I mean, so I grew up just, I never grew up white, black, white, black. And that's the big thing here. And that's how they divide our country. And that's how they're using all this other, these other narratives to keep people from uniting. And so, um, you know, I can't get behind that either. So that's one of the things that's been impacting us. But, you know, I just got to realize that there are people who believe my message and I see it. I have people who, you know, comment and, and have said things. So at the end of the day, um, you know, I'm not depending on YouTube to support myself because I know that my narrative is not what they're really trying to push. Agreed. Sorry. Out of all out of all your podcast guests, then which ones, which stories have interested you the most? Um, we interviewed a guy named Larry that was kidnapped by the cartel in Mexico. Um, that 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 interview did uh, over a million and uh, close to two million. But that guy, he was in Mexico living, um, making steroids, and he got arrested by the DEA there, and they left him to the federalities, but the federalities were also the cartel. And so they um, took a million dollars from him cash. They pulled his toenails out, torturing him, trying to get another, you know, trying to get his money. They, his, I guess his wife at the time, I heard that they uh, raped her and she escaped. And then he ended up escaping one night with another guy. And um, if he wouldn't escape, they probably would have killed him. And um, his story is pretty crazy, man. I mean, literally, it's a it's a Mark Wahlberg movie, and um, he's probably one of the most interesting guests we've had on. But we've had um, some other people. I had a, I just interviewed a female, a black female, ex a police officer who was shot three times on a domestic uh, violence call and uh, survived. And she told her story. She was shot by a black guy, you know. Um, so she's got a great story. But we've had some really interesting people. Um, a cop, ex-cop, ex-marine who shot his wife, who did 30 years, you know, pretty crazy story, domestic violence situation. And, you know, interviewing all these people, man, you, you know, you learn a lot. And, you know, one of the benefits is that, you know, having been where I've been at, I'm able to ask questions and get answers that a lot of people couldn't get. You know, they open up to me and I feel that's, that's a gift I've been blessed with. And, um, you know, this is my way of giving back to the universe, man. I mean, I've done some negative things and I know I can't take those things back. So I just got to try to put out a great message to help other people. And you truly are doing wonderful things. So I've got to ask you what you're doing for Christmas. Um, just hanging out, me and the wife, you know, hanging out. We're in a new place in a nice area. It's very country-like, very peaceful. Um, I'm in Arizona now. I moved out of California two years ago and um, I love it out here. People are nice. Um, and, um, you know, we're just going to hang out and just do family stuff. Have you, Herc, ever interviewed any guests and it's gone to cause problems in your life? Yeah, yeah. I interviewed some people, man, who lied, who made up some shit and, you know, it, it, it tried to pull me into drama. And one thing is, you know, I don't, I don't do the internet drama thing. You know, I'm not going to make a video calling somebody out. You know, I try to, I try to get people to tell me ahead of time what they did time for and, you know, hopefully their, their story checks out to the best of my ability. And that's why we put a disclaimer, but um, yeah, there's been situations where people have said stuff and then, you know, somebody got mad at me or said, Hey man, this guy right here, you know, you didn't, he said this or did that. 
And, you know, I try not to placate into that because that's what the internet wants. You know, and a lot of guys feed off of the beef, you know, back and forth, back and forth. But I don't have time to be looking over my shoulder. It's already when I go out in public, I'm always perceptive because I know there's a lot of haters. A lot of, you know, I've seen videos of guys like, oh, yeah, Big Herc. He said this. He was doing this. I said, look, man, I've been out now over 10 years and I've ran across people that see me in prison that I've never talked to that says, hey, man, I remember you. You always, you know, we're in the library. You did what you did. I wasn't trying to be a superhero. I never pretended to be anything. I'm not in prison. So if there was any real dirt on me, it already came out. But um, I try to avoid engaging the trolls because I don't need the drama. You know, I feel that, you know, yeah, I can get more views. It could create more, you know, you know, uh, back and forth content, but it's not worth my time. And I'm such on a different level and the type of people I, I try to hang out with, it's not even about that. So I try to avoid a lot of that. But there have been people who have said some things that have come back to haunt them. And a lot of people, you know, that it's, um, you know, I just let, I just let it, let it work itself out. What about if a guest says something that crosses the line over what the gangs might want them to say? Would you feel that you you could be held responsible for publishing that? Well, I try not to have any really. Um, I haven't been able to get anybody that's really super gang orientated on my channel because I want them to tell the truth, man. Tell these guys that that it's not what it's cut out to be. And so, you know, for one, most of the guys can't come out and publicly talk, especially Mexican gang members. They can't talk. You don't notice there's hardly any Mexican gang members that done any interviews on any channel, a real Mexican gang member. I know some guys that are from, you know, Southside dudes and they'll talk to me privately, but they're like big Herc, you know, they can't be seen with me publicly. I know guys, I know, I know somebody in the Mongols. I know Hell's Angels. I know some real heavy hitter Vogue. I know some one percenters. Cool. We're cool. Never will go on camera. A real gangster never is going to go on camera because that's a different type of, it, it, they don't they don't talk their business you never see a real biker one percenter telling about his bike club you won't see it so i know that those guys won't come on but um you know as far as like street gang members you know most of the guys you know their their audience is based on the gang affiliation so if you're a rapper and you're a blood or a crib you don't want to say that hey man you know you, you might want to make a different choice in your life because their revenue is based on that association because that's their audience so um, I haven't been able to get a lot of these guys on camera, but behind closed doors, a lot of them say, Big Hurt, you're doing a great job. You know, I've seen, you know, tattooed face, um, you know, Mexican gang members, Armenian gang members say, hey, man, you're real. You, you tell it like it is because I'm not bragging. I'm not endorsing. I don't disrespect gangs. I just tell people, man, there's a lot you don't know about it. It's not a joke. It's not something you think, you know, hey, man, there's a lot of people who get killed. You see the ones who are alive, but think about all the guys who get killed, who think it's a game, get involved in something, owe money. You know, I've seen guys, man, I've heard of some torture stories, man. And I'm like, dude, you know, I, you know, I, I wish I told the dude before, man, you shouldn't have done that. And I've, there's some guys, man, it's crazy. You know, I'm not going to say it on here, but I know personally who have made the news and these are guys who got involved in over their head. But, um, you know, I, I always tell people, man, that um, at the end of the day, you got to find your truth. And, um, you know, I'm not going to sit here and tell a person that they should or shouldn't join a gang. I'm just telling them the reality of what I've experienced and the people that my show, you know, what they share is their truth. 
Have any of your guests gone on to become successful YouTubers themselves? Didn't Wes Watson come out of your channel? Yeah, I don't talk to Wes though. He came on my channel. He, you know, he um, initially reached out to me multiple, multiple times to come on my channel. And um, and then after he got on the channel, he kind of ghosted us, didn't return our calls. This, you know, kind of used our channel as a launching platform for himself. And I'm keeping 100. He'll know it. You know, I mean, he used to call me all the time. I mean, you know, and I never knew the guy from, you know, from from the you know the guy next door. But um, he blew up off our channel. Cali Muscle, he, you know, he was already doing his thing, but, his, you know, doing his interview on our channel, he he, he went on and, you know, really do really big things. Um, but he already had a pretty decent internet uh, platform, Badger. He he blew up off of our channel. He had a lot of followers. Um, Nate916 started doing YouTube. He had a great following. So, you know, and a lot of people, you know, we, we've, we've helped a lot of people who are nobodies. I, didn't, I haven't interviewed celebrities. I haven't interviewed like Ice Cube or uh, Ice T or any of these really big guys. I've interviewed people who were regular people and blew them up. So we gave a lot of people opportunity. And, you know, typically my whole thing was, you know, hey, if, if Sean, if I blew you up, then, you know, you, hey, Big Herc, let's collaborate over here. You're, you know, you're supposed to share the wealth, you know, and that's how it works when you're a real one. You know, you, I, I've never been somebody to just use people that's not how I grew up, man. I, I always grew up being like loyalty and, and, and honor, but you know, it, it is what it is. I interviewed Badger when he blew up on your channel and I'm wondering what happened to him. <laughs> Badger's in and out of shit, man. <laughs> Badger's, oh. <laughs> he's in and out of shit. He's actually, he's, he's doing all right now. I guess he, he got himself out of the last little situation and I talked to him. I was trying to get him to do a, a follow-up interview but, um, you know, Badgers, he's very elusive. You got to catch him when you can. And I haven't been, <laughs> I haven't been able to get back on a show, but I've been trying. But um, he's a good dude, man. I've known Badger forever, over a decade. And, dude, out of everybody, he's always been loyal, straight-up dude. And um, I remember when we met and, uh, you know, when I initially asked him to come on my channel, he had to, you know, go through a few, few resources to make sure it was okay to come on a black guy's channel. So Badger's a real one. And, um, you know, shout out to Badger, man. But, um, yeah, he's still, he always wishing me happy holidays. And a couple of years ago, I had him at my house for Christmas, you know. He didn't have nowhere to go, so he came home for Christmas. So, yeah, Badger, he's, he's a good dude. You got anything, Jen? No, no, I'm, uh, yeah, covered here. Sorry, I, I left right. about this guy, Badger. I was like, I have no idea who that is. <laughs> Does it, can well, you explain well, who he is? <laughs> The, the the other Badger was a guest on Herc's channel, and the other two big guys um, from the prison genre were Josh twenty three and one and After Prison Show. Yeah. This these yeah. guys started all this before anyone was doing any of it. Herc was one of the first, and have you collaborated with those guys with Josh or After Prison Show? Um, let's see, twenty three and one. I think I think I did a one time. I did a, a Zoom with one of the guys, but I haven't really collaborated them. I haven't, there's, um, you know, been very few people. I've been trying to reach out to more people that do other collaborations. You know, I'm glad we had the opportunity to get together and collaborate. I've, um, I know people have been talking about for years for, Hey man, you should get, you know, Sean, and I would love to have you on my channel. Likewise, but I know like you being in England and me being over here trying to coordinate it, it's always been, you know, that's the hardest part, but, um, no, I haven't really collaborated with either one of those guys, but I'm, I'm trying to like, you know, bring a lot of the other prison guys together. I think it's great to have a conversation just so people, you know, hear something different, man, because, you know, the mindset is that, 
you know, prison and people are fascinated with it, you know, so many movies and stuff. But at the end of the day, man, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't want to tell a person to go. I hear people say, oh man, I should go to prison for a little while and get in shape. I'm like, dude, go to prison to get in shape to get your, how crazy is that, man? You're on the street. You have all this access. What are you talking about? Yeah. <laughs> well, Hurt, we love your spirit. We love your philosophy. You. We love how you're teaching the kids to not get gangsteritis. And like you said, man, all these trolls, all this clickbait and all this bullshit, the way you've just stayed out of all that, that's so commendable. So if there's anything we can ever do to help you, you just please let us know. And we really appreciate you spending time with us this evening. Thank you, man. Yes, thank you. Appreciate it, man. I appreciate it. And like I said, um, I, you know, I look forward to getting you on Fresh Out, man, to, you know, tell your thing, man. Because like I said, it's, it's all about giving back and, you know, we're here for a purpose and, you know, to put this message out, you know, who knows, some, you might, you might save a life, man. You know, somebody hearing you say something from your perspective, there's some kid who's sitting over in, you know, London somewhere. He's like, oh man, you know, I, I'm going to stop, you know, maybe selling drugs and go get a job now because of what I heard from Sean, you know? So we're, we're changing lives, man. And that's, that's what it, that's what it all comes down to. Absolutely. That's what it's all about. So if you're watching this, my moderators are putting Herc's channel link in the chat. So please go over and check what he's done. I've been watching him for years. His videos are mind-blowing. Like he said, Kidnapped by the Cartel, that's a good one to start with. But there's a whole slew of characters with amazing stories on Big Herc's channel. So please go over and support what he's doing. Thanks, man. Just let me know if, if you want me on yours anytime. Be delighted. Hey, I'll definitely be reaching out, man. I appreciate it. Nice meeting you, Jen. Lovely to meet you. Have a wonderful Christmas. You See too. You. Happy Christmas. Take care. Right. Cheers. Thank you. What a lovely guy. That was fantastic. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. yeah. And um, just everyone for tonight, thank you guys so much. We are in our seventh hour of this live stream. <laughs> I'm going straight this to bed. <laughs> is, this, is the, this is the longest live stream we've ever done. Um, Mr. J has got a question for you, Jen. We've just got a couple of minutes before we're going to sign off. If anyone's got any questions for me and Jen, please put them in the chat right now. Mr. J wants to, uh, oh, a wave. There. Merry Christmas. Can you do? Can you wave like you're the Queen, Liz uh, Queen Elizabeth used to? Is it like that? <laughs> <laughs> I think he's a bit slower like that. that, trolls. Jen doing the royal wave. <laughs> <laughs> I do another wave, but... Can't see that on your YouTube. <laughs> huge, huge thank you to all the co-hosts tonight and all the co-hosts that just commit to doing so much content with us over the years. Tonight we've had Jen, we've had Dr. Das, we've had Andrew Gold, we've had Stephen Knight, we've also, you know, other co-hosts, Matthew Steeples, Tug of War, Wild Woman recently stepped up, did some co-hosting with Holly, the prison governor. So, you know, first and foremost, huge shout out to all the co-hosts and to Ash for arranging these streams. Ash is amazing. He's gone to bed right now. He lives in Asia and he stays up all night. It's like four or five in the morning where he is. He stays up all night bringing the guests in and out, liaising with them, making sure there's no hiccups. And it is, you know, I'm blessed to have Ash as the epicenter of organizing the Atwood Unleashed series. We did the math the other day. There's 20 people working on the channel that does not include the moderators. Oh, and Huge shout out to, to Ray J. <laughs> no. Ray J, we salute you. We've got our camera crew in the north. 
Jim and Dave at Material Studios in Liverpool. We've got our camera guy in the Midlands, Liam Galvin. And we've got Joe, sound engineer, and James, cameraman in the South, who we're going to be getting together with tomorrow. Huge thank you to all the people doing the clips and the shorts and the thumbnails and, and social media liaison and everything else. Um, to Victoria, who, who does our MailChimp and does a lot for Jen. Anyone else you can think of off the top of your head? I don't know. <laughs> oh, we're going to have to reel it off. <laughs> if we miss anyone out, <laughs> I'm blaming you. Right, who, who else have we got? Oh, no, we're missing people. Right, yeah. Check well, we'll have to cut. Jen, Jen has her own channel now. No, you've got two channels, haven't you? You've got Jen Hopkins and Kaz and Jen Talks, haven't you? Oh, Kaz and Jen Talks is uh, in the middle of something, so don't even promote that. I've got my own channel. It's just recycled your stuff, basically. So head on over if you want to re-watch all my interviews. <laughs> so Jen, Jen is about to start interviewing people on her own, especially people who've been through human transport situations or have been through horrific and harrowing things. Put a one in the chat if you want to see Jen doing interviews on her own. Let us get the feedback on that. Because I think Jen now. How many interviews have you done, Jen? God. Probably about 150 to 200 now. I think the apprenticeship apprenticeship is over. I think we're seeing all ones. People want to see Jen doing stuff on her own as well as the stuff we do. That will continue. But also just creating additional content. I said a couple of years ago, we're trying to get it whereby we've got a podcast going out at six o'clock every single night or a live stream. Mm-hmm. I think in the last couple of weeks, we've, we've, we're doing like four or five. Darren G, shout out to Darren G, he's been helping us create a lot of content. So we're also going to be putting out a shout out to anyone who wants to apply to be a co-host on the channel. Because the only way we're going to reach this, getting a podcast out every single night at 6 o'clock every night, is if we do have more co-hosts. So if you fancy yourself as a co-host, or you know someone who will be a potentially good co-host, get in touch with us. We're going to have a screening process, and we're going to put out a video soon asking for people to apply. All ones, nothing but love and support. Much love. I've just seen some of the comments. Thank you, MJ. Thank you, Verity Love. Thank you, Diego Guitaris. A shout out to Rebecca Nickel, Michael Sehan. I could do this all night. Darren West, Ray J, of course. Mary Leck. Like, shout out to everyone. I hope you have an amazing Christmas. And I'll see you uh, in the new year. Jen, you have blossomed as an interviewer, love, from Verity Love. Mary, thanks for providing such great content. And most importantly, thanks to you guys, the viewers, for supporting the channel for steering us in the right direction with all your guest suggestions and topic suggestions. Huge shout out to the Patreons as well for the great community we've got over there and for enabling us to keep this content rolling out. So we're going to sign off. We're now officially at six hours, 35 minutes on the longest live stream we've ever done on the channel. (laughs) Guys, I've already done an hour and 15. I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to bed now. Time time to chill out and watch some Netflix. So wherever you are watching this, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, YouTube, thanks so much. We've got a podcast going out tomorrow night at six, brand new content. 
It's a guy who was involved in a 60 million pound Coke conspiracy. And he's a hell of a speaker and a gentleman. So until then, we'll see you either then or perhaps next week for next week's Atwood Unleashed. Thanks again, everyone. It's been a great evening. Thank you for supporting us. Cheers. Take care. Bye-bye.